Volume 1, Chapter 50, The Reopening of the Narragansett Claims, 1679-1683. During his first four years in high office in New England, Edward Randolph exerted a most powerful influence on the Narragansett country. We have seen that the settlement by the Royal Commission in 1665 granted the Narragansett country as King's Province to Rhode Island, but continued the arbitrary Atherton Company land claims in force. Before 1676, the land dispute had been more or less academic, but the eradication of the Narragansett Indians in King Philip's War now opened the entire country to land settlement. Aware that the Narragansett lands were now a glowing prize, the Atherton Company claimed that Rhode Island had forfeited jurisdiction by failing to do its part in New England's extermination of the Narragansett Indians. In early 1679, the king wrote to the colonies, ordering the status quo to remain in the Narragansett lands and suggesting that all interested parties submit their claims to England. In reply, the commissioners of the New England Confederation got together and strongly backed the claim of Connecticut to the territory. They asserted bitterly that the citizens of Rhode Island were an ungoverned people, utterly incapable to advance His Majesty's interest or the peace and happiness of their neighbors. In the same year, the Atherton Company expanded its membership, with Richard Wharton soon becoming a leading partner. The company petitioned Connecticut to assume jurisdiction, but to no avail. Randolph now agreed to plead the Atherton Company's case and in 1680 backed up the new Atherton plan for an independent charter for King's Province. The company also managed to win the support of Governor Andros of New York for its claims. But its most important friend at court was Lord Culpepper, the royal governor of Virginia, whose support was purchased by Wharton in exchange for partnership in the Atherton Company. Lord Culpepper urged the Lords of Trade to appoint a new set of commissioners to decide the Narragansett problem, for which he suggested a list of substantial, able, and uninterested persons. The list included such an uninterested group as Fitzjohn Winthrop, son of the late John Winthrop, Jr., and a partner in the Atherton Company, Winthrop's brother-in-law, Edward Palms, Edward Randolph, and William Stoughton and Joseph Dudley of the pro-Crown opportunist group of Massachusetts merchants. The Lords of Trade accepted Culpepper's suggestion, their agreement being facilitated by Wharton's discreet offer sent via Randolph to the secretary of the Lords, William Blaithwaite, of payment for services rendered. In April 1683, the Lords appointed a new royal commission to investigate the Narragansett claims. They accepted Culpepper's eight-man list, adding to it only Governor Cranfield of New Hampshire as chairman. The commission reeking with built-in bias, gathered at the house of one of the Atherton proprietors and surrounded itself with several of the other partners. The Rhode Island government vigorously protested these proceedings and ordered the commission out of its jurisdiction. 
The commission sent in its report in October 1683, finding for Connecticut and the Atherton Company and invalidating the previous royal commission and the jurisdiction of Rhode Island. Typical of the commission's almost egregious cynicism was Chairman Cranfield's message to Blathwaite accompanied the report. The message informed the latter that the Atherton proprietors do all intend to compliment you with a parcel of land within their claim. So it was that the Cranfield Commission paved the path for the land grab of the Narragansett country by the Atherton Company. Volume 1, Chapter 51, The Rule of Joseph Dudley in the Council of New England. During the year 1684, while Randolph, Dudley, and their allies were happily spinning plans for the government of New England after the abolition of the Massachusetts Charter, the Lords of Trade made their own modifications of the Randolph-Dudley plan of the year before. Their proposal, though very similar, provided that royal despotism be stripped of even the thin facade of home rule allowed by Randolph and Dudley. In the Lord's plan, the Governor-General and the Council for New England would all be appointed, the latter to be appointed, of course, by the Governor, and unchecked by any representative assembly. Governor and Council would have full power to legislate, adjudicate, tax, regulate trade, foster the Church of England, and impose a system of quit-rents. In short, it was a fully centralized royal despotism over all of New England. The characteristic Tory regime of this era, imposing throne, altar, mercantilism, big government, and feudalism, was to be imposed upon the one area in America that had been self-governing and blissfully free of most of these elements. Since the Rhode Island and Connecticut charters were still in operation, the Lord's initial plan was to begin with one royal government for Massachusetts, including Maine, New Hampshire, and after study of the Cranfield Report, the Narragansett country. The Narragansett lands were to be detached from Rhode Island and joined to the expanded Massachusetts. The Governor-General would confirm all land titles upon payment of quit-rent. The Lords of Trade then decided to add Plymouth to the expanded Massachusetts and looked forward to adding Rhode Island and Connecticut, should their charters be abrogated. No sooner had the Massachusetts Charter been dissolved at the end of October, however, than a grave blow fell on the carefully constructed plan. The king suddenly decided to appoint as royal governor of Massachusetts the notoriously brutal Colonel Percy Kirk. At this juncture, with all plans in limbo, Charles II died in early February 1685 and was succeeded by his brother, James II, a Roman Catholic and High Tory. James in a frenzy to eliminate all independent and proprietary colonies and to change them to outright royal colonies, began quo warranto proceedings against several colonial charters, with Randolph enthusiastically drawing up the charges against Connecticut and Rhode Island. The plans for a new, expanded Massachusetts government were temporarily postponed in order to settle the problems of a new reign, 
But finally, in September 1685, James II decreed the governmental form that the new royal colony of Massachusetts would take. The new royal colony was to be the Dominion of New England, a colony made up of the former colonies of Massachusetts and New Hampshire and the Narragansett country. Ruling over the Dominion was to be a grand council appointed by the crown and drawn from residents of all the previous colonies. Secretary and registrar of the Dominion was Edward Randolph, whose suggestions for the council had all been accepted by King James. Chosen as president of the council was Joseph Dudley. The appointment of Colonel Kirk had fallen through, and the Randolph-Dudley clique was now in complete control. With the exception of Connecticut and Rhode Island, takeover of the colonies was now complete. There would now be no representative assembly to block the clique's path to power and plunder. The triumphant Randolph was now reconfirmed in his old commission of collector of customs. His royal salary and fees were considerably increased, and he also acquired the royal offices of auditor for New England, deputy postmaster general, and surveyor of the New England woods. The Dudley-Randolph government took office in Boston after Randolph arrived in the end of May 1686. The Dudley Council was to rule until the king could send over a governor-general to take charge. The new governing council of the Dominion of New England was an instructive collection of all the leading pro-English opportunists in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Joseph Dudley, President. William Stratton, Deputy President, Edward Randolph, Secretary, John Usher, Treasurer, plus Robert Mason, Fitzjohn Winthrop, John Pynchon, Peter Bulkeley, Waite Winthrop, Richard Wharton, Nathaniel Saltonstall, Simon Bradstreet, Dudley Bradstreet, Bartholomew Gedney, John Hinks, Francis Champerdown, Edward Ting, and Jonathan Ting. Of these councillors, all resided in Massachusetts proper, except Mason and Hinks, who resided in New Hampshire, Champernown and Edward Ting, who came from the main towns, and Fitzjohn Winthrop of King's Province. Of these, however, Saltonstall, Champernown, and the Bradstreets refused to serve, the latter two because the office was a thing contrived to abridge them of their liberty and indeed against the Magna Carta. Meanwhile, how did once proud Massachusetts react to the stunning news of its demise? The popular opposition party remained in power as the blow fell and stubbornly refused to make a formal submission. It even proceeded to indict a man for saying that the Massachusetts government no longer existed. But Randolph's arrival in May put a stop to these proceedings. The general court had decided on nonviolent civil disobedience, not revolting, but refusing to consent to the new arrangement. Understandably, the court was particularly exercised over the elimination of a representative assembly and of its sole right to levy taxes. But this did not phase Randolph and Dudley, who successfully proceeded to ignore the general court and to assume the reins of government. 
On May 25, the Dudley Council assumed office over Massachusetts and New Hampshire and quickly began to make its impact upon New England. The Dudley regime had been accurately termed a feast of political privilege for the members of the new ruling clique. Dudley and his relatives took care to grant themselves large tracts of vacant land and to assign to themselves and their friends all the government offices having any degree of patronage or influence. In this spirit, they determined legal fees, imports, and duties, selected ports of entry, exempted themselves from town taxation, and had themselves paid handsomely for these services to themselves. The ruling clique was composed mostly of merchants who by intermarriage formed a tangled web of family connections. John Usher, treasurer of the Dominion, was the brother-in-law of Dudley's brother-in-law. Richard Wharton, counselor, had married the first cousin of Dudley's wife and had later married Martha Winthrop, sister of Fitzjohn and Waite Winthrop. Edward Palms, made a justice of the peace, had married another Winthrop sister, Lucy. Edward and Jonathan Ting were the brothers of Dudley's wife, Rebecca. The Dudley clique happily engaged in their feast of privilege. Dudley, Wharton, the Winthrops, and others banded together to secure themselves a grant to the vast million-acre purchase of the Merrimack River, a territory that included consolidation of previous arbitrary land claims and dubious Indian purchases. To facilitate the granting of governmental powers over the area, the council formed the Merrimack land into a new Merrimack County, and these grants were secured by giving both William Blaithwaite and Edward Randolph shares in the new company. But it took only a few weeks in office for Edward Randolph to become disenchanted with the Dudley regime, for he saw, to his horror, that the opportunist clique was interested far more in using power to gain privileges for itself than in regulating and taxing its fellow citizens to benefit the English crown. In general, this was an easygoing regime. In his inaugural address, Dudley had promised a transition as plain and easy as possible. Indeed, many of the old office holders were reappointed by the council. Only a few men were hauled before the council for contempt, and only one was imprisoned for voicing sedition. Some of the Puritans were scandalized at the appearance of Anglican services and the use of the Anglican prayer book, and by the high-handed wickedness of non-Puritans in Boston, drinking and talking profanely and bodily to the great disturbance of the town and grief of good people. But the council, to Randolph's chagrin, did not foster the Church of England actively. Randolph also grumbled about the paucity of Anglicans in high office in the Dominion. On the council, only he and Mason were Anglicans, and only a handful of the more than 60 officers of the militia were not Puritan church members. Randolph also found himself losing out in the division of the patronage spoils to the numerous relatives of the Dudley Wharton clique. Randolph's chagrin was also directed to the alleged failure of this merchant ruling group to enforce the navigation acts with the enthusiasm that he felt was required. Dudley, however, had really proceeded auspiciously from the Randolph point of view, 
quickly launching the radical innovation of Tri-Navigation Act violations in newly constituted admiralty courts. These were royal prerogative courts that decided cases outside the safeguards of jury trial and of the features of the common law. In this way, the government could bypass the checks of jury trial. Dudley worked out the stratagem with Samuel Pepys, secretary of the Naval Board in England, and in only two weeks had condemned three ships. But the implacable Randolph was not satisfied. Riding home, he denounced Dudley as a man of base, servile and anti-monarchal principle, and portrayed Wharton as a smuggler and a seditionary who had criticized his, Randolph's, appointment to the Secretariat as intended to enthrall this people in vassalage. Actually, the root of Randolph's carping was the fact that Dudley allowed the naval commander as well as Randolph to initiate actions enforcing the navigation laws, thus depriving Randolph of the financial rewards for the commander's successful suits. Above all, Randolph chafed at the failure of the council to adopt his cherished goal of imposing a drastic program of despotism and plunder run by himself on the Dominion. Randolph wanted to replace the county officers registering land titles with one central office, his own, where everyone, for a handsome fee, would be forced to register his land title. When the council refused this attempted grab, Randolph cried out in righteous indignation to his friends in England, the beneficial perquisites of my office are alienated. Randolph went on to propose a grand compulsory registry of all persons over 16, the forced licensing of all ministers, and the requirement that all ministers must have the approval of the governor to assume their post, in short, a virtual Anglican establishment and restriction of non-Anglican services in the Dominion. These proposals, too, were rebuffed. To Randolph, this was base ingratitude by his own creatures whom he had elevated to state power. Randolph now found that his erstwhile allies were individuals who agree in nothing but sharing the country amongst themselves and laying out long tracts of lands, and who believed that this change was intended only to advantage them rather than Randolph or the crown. Of all the councillors, only Usher and Stoughton now met with his approval. One saving grace of the Dudley administration, a grace that worked to keep its power relatively weak, was scarcity of funds. Virtually its only meager sources of supply were the excise on liquors and fees. It did not dare levy any direct taxes without having the approval of an assembly. As partners in the Atherton Company, councillors Fitzjohn and Waite Winthrop were largely interested in finally seizing control of the Narragansett country, now incorporated into the Dominion of New England. The council, which included several other partners of the Atherton Company, promptly moved to implement the Cranfield Report of three years earlier. At the end of June, Dudley, Fitzjohn Winthrop, Randolph and Wharton traveled to Kingston in King's Province and reorganized the whole government of the Narragansett country. 
they proclaimed that absolute ownership of the land belonged to the Atherton proprietors and announced that anyone settling on these lands without the permission of these arbitrarily decreed proprietors would have to purchase or rent the land. Rhode Island dared not contest this naked seizure of its territory, its life being under the continuing threat of quo warranto action. The proprietors quickly began to exploit this windfall by selling a tract of land to a group of French Huguenot refugees at 20 pounds for 100 acres. Finally, in December 1686, the complexion of New England and the northern colonies underwent another change. Sir Edmund Andros arrived in Boston to assume the rule of an expanded, far more centralized, and crown-oriented dominion of New England. The history of the northern colonies was entering anew and fateful. Volume 1, Chapter 52 New York, 1676-1686 Having failed to seize Connecticut in the midst of King Philip's war, Governor Edmund Andros cemented an agreement with the Iroquois, to continue the old arrangement they had with the Dutch for the fur trade. He did this particularly because French Jesuit missionaries from Canada were beginning to dissolve some of the traditional enmity of the Iroquois toward the French. The furthest white outpost of New York was now Schenectady, a Dutch hamlet founded over a decade earlier by an agent of Rensselaerwick, the only continuing patroonship which extended over several counties' worth of area around Albany. To regularize Iroquois relations, Andros created a Board of Commissioners of Indian Affairs, stationed at Albany. Appointed secretary was a young Scotsman, Robert Livingston, son of an eminent Presbyterian minister and secretary of the manor of Rensselaerwick, as well as of the town of Albany. Albany's vital importance for the fur trade stemmed from its locus at the junction of the Hudson and the Mohawk Rivers. The Mohawk provided the opening to the west, along which the Iroquois could serve as middlemen by purchasing the furs of the Indian tribes of the Middle West and reselling them to the Dutch or English who would transport them down the Hudson overseas. The most important citizens of Albany, even after the English reconquest, continued to be the Dutch handlers, the merchants engaged in fur trading. The fur trade was crucial to the economy of the northern colonies in this era, and fur traders were always attempting to opt out of the shifting winds of free competition by obtaining exclusive monopoly privileges for themselves from the government. Governor Andros proved amenable to granting monopolies. In the summer of 1678, he granted a monopoly of the fur trade to the resident merchants of Albany, reserving the monopoly of the overseas trade for the merchants of New York City. The privileged monopolist or oligopolist of Albany were, of course, not happy about having to sell their furs to a similarly privileged set of oligopolists here defined as several receivers of common grants of exclusive privilege. The 20-odd Albany handlers, 
however, did manage to get rid of Timothy Cooper, an Albany agent for the manorial ruler of Springfield, Massachusetts, John Pynchon. Cooper's private mail was purloined by the Albany magistrates, and on the strength of critical statements about the handlers, Cooper was officially expelled from Albany by the governor and the council. In the same year, Andros took the highly significant step of establishing a monopoly of the important export commodity, flour. By 1680, all bolting and packaging of flour was reserved exclusively to resident merchants of New York City, who also had to be freemen of that city. This flour monopoly brought in much revenue to the crown. The monopolist paid for the privilege in the form of inspection fees, taxes, and so forth. But it rightly embittered the merchants outside the city, who were grievously injured, and the wheat farmers of New York, who saw their prices fall sharply as their market was greatly narrowed to a few privileged New York City merchants. The result was the crushing of the successful flour mills already established at such spots as Rensselaerwick, Albany, and Kingston, the last town barely escaping fines to punish the vigor of its protest. The wheat and other grain farmers were further mulcted by an absolute prohibition on the export of grain in force since 1673. This ban greatly depressed the price of wheat earned by the farmer while privileging the New York merchants with an artificial cheap cost for the grain purchased. Grain prices were further lowered artificially by prohibiting the distilling of liquor in New York, thus shutting off an important market for local grain. This prohibition privileged the New York City merchants again by lowering the cost of grain and by choking off the effective competition of local whiskey with West India rum, which constituted one of the merchant's major imports. Furthermore, the Duke of York ordered Andros to set up a port monopoly for New York City. All ships bound for any port within the original territory of New Netherland were now compelled to enter their goods at the New York Customs House. This provided the crown with assured customs revenue at a port it could easily watch and furnished much extra income for the privileged merchants, but again at the expense of greatly crippling trade at such places as Long Island. The settlers of Suffolk County on eastern Long Island, long accustomed to exchanging their whale oil for the manufactured goods of New England, were now forced into the extra cost of transporting these goods via the long detour of New York City and of paying there the customs duties that they could have avoided at Long Island. With all these monopolistic privileges granted to the New York City merchants by the government, it is not surprising that their profits often ranged from 100 to several hundred percent. The network of monopoly privilege also tightened in all the several towns of New York province. Each town and village government laid down severe restrictions against competition from outside its locale or from non-resident visitors. Only qualified freemen of each town enjoyed the freedom of the town, including the right to carry on a trade or craft without hindrance or harassment. 
Thus, the bakers of Albany pushed through an ordinance forbidding any transients to bake in the city, and a special tax was levied on seasonal visitors. And even the relatively liberal town of Huntington forbade any person of any other town upon this island to whale or fish within its jurisdiction. A particularly important urban monopoly had been granted in the days of New Netherland to the Carters of New York City. Historians have erroneously termed the Carters workers in the sense of modern employees, but they were not at all proletarians. They were, rather, self-employed artisans who sold their wares to the public. Therefore, monopoly privileges made them, in effect, virtually medieval and mercantilistic guilds. The very creation of the monopoly introduced a conflict of interest between the privileged carters and the rest of the colony. The carters exploited their monopoly fully by working less and charging more, whereas the colony balked at the obvious shortage of carting service created by the privilege. During the Dutch reoccupation, the carters complained that non-licensed men and boys were engaged in trucking, that is, taking advantage of the attractive Monopoly One conditions, as well as of the shortage to enter the field. The court obligingly ordered these boys not to ride a cart anymore. Negroes, free or slave, had long been prohibited from becoming carters, but in 1674, Governor Andros suspended the right to cart for one carter who refused to haul cobblestones for the governor. Two years later, the city decreed minimum loads that the licensed carters would be forced to carry. In 1677, 12 New York City carters were expelled from their occupation and heavily fined, whereupon the carters submitted and promised not to disobey again. The carters thus found that a monopoly privilege could cut both ways. In addition to imposing monopoly privileges and crippling Long Island trade, Andros also offended the Dutch citizens by partiality to Anglican practice. In 1676, Reverend Nicholas Van Rensselaer, a protege of King Charles and the Duke of York, came to New York to take up his holdings at Rensselaerwick, the only Dutch patroonship that had withstood the rigors of the year. Although Van Rensselaer had been ordained by an Anglican bishop and not by the ruling classes of Amsterdam of the Dutch Reformed Church, Governor Andros still had the effrontery to appoint Van Rensselaer to the pastoral ministry of the Dutch Reformed Church at Albany. The Reverend Mr. Van Nieuwenhuysen of New York City protested vigorously and was joined by the young Dutch Reformed merchant who had emigrated from Germany, Jacob Leisler, whose wife was related to the leading Dutch families of the colony. Leisler accused Van Rensselaer of false preaching, but the court found for the patroon, and Leisler was forced to pay court costs and imprisoned for a time. Soon, Andros moved in to compel the virtual separation of the Dutch Reformed Church in New York from its connection with the classes of Amsterdam. In 1678, the Dutch Church in Newcastle on the Delaware appointed a young minister and asked for his ordination without having to send him to Amsterdam. 
At this point, Andros saw his opportunity and ordered Van Nieuwenhuysen and the other Dutch ministers to form themselves into their own classes and then to ordain the minister if qualified. The Dutch minister complied because it would not be safe to disobey Andros. The Amsterdam classes approved this fait accompli. A corollary to the economic tyranny imposed by the Andros regime was the placing of political power into the hands of a tight-knit oligarchy, which filled all the public offices and used them for its own benefit. Public office generally provides a twofold economic privilege for its holder, the salary directly attendant on the job, and the additional economic benefits from wielding the powers of office. Generally, both sets of powers are used to the full by the rulers. From 1664 to 1689, for example, only 21 men held office in the appointed governor's council. Of these, 10 were wealthy merchants of New York City, basking in the monopoly privileges they helped to award themselves. Two were wealthy lawyers of the city connected with the merchants, and four were high English officials in the bureaucracy. A major economic grievance was Andros's imposition of a mass of higher taxes shortly after assuming power in New York. This included not only the quit rents, property and excise taxes mentioned above, but also a 2% import duty on English goods a 10% import duty on non-English goods, a 3% duty on salt, specific import duties on fur, tobacco, and liquor, and an added 3% duty on goods traveling up the Hudson River. Added to the New York port monopoly, this was a formidable grievance indeed. The reimposition in 1679 of the excise tax on liquor which was canceled in 1676, also added to opposition to the tax levies. The economic, political, and religious grievances all intensified the New Yorkers' long-standing demand for representative assembly, and New Yorkers were painfully conscious of the fact that theirs was the only English colony in America lacking such an assembly. Now the demand had spread from Long Island to the rest of the colony. In 1681, the grievances against the Andros administration came to a head. Numerous charges had piled up against the governor. Twice, Andros had been brought into court for appropriating confiscated goods for his own personal use. The court freed him only for lack of jurisdiction. In January, therefore, Andros was recalled to England to answer the charges, which included favoritism in enforcing the Navigation Acts, fraud, private speculation, taxing the people without their consent and sometimes without the consent of his own counsel, and denial of the right to jury trial. There were also charges of favoritism to leading Dutch merchants, particularly the two richest men in the colony, Frederick Phillips and O.S. Van Cortlandt. The Duke's agent sent to investigate the charges found them true, but Andros still managed to convince the Duke of York of his innocence. In the meanwhile, however, Andros committed a very costly oversight. 
the hated customs duties imposed by Andros had expired in November 1680. The governor, in the press of preparing for his voyage home, neglected to order them renewed. This was the only opening that the embittered merchants needed. As soon as Andros left, with Deputy Governor Anthony Brockholz remaining in charge, one merchant after another refused to pay the duties, claiming rather speciously that Brockholz had no power to continue them in force. Brockholz himself was inclined to yield the point, even though Andros had told him to continue everything as before. Brockholz's point was reinforced by the councils agreeing with the merchants that it had no authority to continue the taxes. William Dyer, the Duke's collector of customs at New York, determined to collect the duties nevertheless. After confiscating goods for non-payment, Dyer was sued by a merchant he had victimized, and a grand jury indicted Dyer for high treason because he assumed regal power and authority by imposing taxes illegally. Even before Andros's departure, the mayor's court simply and illegally refused to try a smuggler, and Andros had disciplined that body. When Dyer challenged the jurisdiction of the court of Assisi, the court shipped him to England to stand trial for treason, where he was, of course, promptly freed. Dyer might be freed, but he was at least temporarily out of the country, and the citizens of New York for a while had successfully revolted against payment of the oppressive duties. The revolutionary impetus now pressed on to a clamor for a representative assembly. The old principle of no taxation without representation was put forward again. A mass petition was sent to the Duke of York, declaring the lack of an assembly an intolerable grievance. All this pressure, loss of revenue, turmoil, and virtual rebellion now had its impact. It began to weary the Duke. Advised by his Quaker friend, William Penn, to grant New York an assembly, just give itself government and there will be no more trouble, the Duke at last agreed. The Duke retired Governor Andros and replaced him with Colonel Thomas Dongan, an Irish Catholic, with instructions to institute an assembly. Dongan promptly convened the first representative assembly in New York history in October 1683, to the jubilation of the New Yorkers. The assembly had the power to levy taxes, though not to appropriate them, and its legislative acts were subject to the veto of the governor, council, and the ultimate veto of the proprietor. Moreover, the power to convoke and dissolve the assembly was strictly in the hands of the governor. The assembly consisted of deputies from New York City, Long Island, Kings, Queens, and Suffolk counties, Kingston, Esopus County, Albany, Schenectady, Staten Island, Richmond County, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket, Dukes County, and Cornwall, the main towns. The assembly drew up a charter, which it eagerly sent to the Duke of York for approval and which provided for regular meetings of the assembly, trial by jury, due process of law, and the right of habeas corpus, restriction of martial law, and religious toleration of all Christians. But the New Yorkers were to find, once again, that the parable of being chastised with whips 
and then with scorpions, could apply particularly well to them. For one thing, the assembly met only once more the following fall, with the exception of a brief session in the fall of 1685. And the charter didn't last long, for in February 1685, King Charles II died and was replaced by the Duke of York, James II. The accession of James II greatly changed New York's status. In the first place, with New York's proprietor now the king, it automatically was transformed from a proprietary into a royal colony. And second, the interest of James in the colony was now revived with a vengeance. As king, he moved steadily toward imposing a highly centralized royal despotism on all the northern colonies. The separate charter for New York was now revoked, and Dongan ordered it voided in 1686. Furthermore, Dongan decreed that the taxing power was from then on to be lodged in the governor and council. The most precious power of any assembly, taxing power, was now taken away. In January 1687, Dongan officially dissolved the assembly, which had not met in over a year. In protest against this crushing of the stillborn assembly, the militia of Richmond revolted, and rioting occurred in Jamaica. Both protests were quickly suppressed. Apart from the plans of James II and the abortiveness of the assembly, the Dongan administration proved no great improvement over that of Andros. In the first place, the various oppressive tendencies of the Andros' regime were continued in force. Dongan continued the embargoes on the export of grain and the various monopolies and tightened the Albany monopoly of the fur trade. Dongan severely tightened the New York City's flour monopoly as well. When flower makers sprang up outside New York City and evaded the legal prohibition, Dongan in 1683 instructed the sheriffs to seize and confiscate all flour bolted or packed outside the city. In addition, Dongan added to the exploitation of other groups for the benefit of the city merchants by prohibiting tanneries in New York. This forced the cattle farmers to sell hides to the merchants for export to tanneries. This created extra business for the merchants at the expense of both the farmers who suffered from the restriction of their market and the shoemakers who now had to pay a higher price for imported leather. The result of the continuing governmental oppression of the grain farmers was a one-third fall in the price of wheat. Priced at four shillings, six pence per bushel in 1673, wheat by 1688 had fallen to three shillings a bushel. This caused a corollary fall in land values in New York. Total value of property fell from 101,000 pounds in 1673 to 78,000 pounds in 1688. The struggle with the carting monopoly continued. Dongan forced the carters to carry over a hundred loads annually to the fort without compensation. 
When the Carters refused to work under Dongan's regulations in 1684, the authorities decided to allow anyone to enter the trade except the disobeying Carters. This double-barreled blow quickly forced the Carters to obey the government decrees. For a short while, Governor Dongan did lessen the New York City port monopoly a trifle. The Long Island towns were granted port privileges, but only with those ships posting a 100-pound bond against engaging in smuggling and with revenue officials stationed on Long Island to enforce the various trade and customs regulations. The Long Islanders complained, however, of the revenue officers and the high duties, while Dongan chafed at continued smuggling in violation of the Navigation Acts. By 1688, Dongan had again closed the Long Island ports. One monopoly was relaxed, however, with the accession of Dongan. New York merchants, in contrast to the New York port, lost their monopoly of the overseas trade. In addition, New York was still prohibited from trading with Holland. Dutch discontent continued. The Albany Dutch Reformed Church became the center of complaint against government interference. In 1684, this church petitioned for permission to select a few of its minor officials rather than have the civil government making the appointments. The request was refused. The following year, the Dutch minister of the Albany Church refused to be ousted from his post by a civil court on the grounds that this decision could only be made by the Amsterdam classes. But Governor Dongan did not simply follow in his predecessor's footsteps. He added more oppressions and grievances of his own. Most important was his determined drive for the imposition of quitrents. As soon as he arrived, Dongan decreed the compulsory reconfirmation of all land titles, including all confirmed previously by Andros, and the use of these land rolls to exact higher quitrents, out of which Dongan himself received a commission. Meeting with considerable resistance, Dongan threatened to buy from the Indians all land within existing townships not yet so purchased and to resell the lands to strangers. The towns surrendered to this threat, but only with bitterness. Kingston and the Hudson River towns suffered from the decree, but the most aggrieved were, again, the Long Island towns. In East Hampton, a Puritan minister was moved to curse anyone, even the governor, who dared to injure settlers by removing their landmarkers. Dongan promptly arrested the minister and several of his congregation, and only a humble apology won their liberty. Huntington felt it necessary to assure renewal of its patents, so made Dongan a gift of land, which the governor cheerfully accepted. Dongan generally insisted on personal fees for the regranting of land titles and town patents. For granting a town charter, the governor exacted 300 pounds from New York City and also mulcted Albany for a similar service. But even while granting a modicum of self-rule to New York City, Dongan's charter provided for a veto of municipal actions by the governor and the council and for the appointment of the mayor by the governor. Dongan was also accused, with some justification, of aiding his friends in evading the Navigation Acts, 
of forcing merchants into giving him a share of their enterprises and of selling land to his friends. Dongan not only raised quit rents, but added further injury to a declining economy by increasing taxation, even though he himself recognized taxation as one of the reasons for New York's economic decline. When I come to New York to impose another tax on the people, I'm afraid they will desert the province. Dongan embarked on a program of tampering with the land that had a long-run impact far more severe than any of his other policies. The Dutch attempt to engross the land of New York under a feudal landholding aristocracy had failed. Of all the patroonships, only the vast Rensselaerwick had survived. Now Governor Dongan revived the policy of feudal handouts of unused land to privileged grantees. Dongan literally created a privileged class of large quasi-feudal landholders by erecting numerous manors and by other large land grants. Here was the origin of the long alliance in New York between two privileged ruling castes, the royal bureaucracy and the great landholding oligarchy which came to include such old merchant families as Phillipses, Bayard, and Van Cortland. And here was the beginning of a policy that fastened feudal landholding onto New York for a far longer period than transpired in the other colonies, where after a short time feudalistic landholding tended to dissolve into the hands of actual settlers. The million-acre Rensselaerwick, surrounding Albany, was reconfirmed as a manor by Dongan in 1685, with the lord of the manor obtaining virtually the full feudal powers of the Durham Palatinate type. The manor lord could appoint manorial courts and impose military burdens. This grant could be made because the Duke of York decided not to apply the English anti-feudal statutes of 1660 to his province. The largest new manor created was Livingston Manor, given to the ambitious young Scot, Robert Livingston, who had managed to marry into the leading Schuler, Van Rensselaer, and Van Cortland families. Livingston based his claim upon a fraudulent Indian purchase. After the manner of the day, the location of the purchased land was kept deliberately vague in the contract, enabling the owner, aided by a friendly governor, to stretch his land enormously by suitably elastic interpretation of the land area. In this way, Livingston was able to inflate his manor from 26,000 acres to 160,000 acres, constituting the southern third of what is now Columbia County. Van Rensselaer was also able to add nearly 300,000 acres to his manor by similar fraudulent extension of an Indian purchase, aided and abetted by the governor. Another new element of friction largely introduced by the Dongan administration, was the Roman Catholic issue. James II was a Catholic king, and this in itself was sufficient to raise the hackles of the ardent English and Dutch Calvinist of New York. At the same time, Roman Catholic influence was growing in the colony. The acting governor, 
Anthony Brockles was a Catholic, as was Dongan, who brought with him several English Jesuits. The Jesuit order, the great order of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, had always been held in something akin to superstitious fear, but this was now enhanced in the minds of the colonists by mounting hysteria over the French Jesuit missionaries to the Iroquois. The emerging anti-Catholic hysteria over the proximity of French Canada, it should be noted, had also a hard economic basis. The danger of the Iroquois selling their precious furs to the French instead of to New Yorkers. There was also much carping over the new Jesuit Latin school in New York, which proved so efficient that a great many children of influential New Yorkers were sent there. Here, too, a Catholic plot could be sensed, and rather easily in the area of the Titus Oates hoax and the resumption of French Catholic persecution of the Huguenots. And yet, so far was Dongan from being involved in a vast Catholic plot that he took it upon himself to launch aggressive moves against the French in Iroquois County. Dongan did his best to save the fur trade monopoly and to gain new crown territory by whipping up Indian hatred of far less populous New France to the north. Neither did the considerable relative weakness of New France prevent a spread of anti-Catholicism, vague but intense fears of a French fifth column of subversive French agents and so forth. Dongan's tactic in pursuing his designs against the French was to look on benignly while the Iroquois plundered and ravaged French settlements and then warned that the Iroquois were British subjects and their land in New York Territory under British protection. So far did Dongan's Catholicism not influence his behavior toward the French that he tried to send English and Irish priests to the Iroquois to counter the missionary efforts of French Jesuits, but to no avail, for the English and Irish priests refused to go into the wilderness to live with the Indians. In November 1686, France and England signed a Treaty of Neutrality in London, The treaty provided for peace in America, and each signatory agreed that neither country would violate the territories of the other, even if war should break out between them in Europe. Doubtless, the French thought that this would put a stop to Dongan's antics in Iroquois country, and New France proceeded to send an expedition against the Iroquois. But Dongan, careless of the treaty, countered this by supplying arms and ammunition to the Iroquois and stimulating them to attack the French. The Indians responded by ravaging and destroying French settlements in Canada. Louis XIV naturally complained to King James and asked him to stop Dongan's aggressions. James, however, was influenced by Dongan's pointed reference to the value of the Iroquois beaver trade, and also claimed the Iroquois as English subjects. Volume 1, Chapter 53, Turmoil in the East, New Jersey, 1678-1686 through 1686. When Governor Edmund Andros returned in 1678 from his trip to England, he had decided that he had a mandate for sovereignty under the Duke of York over East New Jersey and West New Jersey. 
The latent explosiveness of two contradictory charters for New Jersey had now erupted. In March 1680, Andros seized ships going to Elizabeth that had not paid customs fees in New York. He ordered Governor Philip Cotteret of East New Jersey to cease exercising jurisdiction and all the inhabitants to bow to his own authority as governor. Andros's action was clearly stimulated by Cotteret's permitting all ships to trade freely in East New Jersey without paying customs duties in New York. In short, Andrus's aggressive actions were partly motivated by an attempt to secure a monopoly of trade for the New York port. Cotteret replied forthrightly that East New Jersey was subject to the proprietorship of Sir George Cotteret and that East New Jersey would defend itself as best it could against any force by Andros. When the New York Council ordered the New Jersey towns to send representatives to a meeting at Woodbridge on April 7. The alarmed Cotteret countermanded the order and warned that he would arrest any emissaries of Andros as subversive spies and disturbers of the public peace. Cotteret insisted on his province's independence. It was by His Majesty's command that this government was established, and without the same command we shall never be resigned, but with our lives and fortunes, the people resolving to live and die with the name of true subjects and not traitors. In May, Andros issued a warrant for the arrest of Philip Carteret and a few of his leading counselors for having presumed to assume and exercise authority and jurisdiction over the king's subjects. Cotteret was seized, beaten, and tried before the New York Court of Assizes. He defended himself vigorously and protested a court where the accuser, jailer, and judge were one. The jury, however, upset Andros's imperialist plans by acquitting Carteret a verdict they thrice persisted in, even under severe pressure from Andros. The court, however, ordered Cotteret to cease jurisdiction, and Andros and his council went to Elizabethtown to meet the deputies from Jersey. Edmund Andros had now assumed the governorship of East New Jersey. Addressing the meeting of the deputies in June 1680, he told them he forgave their trespasses against authority and suggested that they put the Duke's laws into effect and name Isaac Whitehead as clerk. The assembly demanded that it be called annually, but Andros and his council retorted that an assembly could be called whenever Andros deemed it necessary. The assembly also asked Andros to confirm the privileges granted it in the concessions and agreements, but the governor dismissed this as irrelevant and unnecessary. When the Assembly kept pressing its request for confirmation of New Jersey liberties and provisions for regular meetings, Andros and his council preemptorily dissolved the New Jersey representative body. Philip Cotteret, not able to muster force against his powerful neighbor, was now in a doubly weak position. Sir George Cotteret had died, and his grandson and heir, Sir George, did not have the old proprietor's influence at court. But resistance appeared among the people of New Jersey. 
In the July meeting at Woodbridge, the freeholders refused to obey Andros's order to nominate local magistrates for his approval. They insisted, instead, that their charter gave them the right to choose their own magistrates. A month later, Samuel Moore signed a further refusal by Woodbridge to obey the order, and Samuel Dennis refused Andros's appointment as court clerk. Moore was arrested and tried before Andros in the New York court. Upon recanting this error and promising good behavior, Moore was released. Two Jerseyites were also arrested for speaking words tending to disturb the peace. A transient surveyor, William Taylor, denounced Andros in the council as rogues and traitors and said that he would not be governed by such men. Taylor was arrested and, after recanting, dismissed on good behavior by Andros and his council. A laborer, John Curtis, arrested for similar seditious remarks, broke bail and disappeared. By late 1680, however, the Duke of York's political position in England had deteriorated, and he was anxious to avoid making further enemies at home. In November, the Duke informed Andros that the Jerseys were to be governed by their proprietors. Andros was shortly recalled as governor and returned to England. The Andros menace removed Philip Carteret, in early 1681, jubilantly countermanded Andros's usurpations and ordered the citizens of New Jersey to ignore the courts that New York had intended to operate there. But in his joy, Carteret grew cocky and began to assert his authority aggressively, internally and externally. Externally, Carteret suddenly laid claim to Staten Island, and ordered its citizens to obey him rather than New York. This question remained in the hands of the Duke of York. Meanwhile, Carteret faced far greater troubles at home. The assembly, with the former anti-Andros seditionist John Curtis, a member, met in October and took the opportunity to have a new regime to urge reaffirmation of the original concessions of 1665 without the oppressive amendments of the declarations of 1672 and 1674. These amendments had shifted many powers from the assembly to the appointed executive and had deprived the people of many of their liberties. Carteret's old troubles with the people now resumed. Carteret and his council bitterly attacked the assembly for its presumption. Once again, the lower house threw down the gauntlet, declaring that the inhabitants of New Jersey were not obliged to conform to these later declarations and instructions. The New Jersey rebellion was now in full bloom against Carteret. The council now insisted that the deputies pay the governor's salary and also the past incurred quit-rents to the proprietor, a request met with only scorn by the assembly. After several furious interchanges, the governor and council dissolved the assembly at the suggestion of Councillor Robert Vickers. To protest this dissolution, Edward Slater, deputy from the Piscataway, called a protest meeting that was invaded by two council members, Henry Greenland and Robert Vickers. The councillors accused Slater of sedition and of rendering Carteret and his government odious in the eyes and hearts of the people. 
They also accused Slater of trying to stir up mutiny, insurrection, and open rebellion. Greenland and Vickers promptly had Slater arrested. They then tried Slater in their capacities as justices of the peace and convicted him on their own testimony. This court was conducted on no legal grounds, yet the two judges sentenced Slater to a six-month term in prison. Vickers now urged Carteret to take full control of the colony by ignoring the requirement that the assembly establish the courts and by creating his own prerogative courts instead. New Jersey was now back to the appointed courts and the despotism of the 1666-73 through 73 era. Meanwhile, however, a great change in the government of East New Jersey was underway. The estate of Sir George Carteret sold the proprietorship of East New Jersey at auction in February 1682 to a group of 12 men, 11 of them Quakers, headed by the eminent William Penn for 3,400 pounds. In August, the 12 expanded the partnership to 24 including ten more Quakers, and this patent was reconfirmed by the Duke of York the following March. Thus, by the end of 1682, Quakers, though still periodically persecuted in England, owned the colonies of East New Jersey, West New Jersey, and the extensive new territory on the west bank of the upper Delaware, known as Pennsylvania, granted by King Charles II to William Penn in March 1681. However, with Quakers already settled in West New Jersey and prepared to pour into Pennsylvania, East New Jersey was not a likely field for Quaker settlement. There were Quaker groups at Shrewsbury and Middletown, but most other Jersey towns were ardently Puritan. With the English Quakers immigrating to Pennsylvania and West New Jersey, the leading role in East New Jersey was taken by the Scots among the proprietors, particularly by young Robert Barclay and his prominent non-Quaker relatives, the arch-royalist James Drummond, Earl of Percy, and his brother John Drummond, the Viscount Melfort. An eminent Quaker, Barclay was a close friend of the Duke of York and was appointed governor of East New Jersey in the fall of 1682. Barclay immediately began to organize Scottish settlements in East New Jersey and to remodel the government of the colony. Many leading Scots were induced to buy fractional proprietorships in the colony. Eventually, Scots formed a majority of the proprietary ownership. The proprietors appointed the prominent English Quaker lawyer, Thomas Rudyard, one of the proprietors and a close friend of Penn, to be resident deputy governor of East New Jersey. Rudyard arrived in Jersey to take office in November of 1682. The proprietors instructed Rudyard to convey to the Jersey citizens the welcome news of the confirming of their rights granted to them by the concessions of 1665. The proprietors adopted the fundamental constitutions, a highly complex and overblown constitution for the colony, which would have granted great powers to themselves, voting by proxy in the East New Jersey Council. But the fundamental constitutions was never put into effect, 
not only because it was rejected by the assembly, but also because it was even turned down by the deputy governor and his council. The assembly, called into being again, met frequently during Governor Rudyard's rule in 1683. All sides were determined to be conciliatory and to undo the influence of the despotic Carteret clique. As a result, the court proceedings since late 1681 were voided, and the leaders of the Carteret clique, Robert Vickers, who had been secretary of the colony, Henry Greenland, Samuel Edsel, and Robert Vauquellen, former surveyor general, were debarred from all public office. Edward Slater now took the opportunity to sue Vickers for trespass, false arrest, and imprisonment. He collected 45 pounds in damages. Vickers was also convicted of keeping fraudulent records and was fined and imprisoned until payment of the fine. But despite the harmony of council and assembly in ridding the colony of the influence of the Carteret clique, divisions between deputies and ruling council again emerged and deepened during 1683. The deputies urged the right of each town to adopt local ordinances without being subject to veto by the governor and council and the similar right to impose local taxes. Furthermore, Middletown and Shrewsbury again raised the question of the old Nichols patents and claimed that by these they were exempt from paying quit rents to the new proprietors. Rudyard and the council rejected these claims and considerable friction developed over them. The towns and the deputies also vainly objected to the continuation of the compulsory militia a provision of the Declaration of 1672. In each case, as before, the deputies assumed the role of libertarian opposition to the existing regime. However, the Assembly did create a regular judicial system. The law code continued the Puritan outlawing of such deviations as stage plays, games, dances, drunkenness, and profaning the Sabbath. Here, the Anglican Council played a more liberal role than did the Puritan deputies. The Council reduced the penalty for not attending church services. The Council also declared itself for liberty of conscience and against compulsory worship. By the end of 1683, Governor Rudyard had incurred the displeasure of the proprietors, largely because Rudyard and the Council, eager to attract settlers to East New Jersey, failed to adhere to the clause in the concessions, reserving one-seventh of the lands to the proprietors. Samuel Groom, one of the Quaker proprietors, had been sent out with Rudyard to serve under him as surveyor general of the colony. Groom now insisted on the land reservation and was quickly dismissed by Rudyard. Rudyard's firing of Groom led to his own dismissal and replacement toward the end of 1683, by the Quaker, Gawain Larry, lately become one of the proprietors. By the end of 1684, enough of the proprietors, particularly the Scots, had immigrated to East New Jersey that the governing proprietor's interest in the colony, especially in land matters, was transferred to the 14 resident proprietors, forming the Board of Proprietors of East New Jersey. 
The board was empowered to deal with all matters concerning proprietary land, land claims, collecting quit rents, boundaries, and so forth. The resident proprietors ratified the laws of the Rudyard Assembly, but added what the Assembly had refused to pass, exemption of the pacifist Quakers from military service. The biggest problem of the Larry administration was an attempt to collect feudal quit-rents from the settlers in behalf of the proprietors. Larry was originally instructed by the impatient proprietors to collect the quit-rents. In late 1684, the proprietors instructed Larry and the resident proprietors to make an end of all controversies over land titles and quit-rents. Specifically, they arrogantly declared their absolute refusal to recognize any of the old Nichols patents or to commute any of their quit-rents, even including the arrears. Wrangling between the Larry administration and the various towns lasted a year and a half, so that no further assembly was convened until the spring of 1686. In 1684, all East New Jersey towns except Bergen were still claiming exemption from all quitrents on the ground that their old Nichols land patents or Indian purchases were superior to the proprietary claim. Moreover, many settlers avoided payment of quitrents by not officially patenting their lands. The old Navsink towns of Middletown and Shrewsbury also claimed the full right to make their own laws and elect their officers under the Nichols patents, and the Nichols promulgated Duke's laws, but now forgotten by the East New Jersey governors. Over against this permanent state of quasi-rebellion, Larry was supposed to persuade the six towns of the colony that the Nichols patents or Indian lands or governmental patents were invalid and that all landowners must pay the quit-rents due since their inception in 1670. The new proprietary program of strict enforcement of quit-rents was bound to create fierce opposition in the colony. The first crackdown was imposed in late 1684 on John Barry of Bergen, who was a revered old settler, an agent of William Penn in East Jersey, a counselor, and a former deputy governor. Barry was opposed to enforcing quit-rents and had never paid any due on his own extensive lands. He countered by dramatically challenging the validity of the Court of Common Right, the new Supreme Court of the colony, founded during the Rudyard regime. The court fined Barry for contempt, and Barry's refusal to pay finally caused his imprisonment in early 1685. By now, Barry had become the leader of the colony's resistance to quit-rents, and the outcome of the Barry case would greatly influence the path of opposition. The Board of Proprietors, in one of its first acts, backed up Larry, determined on no abatement of quit-rents, and took up the prosecution of Barry. Barry finally yielded. However, when the Board commuted his back quit-rents, of over 116 pounds to 70 pounds. During this time, negotiations began with the Navsink towns of Middletown and Shrewsbury. The men of these towns, headed by the Quaker Richard Hartshorn, 
steadfastly refused to pay quit rents, and Laurie and the board of proprietors began to seize the property of the resistors. This forced the Napsink towns to yield by mid-1685. No agreement, however, was concluded with Piscataway, Newark, or Elizabethtown, although some individual owners in the last town took out their patents to land titles, thus following the lead of Napsink. On the other hand, Woodbridge surrendered to the proprietary in the spring, following the lead of former provincial treasurer Samuel Moore, who capitulated after having vowed to pay no quit rents whatever. Larry and the council, finally in April 1686, called the assembly into session to demand an increase in taxes, largely for the expenses of the secretary and the council. The deputies incisively replied that they saw no reason why the people should be forced to pay for the expenses of officers whom they had no power to select. In the fall of 1686, Governor Larry was removed, the proprietors being disgruntled with what they believed to be Larry's as well as Rudyard's before him, lack of zeal in reserving land to the proprietors. Larry had also shown a lack of interest in obtaining a high price in the sale of land to the settlers. The proprietors censured Larry's granting himself a large tract of unused land at a cheap price, and his failure to push for approval of the fundamental constitutions. Larry was succeeded as governor by the Scot, Neil Campbell. In the fall meeting of the assembly, Lord Campbell tried once again to insist that it increase taxes. Speaker Richard Hartshorn defiantly spoke for the deputies when he bluntly declared that the people were not willing to maintain a government against themselves. Hence, no Revenue Act was passed. At the end of the year, Campbell returned to Scotland. He nominated the Scottish merchant and proprietor, Andrew Hamilton, as deputy governor. The failure of New York's attempt to assume power over East Jersey created a gaping hole in New York's attempted port monopoly. Smuggling was also rampant in East Jersey, and New Yorkers kept agitating for forcible annexation of that colony. The merchants desired to secure their monopoly, and the New York farmers and rural elements were envious of Jersey's freedom of trade. These grievances culminated in 1678, when a royal order made Perth Amboy, the newly built capital of East Jersey, an approved port of entry, an act which accelerated the migration of merchants and other citizens from New York to New Jersey. Volume 1, Chapter 54, The Development of West New Jersey Despite the Quaker control of East New Jersey from 1682 on, and the eager plans of Robert Barclay, that colony was never in any sense a Quaker settlement. The preponderance of Scots that emigrated there in the 1680s were Presbyterians fleeing from persecution rather than Quakers. The same was not true, however, of West New Jersey. 
West New Jersey was far more sparsely populated in the 1670s than its sister colony. There were no previously existing Puritan settlements, as in East New Jersey. We have seen that John Fenwick, a part proprietor of West New Jersey, founded the settlement of Salem and began to act as the virtual dictator and feudal owner of the colony. Fenwick was arrested in late 1676 for usurping the government of the colony and was convicted and fined in New York. At this time, the joint proprietors of West New Jersey, all Quakers, were Edward Billinge, William Penn, Gawain Larry, and Nicholas Lucas, and Fenwick's small share was transferred to two of his creditors. In March 1677, the proprietors issued the Concessions and Agreements, a document written largely by Edward Billinge, who was assisted by William Penn. It was signed by all the proprietors and freeholders of the colony. The Concessions and Agreements established a frame of government for West New Jersey. This was a highly liberal document, especially for a proprietary decree, that guaranteed no taxation save by consent of the people. We put the power in the people. A representative assembly, trial by jury, full religious liberty, no persons to be called into question or molested for conscience under any pretext whatever, and no imprisonment for debt. Penn in 1675 had urged the liberal program of civil freedom, liberty of conscience, and trial by jury. But the veteran libertarian here was Edward Billinge. In 1659, Billinge, in a might of affection, had called for, among other liberal demands, freedom for all Christians, no coercion in religious matters, no imprisonment for debt or execution for theft. Billinge's views were in turn deeply influenced by the libertarian leveler movement, which had earlier been prominent during England's Civil War. Another remarkable feature of the concessions and agreements was that, in keeping with the levelers and Billinge's hostility to feudalism, it reserved virtually no governmental powers to the proprietors. This was a refreshing contrast to the usual practice of grabbing as much power as was feasible. The West New Jersey Assembly was to be elected by all freeholders by the unusual institution of secret ballot and was to be empowered to create courts and levy taxes. All legislation required a two-thirds vote of the Assembly, thus assuring a greater consensus for legislation than under mere majority rule. Furthermore, the colony was to be fully self-governing, with all executive power in the hands of ten commissioners appointed by the assembly. Judges and constables were to be elected by popular vote rather than appointed. There were other unusually libertarian features of this constitution. Except for treason, felony, and murder, the plaintiff had full power to forgive, pardon, or remit punishment thus placing the decision to prosecute and punish for a crime in the hands of the original victim rather than in the remotely concerned government. Punishment for theft did not 
consist in paying a supposed debt to a mythical society by languishing unproductively in prison at taxpayers' expense. Instead, it consisted in making restitution to the victim for the crime and in working off this debt to the specific injured party. Furthermore, the beginnings of excellent long-standing white Indian relations in the colony were assured by the provision that any Indian claim of injury would go to a jury of six whites and six Indians. In keeping with the old leveler opposition to feudalism, there was no provision for reserving land to proprietors. The shares of the proprietary were widened to a hundred, and the lands offered for sale. A headright system for wide distribution of land was instituted to induce settlement, with 70 acres granted to the first settler, plus an extra 50 to 70 acres for each servant brought over. Later settlers were to receive 40 acres and 20 to 30 for each servant. Fortunately, there were few indentured servants in the colony, and therefore the land distribution was closer than usual to libertarian homestead allocation of new lands to first settlers. The unit farm was generally of medium size. The lands divided among the proprietors, however, were sold to speculators and therefore remained in large units until sold by them to the actual settlers. This transfer of land to the settlers was fortunately rapid, however, as the proprietors and speculators, eager for quick returns, subdivided the land into small 100 to 200 acre plots to ensure rapid sale. Another concession to feudalism and land monopoly was the requirement of a quit rent, ranging from a half penny to one penny per acre. The proprietors quickly organized a Quaker settlement in 1677 at Burlington in West New Jersey. However, self-government under the concessions and agreements was not to be established readily. Governor Andros of New York, who had arrested Fenwick for assuming governmental powers in West New Jersey, now asserted his right to govern the territory from his Newcastle bailiwick, and to subject it to Newcastle constables and courts. Furthermore, Andros insisted that all ships trading with West New Jersey had to pay the New York customs levy at Newcastle. West New Jersey's protest against this levy were to no avail. Andros did benefit the West New Jersey citizens, however, by remitting quit rents for three years to encourage settlement. But even as Governor Andros was imposing his rule over West New Jersey, John Fenwick in 1678 began to make trouble again. For his own purposes, he protested Andros's rule and grandiosely threatened to dispossess any West New Jerseyan paying attacks to Newcastle and Andros. By 1683, the rather remote Fenwick threat to the colony was ended as his proprietary shares were deeded to William Penn. As noted in late 1680, the Duke of York, beset by political troubles at home, ended the Andros threat to the Jerseys by recalling the New York governor and positively reaffirming the proprietary rule of the East and West Jersey. For West Jersey, this confirmation, of course, included the right to trade without paying the hated customs duties to Newcastle. 
The Duke also was influenced in his decision by the desire at this time to placate powerful friends like William Penn. Despite Andros's rule, the West Jersey Quakers had already been able to rule themselves in remarkably libertarian ways. For example, the settlers found that they had little need for courts. The Quakers settled their disputes out of court, voluntarily, through informal mediators. This simple, direct, peaceful, rapid, highly efficient, and purely voluntary method of settling disputes was embodied in the phrase Jersey Justice, which stemmed from Thomas Olive's practice of mediating disputes while plowing in the fields. Thus, in the entire year of 1680, there were only two or three court actions in the whole colony. The people of West New Jersey were not, however, destined to enjoy the rights and liberties of the concessions and agreements unmolested or undiluted, for in confirming the proprietary rule of West New Jersey, the Duke of York took it in his head to grant the sole right of government in the colony to Edward Billinge, who thus became by far the most important proprietor. Alas, the behavior of Edward Billinge is yet another illustration of the heady wine of power corrupting the principles of liberty. For no sooner did Billinge obtain the sole right to govern than he brazenly proclaimed himself governor of West New Jersey, thus repudiating the essence of his own libertarian concessions. Billinge appointed Samuel Jennings as deputy governor. Jennings would be his resident agent. Thus, when the Democratic General Assembly of West New Jersey first met in late 1681, a cloud hung over it. The promise of self-government was now much diluted by a proprietary governor. Elected Speaker of the Assembly was the highly popular Thomas Olive. Girded for action, the Assembly induced Jennings to agree to ten fundamental propositions, which in essence reconfirmed the rights and liberties of the beloved concessions and agreements. The propositions included these guarantees, yearly assemblies, no laws instituted by the deputy governor alone, no dissolution of the assembly by the governor, the sole right of the assembly to raise taxes and armies and to declare war, election of all public officers by the assembly for one year rather than appointment by the governor, all taxes to last for only one year, and religious freedom for all. Even those principles of criminal law emphasizing restitution to the victim of theft were reinstituted. And indicative of the liberalism of Jennings and Billinge, Jennings agreed to these provisions without consulting the governor. With Jennings and the assembly working harmoniously, no feudal manors were erected in West New Jersey. A 500-acre maximum of land grants discouraged the arbitrary accumulation of large estates, and the competition for settlers led the government to make the quit-rents negligible. The consequence of West New Jersey land policy then was an approach toward the libertarian homesteading principle, with land being sold at the relatively cheap rate of 5 to 10 pounds per hundred acres. A struggle now ensued between the angered Edward Billinge, 
who refused to recognize the agreement, and the people of West New Jersey, led now by Samuel Jennings, who was in thorough accord with the liberties granted in the original concessions. Finally, in 1683, on hearing rumors that Billings was coming to Jersey to take the reins of command personally, West New Jersey revolted. The assembly elected Jennings as governor and elected a council to help him. The colony was now totally self-governing. The assembly then reproclaimed the original concessions as the colony's fundamental law with this addition. It provided for amendments to the concessions by a six-seventh vote of the assembly. No amendment was to be permitted to weaken liberty of conscience, procedural protections such as the laws of evidence in trials or guarantees of trial by jury. Billinge's reaction was to have his sole right to govern immediately reconfirmed by the crown and then to submit the dispute to a Quaker arbitration board of 14 who decided for Billinge on the peculiar ground that it was impossible to divide the right to govern into many parties. Billinge then appointed John Skeen as deputy governor. In late 1685, Skeen formally took over the government and fired most of the magistrates. The assembly, however, overwhelmingly rejected a new charter proposed by Billinge. By now, Edward Billinge was not only the sole governor, but also the largest proprietor of West New Jersey, holding 20 shares of the more than 100. During 1687, the resident proprietors of the colony, like their counterparts in East New Jersey, established a council of proprietors of West New Jersey to decide on use and disposal of proprietary lands. Before his death at the turn of 1687, Billinge, sold all of his rights to Dr. Daniel Cox, the English court physician and non-Quaker who announced his repudiation of the concessions. Volume 1, Chapter 55, The Holy Experiment, The Founding of Pennsylvania, 1681 through 1690. The example of West Jersey taught William Penn two lessons. It was possible, given sufficient territory, to found a large Quaker settlement in America, and it was best to secure a charter for such a colony directly from the king. In the vast stretches of America, Penn envisaged a truly Quaker colony, a holy experiment that an example may be set up to the nations. In his quest for such a charter, Penn was aided by the fact that the crown had owed his father, Admiral Sir William Penn, the huge sum of 16,000 pounds for loans and back salary. In March 1681, the king agreed to grant young William, the admiral's heir, proprietary ownership of the lands west of the Delaware River and north of the Maryland border, in exchange for canceling the old debt. The land was to be called Pennsylvania. Penn was greatly aided in securing the charter by his friendship with the king and other high officials of the court. The proprietary charter was not quite 
As absolute as the colonial charters granted earlier in the century, the proprietor could rule only with the advice and consent of an assembly of freemen, a provision quite satisfactory to Penn. The Privy Council could veto Pennsylvania's actions, and the Crown, of course, could hear appeals from litigation in the colony. The Navigation Acts had to be enforced, and there was an ambiguous provision implying that England could impose taxes in Pennsylvania. As soon as Penn heard news of the charter, he dispatched his cousin, William Markham, to be deputy governor of Pennsylvania. The latter informed the 500 or so Swedish and Dutch residents on the west bank of the Delaware of the new charter. In the fall, Markham was succeeded by four commissioners, and they were succeeded by Thomas Holm as deputy governor in early 1682. In May, William Penn made the frame of government the constitution for the colony. The frame was amended and streamlined and became the second frame of 1683, also called the Charter of Liberties. The frame provided first for full religious freedom for all theists. No compulsory religion was to be enforced. The Quaker ideal of religious liberty was put into practice. Only Christians, however, were to be eligible for public office. Later, at the insistence of the crown, Catholics were barred from official post in the colony. The government, as instituted by the frame, comprised a governor, the proprietor, an elected council, which performed executive and supreme judicial functions, and an assembly, elected by the freeholders. Justices of lower courts were appointed by the governor, but while the assembly, like those in other colonies, had the only power to levy taxes, its powers were more restricted than those of assemblies elsewhere. Only the council could initiate laws, and the assembly was confined to ratifying or vetoing the council's proposals. William Penn himself arrived in America in the fall of 1682 to institute the new colony. He announced that the Duke's laws would be temporarily in force and then called an assembly for December. The assembly included representatives not only of three counties of Pennsylvania, but also of the three lower counties of Delaware. For Delaware, or Newcastle and the lower counties on the west bank of Delaware Bay, had been secured from the Duke of York in August. While Penn's legal title to exercising governmental functions over Delaware was dubious, he pursued it boldly. William Penn now owned the entire west bank of the Delaware River. The assembly confirmed the amended frame of government, including the Declaration of Religious Liberty, and this code of laws constituted the great law of Pennsylvania. The three lower Delaware counties were placed under one administration, separate from Pennsylvania proper. Penn was anxious to promote settlement as rapidly as possible, both for religious, a haven to Quakers, and for economic, income for himself, reasons. Penn advertised the virtues of the new colony far and wide throughout Europe, although he tried to impose quit rents and extracted selling prices for land, he disposed of the land at easy terms. The prices of land were cheap. 
Fifty acres were granted to each servant at the end of his term of service. Fifty acres also were given for each servant brought into the colony. Land sales were mainly in moderate-sized parcels. Penn soon found that at the rate of one shilling per hundred acres, quit rents were extremely difficult to collect from the settlers. Induced by religious liberty and relatively cheap land, settlers poured into Pennsylvania at a remarkably rapid rate, beginning in 1682. Most of the immigrants were Quakers. In addition to English Quakers came Welsh, Irish, and German Quakers. Penn laid out the capital, destined to become the great city of Philadelphia, and changed the name of the old Swedish settlement of Upland to Chester. The German Quakers, led by Francis Daniel Pastorius, founded Germantown. In addition to Quakers, there came other groups attracted by the promise of full religious liberty, German Lutherans, Catholics, Mennonites, and Huguenots. The growth of Pennsylvania was rapid. 3,000 immigrants arrived during this first year. By 1684, the population of Philadelphia was 2,500 and of Pennsylvania, 8,000. There were over 350 dwellings in Philadelphia by the end of 1683. By 1689, there were over 12,000 people in Pennsylvania. One of William Penn's most notable achievements was to set a remarkable pattern of peace and justice with the Indians. In November 1682, Penn concluded the first of several treaties of peace and friendship with the Delaware Indians at Shackamaxon, near Philadelphia. The Quaker achievement of maintaining peace with the Indians for well over half a century has been disparaged. Some have held that it applied to only the mild Delaware Indians who were perpetually cowed by the fierce but pro-English Iroquois. But this surely accounts for only part of the story, for the Quakers not only insisted on voluntary purchase of land from the Indians, they also treated the Indians as human beings, as deserving of respect and dignity as anyone else. Hence they deserved to be treated with honesty, friendliness, and even-handed justice. As a consequence, the Quakers were treated precisely the same way in return. No drop of Quaker blood was ever shed by the Indians. So strong was the mutual trust between the races that Quaker farmers unhesitatingly left their children in the care of the Indians. Originally, too, the law provided that whenever an Indian was involved in a trial, six whites and six Indians would constitute the jury. Voltaire, rapturous over the Quaker achievement, wittily and perceptively wrote that the Shackamaxon Treaty was the only treaty between Indians and Christians that was never sworn to and that was never broken. Voltaire went on to say that for the Indians it was truly a new sight to see a sovereign, William Penn, to whom everyone said, Thou and to whom one spoke with one's hat on one's head, a government without priest, a people without arms, citizens as equal to the magistrate, and neighbors without jealousy. Other features of the Assembly's early laws were puritanical acts, barring dramas, drunkenness, and so forth. 
More liberally, oaths were not required, and the death penalty applied only to the crime of murder. Punishment was considered for purposes of reform. Feudal primogeniture was abolished. To make justice more efficient and informal, the government undertook to appoint three arbitrators in every precinct to hand down decisions in disputes. The Quakers, however, unsatisfactorily evaded the problem of what to do about a military force. So as not to violate Quaker principle against bearing arms, the Friends refused to serve in the militia, but they still maintained a militia in the province, and non-Quaker officials were appointed in command. But surely, if armies are evil, then voting for taxes and for laws in support of the evil is serving that evil and therefore not to be condoned. On the question of free speech for criticizing government, laws were, unfortunately, passed prohibiting the writing or uttering of anything malicious, of anything stirring up dislike of the governor, or of anything tending to subvert the government. The tax burden was extremely light in Pennsylvania. The only tax laws were enacted in 1683. These placed a small duty on liquor and cider, a general duty on goods, and an export duty on hides and furs. But Governor Penn promptly set aside all taxes for a year to encourage settlers. In 1684, however, another bill to raise import and other duties for William Penn's personal use was tabled. Instead, a group of leaders of Pennsylvania pointed out that the colony would progress much faster if there were no taxes to cripple trade. These men heroically promised to raise 500 pounds for Penn as a gift if the tax bill were dropped. The tax bill was dropped, but not all the money raised. As might have been predicted, the first political conflict in Pennsylvania came as a protest against the curious provisions of the frame restricting the Assembly to ratifying bills initiated by the Council. In the spring of 1683, several Assemblymen urged that the Assembly be granted the power to initiate legislation. Several of Penn's devotees attacked the request as that which seemed to render him ingratitude for his goodness towards the people. The assembly balked, too, at granting the governor veto power over itself. There are indications that the non-Quaker elements in the assembly were particularly active in criticizing the great powers assumed by the governor and the council. One of the leaders of the incipient opposition to Penn was the non-Quaker Nicholas Moore, Speaker of the Assembly in 1684, and Anthony Weston, apparently a non-Quaker, was publicly whipped on three consecutive days for his presumption and contempt of this government and authority. Having founded the new colony and its government, and hearing of renewed persecution of Quakers at home, William Penn returned to England in the fall of 1684. He soon found his expectations of large proprietary profits from the vast royal grant to be in vain. For the people of the struggling young colony of Pennsylvania extended the principles of liberty far beyond what Penn was willing to allow. The free people of Pennsylvania 
would not vote for taxes and simply would not pay the quit rents to Penn as feudal overlord. As a result, Penn's deficits in ruling Pennsylvania were large and his fortune dwindled steadily. In late 1685, Penn ordered the officials to use force to protect the monopoly of lime production that he had granted himself in order to prevent others from opening lime quarries. As to quit rents, Penn, to encourage settlement, had granted a moratorium until 1685. The people insisted that payment be postponed another year, and Penn's threatened legal proceedings were without success. Penn was especially aggrieved that his agents in Pennsylvania failed to press his levies upon the people with sufficient zeal. Presumably, the free taxless air of Pennsylvania had contaminated them. As Penn complained in the fall of 1686, well, the great fault is that those who are there lose their authority one way or another in the spirits of the people, and then they can do little with their outward powers. After Penn returned to England in 1684, the council virtually succeeded him in governing the colony. The council assumed full executive powers, and since it was elected rather than appointed, this left Pennsylvania as a virtually self-governing colony. Though Thomas Lloyd, a Welsh Quaker, had by Penn been appointed as president of the council, the president had virtually no power and could make no decisions on his own. Because the council met very infrequently, and because no officials had any power to act in the interim, during these intervals Pennsylvania had almost no government at all, and seemed not to suffer from the experience. During the period from late 1684 to late 1688, there were no meetings of the council from the end of October 1684 to the end of March 1685, none from November 1686 to March 1687, and virtually none from May 1687 to late 1688. The councillors, for one thing, had little to do, and being private citizens rather than bureaucrats, and being unpaid as councillors, they had their own struggling businesses to attend to. There was no inclination under these conditions to dabble in political affairs, the laws had called for small payment to the councillors, but typically it was found to be almost impossible to extract these funds from the populace. If for most of 1684-88 there was no colony-wide government in existence, what of the local officials? Were they not around to provide that evidence of the state's continued existence, which so many people through the ages have deemed vital to man's very survival? But the answer is no. The lower courts met only a few days a year, and the county officials were, again, private citizens, who devoted very little time to upholding the law. No, the reality must be faced that the new, but rather large, colony of Pennsylvania lived for the greater part of four years in a de facto condition of individual anarchism, and seemed none the worse for the experience. 
Furthermore, the assembly passed no laws after 1686, as it was involved in a continual wrangle over attempts to increase its powers and to amend, rather than just reject, legislation. A bit of government came in 1685 in the person of William Dyer as collector of the king's customs. But despite the frantic urgings of William Penn for cooperation with Dyer, Pennsylvanians persisted in their de facto anarchism by blithely and regularly evading the royal navigation laws. William Penn had the strong and distinct impression that his holy experiment had slipped away from him, had taken a new and bewildering turn. Penn had launched a colony that he thought would be quietly subject to his dictates and yield him a handsome profit. By providing a prosperous haven of refuge for Quakers, he had expected in turn the rewards of wealth and power. Instead, he, he found himself without either. Unable to collect revenue from the free and independent-minded Pennsylvanians, he saw the colony slipping gracefully into outright anarchism, into a growing and flourishing land of no taxes and virtually no state. Penn frantically determined to force Pennsylvania back into the familiar mold of the old order. Accordingly, he appointed vice commissioners of state in February 1687 to act in the execution of laws, as if I myself were there present, reserving myself the confirming of what is done and my peculiar royalties and advantages. Another purpose of the appointments, he added, was that there may be a more constant residence of the honorary and governing part of the government for the keeping all things in good order. Penn appointed the five commissioners from the colony's leading citizens, Quakers and non-Quakers, and ordered them to enforce the laws. The colonists were evidently content in their anarchism and shrewdly engaged in nonviolent resistance against the commission. In fact, they scarcely paid any attention to the commission. A year passed before the commission was even mentioned in the minutes of the council. News about the commission was delayed until the summer of 1687, and protest against the plan poured into pen. The commissioners and the protesters, too, pretended that they had taken up their post as a continuing executive. Finally, however, Penn grew suspicious and asked why he had received no communication from the supposedly governing body. Unable to delay matters any longer, the reluctant commissioners of state took office in February 1688, a year after their appointment. Three and one-half years of substantive anarchism were over. The state was back in its heaven. Once more, all was right with the world. Typically, Penn urged the commissioners to conceal any differences they might have among themselves, so as to deceive and overawe the public. Show your virtues, but conceal your infirmities. This will make you awful and revered with ye people. He further urged them to enforce the king's duties and to levy taxes to support the government. The commissioners confined themselves to calling the assembly into session in the spring of 1688, 
and this time the assembly did pass some laws for the first time in three years. The two crucial bills presented by the commissioners and the council regulated the export of deerskins and, once again, levied customs duties on imports so as to obtain funds to finance the government. In short, imposed taxes on a taxless colony. After almost passing the tax bill, the assembly heroically defied the government once again and rejected the two bills. The state had reappeared in a flurry of activity in early 1688, but was found wanting, and the colony, still taxless, quickly lapsed back into a state of anarchism. The commissioners somehow failed to meet, and the council met only once more between the spring meeting and December. Pennsylvania was once again content with a supposedly dreadful and impossible state of affairs. And when this idol came to an end in December 1688 with the arrival of a new deputy governor appointed by Penn, the deputy governor had difficulty finding the officers of the government. He found the council room deserted and covered with dust and scattered papers. The wheels of government had nearly stopped turning. William Penn, seeing that the Pennsylvanians had happily lapsed into an anarchism that precluded taxes, quit rents, and political power for himself, decided to appoint a deputy governor. But the people of Pennsylvania, having tasted the sweets of pure liberty, were almost unanimously reluctant to relinquish that liberty. We have observed that the commissioners of state had failed to assume their post and had virtually failed to function after it was presumed they accepted. No one wanted to rule others. For this reason, Thomas Lloyd, the president of the council, refused appointment as deputy governor. At this point, Penn concluded that he could not induce the Quakers of Pennsylvania to institute a state, and so he turned to a tough non-Quaker, an old Puritan soldier, and a non-Pennsylvanian, John Blackwell. Once a state has completely withered away, it is an extremely difficult task to recreate it, as Blackwell quickly discovered. If Blackwell had been under any illusions that the Quakers were meek and passive people, he was in for a rude surprise. He was to find very quickly that devotion to peace, to liberty, and to individualism in no sense implies passive resignation to tyranny. Quite the contrary. In announcing Blackwell's appointment in September 1688, Penn made it clear that his primary task was to collect Penn's quit-rents and secondarily to reestablish a government. As Penn instructed Blackwell, rule the meek meekly, and those that will not be ruled, rule with authority. John Blackwell's initial reception as deputy governor was an omen of things to come. Sending word ahead for someone to meet him upon his arrival in New York, he landed there only to find no one to receive him. After waiting in vain for three days, Blackwell went alone to New Jersey. When he arrived at Philadelphia on December 17, he found no escort, 
no parade, no reception committee. We have mentioned that Blackwell couldn't find the council or any other government officials, and this was after he had ordered the council to meet upon his arrival. One surly escort appeared, and he refused to speak to the new governor. And when Blackwell arrived at the empty council room, a group of boys from the neighborhood gathered around to hoot and jeer. The Quakers, led by Thomas Lloyd, now embarked on a shrewd and determined campaign of resistance to the imposition of a state. Thomas Lloyd, as keeper of the great seal, insisted that none of Blackwell's orders or commissions was valid unless stamped with the great seal. Lloyd, the keeper, refused to do the stamping. It is amusing to find Edward Channing and other thorough but not overly imaginative historians deeply puzzled by this resistance. This portion of Pennsylvania history is unusually difficult to understand. We find, for instance, so strong and intelligent a man as Thomas Lloyd declining to obey what appeared to be reasonable and legal direction on the part of the proprietor. As keeper of the great seal of the province, Lloyd refused point-blank to affix that emblem of authenticity to commissions which Blackwell presented to him. What Channing failed to understand was that Pennsylvanians were engaged in a true revolutionary situation, that they were all fiercely determined to thwart the reimposition of a burdensome state upon their flourishing, stateless society. That is why even the most reasonable and legal orders were disobeyed, for Pennsylvanians had for some years been living in a world where no one was giving orders to anyone else. Lloyd persistently refused to hand over the great seal or to stamp any of Blackwell's documents or appointments with it. Furthermore, David Lloyd, clerk of the court and a distant relative of Thomas, refused absolutely to turn over the documents of cases to Blackwell, even if the judges so ordered. For this act of defiance, Blackwell declared David Lloyd unfit to serve as court clerk and dismissed him. But Thomas Lloyd promptly reappointed David by virtue of his alleged power as keeper of the great seal. As a revolutionary situation grows and intensifies, unanimity can never prevail. The timid and the short-sighted began to betray the cause. Thus the council, frightened at the Lloyd's direct acts of rebellion, now sided with Blackwell. The pro-Blackwell clique was headed by Griffith Jones, who had consented to let Blackwell live at his home in Philadelphia. Jones warned that, It is the king's authority that is opposed and looks to me as if it were raising a force to rebel. Of the members of the council, only Arthur Cook remained loyal to the Lloyds and to the resistance movement. Of a dozen justices of the peace named by Blackwell, four bluntly refused to serve. When Blackwell found out the true state of affairs in Pennsylvania, His state-bound soul was understandably appalled. Here was a thriving trade based on continuing violations of the navigation laws. Here, above all, were no taxes, hence no funds to set up a government. As Bronner puts it, 
He, Blackwell, deplored the lack of public funds in the colony, which made it impossible to hire a messenger to call the council, a doorkeeper, and someone to search ships to enforce the laws of England. He believed that some means should be found to collect taxes for the operation of the government. His general view, as he wrote to Penn, was the familiar statist cry that the colonists were suffering from excessive liberty. They had eaten more of the honey of your concessions than their stomachs can bear. Blackwell managed to force the council to meet every week during the first months of 1689, but his suggestion that every county be forced to maintain a permanent councillor in Philadelphia was protested by the council. Arthur Cook led the successful resistance, maintaining that the people were not able to bear the charge of constant attendance. As Blackwell continued to denounce the council and Pennsylvania as a whole before his accession, Pennsylvanian opposition to his call for statism was further intensified. On the council, Arthur Cook was joined in the intransigent camp by Samuel Richardson, who launched the cry that Penn had no power to name a deputy governor. For this open defiance, Richardson was ejected from the council. The conflict of views continued to polarize Blackwell and the Pennsylvanians. Finally, the climax came on April 2, 1689, when Blackwell introduced proceedings for the impeachment of Thomas Lloyd, charging him with 11 high crimes and misdemeanors. Blackwell had also refused to seat Lloyd when the latter was elected councillor from Bucks County. In his impeachment speech, Blackwell trumpeted to his stunned listeners that Penn's and therefore his own powers over the colony were absolute. Penn was a feudal lord who could create manorial courts. Furthermore, Penn could not transfer his royally delegated powers to the people, but only to a deputy such as himself. The council, according to Blackwell's theory, existed in no sense to represent the people, but to be an instrument for William Penn's will. Blackwell concluded this harangue by threatening to unsheath and wield his sword against his insolent and unruly opponents. Blackwell's proclamation of absolute rule now truly polarized the conflict. The choice was now narrowed. The old anarchism or the absolute rule by Blackwell Given this confrontation, those wavering had little choice but to give Thomas Lloyd their full support. Blackwell now summarily dismissed from the council Thomas Lloyd, Samuel Richardson, and John Eckley. On April 9, while the council, the supreme judicial arm of the colony, was debating the charge against Lloyd, Blackwell threatened to remove Joseph Groden. At this point, the council rebelled and demanded the right to approve its own members. Refusing to meet further without its duly elected members, the council was then dissolved by Blackwell. With the council homeward bound, the disheartened Blackwell sent his resignation to Penn, while seven councillors bitterly protested to Penn against his deputies' attempt to deprive them of their liberties. As for Blackwell, he believed the Quakers to be those agents of the devil foretold in the New Testament who despised dominion 
and speak evil of dignities. From this point on, the decision was in the hands of Governor Penn, and Penn decided in favor of the Quakers and against Blackwell. For the rest of the year, Blackwell continued formally in office, but lost all concern for making changes or exerting his rule. From April 1689 until early 1690, he was waiting out his term. Blackwell wrote to Penn that, I now only wait for the hour of my deliverance. He summed up his grievance against the Quakers. These people have not the principles of government amongst them, nor will be informed. Meanwhile, the assembly headed by Arthur Cook met in May and fell apart on the issue of protesting the arrest of one of its members. Between May and the end of the year, the council met only twice. Pennsylvania was rapidly slipping back toward its previous state of anarchism. William Penn enlivened this trend by deciding to reestablish the old system with the council as a whole, his deputy governor. Writing to the leading Quakers of Pennsylvania, Penn apologized for his mistake in appointing Blackwell, but wistfully reminded them that he had done so because no friend would undertake the governor's place. Now he told them, I have thought fit to throw all into your hands, that you may all see the confidence I have in you. With Blackwell out of office, the council, back in control, resumed its somnolent ways. Again headed by Thomas Lloyd, it met rarely, did virtually nothing, and told William Penn even less. Anarchism had returned in triumph to Pennsylvania, and when Secretary William Markham, who had been one of the hated Blackwell clique, submitted a petition for levying taxes to provide some financial help for William Penn, the council completely ignored the request. Volume 1, Chapter 56, The Dominion of New England When Sir Edmund Andros arrived at Boston at the end of December 1686 to take up his post as Governor-General of the Dominion of New England, the history of all the northern colonies entered a new and significant phase. James II could not have picked a better instrument for the fulfillment of his grand design to smash all self-government, all local government in the northern colonies, and to inflict on them an absolute centralized despotism under the English crown. So congenial was this task to him that in America the name Andros was for generations afterward synonymous with tyranny. Andros lost no time in forcefully impressing upon the people of Massachusetts that the old easy days of the Dudley Feast of Privilege were over. Arriving with two companies of English soldiers to intimidate the colony, one of Andros's first acts was to force South Church, one of the Puritan churches of Boston, to permit Anglicans to hold services there. Furthermore, Andrus's frankly proclaimed goal was to force the Puritan community of the colony to pay for the establishment of an Anglican church. Andros speedily imposed despotic rule upon Dominion territory. He ran roughshod 
over the council, consulting only a few of his favorites and accumulating full power in his own hands. Edward Randolph stayed on as faithful servitor and collector of customs, but he had no share in Andrus's decisions. He was, in fact, persuaded to rent the office of secretary to a friend of Andrus's, John West, who proceeded to mulct the public by greatly increasing his fees to the citizenry. Moreover, all documents, deeds, wills, mortgages, and so forth, now had to be registered centrally with West and for heavy fees. All government officials, furthermore, were now to hold their appointments solely from the crown. Andros's tyrannical reign placed the Massachusetts economy in a crippling vice. For one thing, Andros grievously crippled the economy by strictly enforcing the Navigation Acts. Two years after Andros's arrival, Randolph admitted, This country is poor. The exact execution of the acts of trade hath much impoverished them, the colonist. The economic depression was aggravated by heavy new duties imposed by James II on tobacco and sugar. These injured New England's trade with the West Indies and the southern colonies. Depression of trade under the Dominion was so severe that one of New England's leading merchants, Richard Wharton, left such a debt-burdened estate when he died in early 1689 that his daughters had to open a shop to make a living. But just when Andros's crackdown greatly crippled the Massachusetts economy, his steeply increased expenditures burdened it even further and aggravated the Depression. In short, just at the time when the ability to pay taxes in Massachusetts was sharply lowered, more taxes were imposed upon it. Ironically, part of the increased burden of government was to pay for enforcement of the very laws that were crippling the economy. One of the biggest factors in the increased governmental burden was Andros's own salary of 1,200 pounds, an item larger than the entire appropriation for the Dudley government during 1686. In addition, Andros built expensive and useless forts at the seaports, the largest single financial drain was the maintenance of a standard army of two companies of infantry. The funds of the Dudley government were limited by its unwillingness to impose further taxes without an assembly, but Andros had no such scruples. Andros decreed raises in taxes, including a doubled excise on liquor, increased import duties, and a direct tax on land. Total estimated revenue in the Dominion rose over 50%, from 2,500 to 3,800 pounds per annum. Furthermore, Andros barred the towns from levying their own taxes, thus reducing them to subservient instruments of the central government. To the citizens of Massachusetts, one of Andros's most frightening and threatening actions was ordering the reconfirmation of all private land titles for high fees for this coerced service. The reconfirmation meant going on the land rolls for payment of a high quit rent of two shillings 
sixpence per hundred acres on all the lands. Furthermore, most land titles had been obtained from town proprietors, and the New Englanders feared that Andros would not recognize town titles as legal, since the general courts had not been authorized in their charters to incorporate towns. Horror at the Andros land policy united diverse groups in opposition to his regime. Only about 200 persons in the Dominion actually applied for land titles during Andros's administration, and these were largely government favorites or crown officers. The general indignation at the quit rents was voiced by Reverend Increase Mather, who charged that the Massachusetts settlements were houses which their own hands have built and the lands which at vast charges in subduing a wilderness they have for many years had as rightful possession of as ever any people in the world have or can have. Another Massachusetts citizen denounced the parcel of strangers who proposed to come in and seize what the people and their fathers before them had labored for. In the course of opposing the new aggressive theory of the crown, the Massachusetts Puritans developed a radically libertarian theory of land titles. In a public confrontation with Governor Andros, Reverend John Higginson of Salem declared that the right to soil came not from the crown, but from God, and God gave the land to the people who actually occupied it and brought it into use. That is, either the Indians from whom lands could be bought by voluntary purchase or the settlers. The crown, in truth, had no right to ownership of the new lands. The idea that Christians had an automatic right to the land of heathens, added Higginson, was a popish principle and hence abhorrent. Governor Andros's reply was characteristic, either you are subjects or you are rebels. In mid-1688, Andros moved to force land applications by proceeding with a test case of eviction against the eminent old Puritan Samuel Sewell, who joined in Wharton's protest and sailed to England to complain to the crown. He also proceeded against Samuel Shrimpton, an Anglican merchant who also decided to appeal to the king. Symbolic of the drawing together of diverse groups against the Andros tyranny was the uniting of Sewell, Shrimpton, and Reverend Cotton Mather to plan strategy against the regime. In addition, Andros engaged in enough land-grabbing for his favorites to anger the people even more. He seized 150 acres of common pasture land in Charlestown, owned jointly by James Russell and others, and gave the land to a favorite, Colonel Charles Lidget, a merchant who supplied mast to the Royal Navy. Russell, vehemently protesting this legalized theft, was punished by a writ of intrusion to eject him from his own farm. When the outraged citizens of Charlestown pulled up Lidget's stakes on the pasture land, they were imprisoned and fined. Common pasture land of several other towns, including Lynn and Cambridge, was forcibly enclosed by Andros's edict and given to several of his friends.
Edward Randolph, characteristically, attempted to join in the plunder and to grab several tracts of land. One such tract was 500 acres of common pasture at Lynn, Massachusetts. But after vigorous protest by the citizens of Lynn, a happy solution was found. The common land was divided among several inhabitants of Lynn on a quit-rent basis. Randolph also tried to seize land tracts near Cambridge and Watertown and in Rhode Island. Other council members able to grab land for themselves were Jonathan Ting and John Usher, who obtained an island in Casco Bay. In Maine, disputes over land claims and titles were referred to Edward Ting and Sylvanus Davis for settlement, both of whom were personally interested in land claims there. In New Hampshire, there rose bitter resistance against Andros's enforcement of court judgments to eject settlers from their lands in order to satisfy the property claims of Robert Mason. The citizens of New Hampshire petitioned Andros to stop these confiscations, for they were likely to be sore oppressed if not wholly ruined. Happily, however, the king ended the grievance by purchasing Mason's proprietary and quit-rent claims in exchange for an annual pension. Moreover, the king instructed Andros to reconfirm all existing land titles in New Hampshire. The Mason threat to the people of New Hampshire was again ended. Andros's regime speedily alienated not only the Puritans but also the merchants, including the former opportunist supporters of Dudley. On the one hand, Andros frightened the landowners by ordering reconfirmation of all land titles and the imposition of quit rents. On the other, the merchants were alienated by strict enforcement of the Navigation Acts. The pet schemes for privileges of Dudley and the other councillors were discarded, and even the bureaucratic plums went not to the Massachusetts opportunist, but to such old New York cronies of Andros as John West and John Palmer. Andros not only was making himself the most hated man in years, but was cutting himself off from basis of support in the colony. Of course, the naked force of the crown and its bayonets remained to him, as did the costly English troops, whom the Massachusetts citizens were forced to support for their own suppression. In addition, he angered the people by centralizing the town militia under his direct command. One of Andrus's better acts served especially to alienate the opportunist clique. As governor of the Dominion, Andros began as ruler of the main towns, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and King's Province, the Narragansett country. Surveying the situation, Andros decided that the powerful Atherton Company's claim to the Narragansett lands was arbitrary and unjust. He realized that the claim was gravely restricting settlement in these fertile lands and recommended to the Lords of Trade that all the claims of unimproved, unsettled land be vacated. This excellent recommendation frantically drove one of the proprietors, Richard Wharton, to London to press his claim. The sturdily independent citizens of Massachusetts did not let these hammer blows to liberty go by without vigorous protest. When Andros imposed his new taxes, he required all the towns to levy a compulsory assessment upon themselves for the required amount. 
Each town was ordered to choose a commissioner to assess and collect these taxes. Many towns steadfastly refused to make such appointments. Among the towns were those of Essex County, north of Boston, except Salem, Newbury, and Marblehead. Essex County resistance centered in the town of Ipswich. When Ipswich, in August 1687, received the government order to choose a commissioner to assess the taxes, the leaders of the town, headed by its young liberal Puritan minister, Reverend John Wise, and the town clerk, former deputy John Appleton, met and decided that it was not the town's duty anyway to assist that ill way of raising money without a general assembly. The government order was condemned as abridging their liberty as Englishmen. The next day, the Ipswich town meeting approved this view. It refused to elect a commissioner and forbade the selectmen from imposing any taxes. The bold example set by Ipswich was followed by other Essex towns. Rowley, Haverhill, and Salisbury refused to elect commissioners, and the commissioners of Bradford and Andover refused to perform their functions. For this resistance, Wise, Appleton, and four other leaders were imprisoned and tried before a judicial system thoroughly reconstituted by the Andros regime. The select men and commissioners of the other resisting towns were also arrested. In all, 28 leaders of Essex were indicted for refusing to pay their rates and making and publishing factious and seditious votes and writings against the same. The mass indictment cowed most of the prisoners into submission, and most of them made humble apology and were released on large bond to ensure good behavior. The six Ipswich leaders, however, remained adamant, the Reverend Mr. Wise asserting the privilege of Englishmen according to Magna Carta, and were subject to special trial. Instead of a trial before a jury at the place of the crime, the prisoners were dragged to Boston, and the jurors deliberately selected from among foreigners and non-freeholders of the colony. Constituting the special court were four leading officials in the Andros administration, Edward Randolph and three of the opportunists, Joseph Dudley, William Stratton, and John Usher, treasurer. Dudley had typically landed on his feet and had found himself appointed to the congenial new post of censor of the press. Nothing in the colony was publishable without his permission. The four judges gloried in their power at the trial. Dudley lorded it over Reverend Mr. Wise. Mr. Wise, you have no more privileges left you than not to be sold for slaves. To Wise's pleas for English liberty, Dudley sharply replied that the laws of England could not follow them to the ends of the earth. A contemporary wag aptly remarked that if the privileges of English law did not follow them to the colonies, apparently its penalties did. The convicted prisoners were imprisoned for almost a month and then heavily fined. Wise and Appleton were fined 50 pounds and placed under the enormous bond of a 1,000 pounds for a year's good behavior. Under the lash of the staggering sentences, the remaining resistance to the new taxes in the colony collapsed. 
The following year, Andros crippled local powers of resistance even further by prohibiting more than one town meeting a year. As the Andros tyranny continued, we have noted that various protesters sailed to England to seek redress, including Samuel Sewell and Richard Wharton. But the most powerful protester and agent of the Massachusetts people was the leading Puritan divine in the colony, the Reverend Increase Mather. Mather had been earlier denounced by Thomas Danforth in general court as a traitor to Massachusetts for his willingness to compromise with the crown. But Mather had now had enough and was ardently in favor of independence. In October 1687, Mather won the support of his church to go to England to plead New England's cause against Andros. Edward Randolph now moved quickly to prevent Mather from going to England, suing him on a trumped-up charge of defamation to keep him in the colony. Mather was acquitted at the trial, but Randolph soon fabricated another charge. Mather, however, hid from the subpoena server, was spirited out of Boston in disguise, and lay in a small boat to board a ship for London. Andros sent out two boats to stop Mather's escape, but the chase failed. The meaning of the Dominion of New England must not be confined to the internal despotism imposed on Massachusetts Bay, for the main point of the Dominion was to impose the same central and absolute rule over all the northern colonies. Under Andros, law was to be administered to the colonies as one unit. The colonies were to be centralized under one yoke that of the crown. The main towns were already a part of Massachusetts, and the Andrews tax, fee, and land policies were pursued with even more vigor in Maine, where resistance was so much weaker. New Hampshire had already been part of the Dominion during the Dudley regime, and after the Cranfield Troubles, potential resistance to the Andrews policy was exhausted. King's Province had also been part of the Dudley Domain, but, as noted, Andros ruled against the Atherton Company's claim to that territory. As soon as Andros arrived in Boston, he moved to seize Plymouth, Rhode Island, Cornwall, all of Maine east of the Kennebec, and Connecticut, and to place them alongside the other colonies under his Dominion rule. Rhode Island succumbed quickly and with surprising ease, and made no protest against the Andrews rule. What had happened to Rhode Island individualism and its spirit of independence? Two major reasons can be pleaded for this change in Rhode Island's spirit. First, all the old greats of the colony, the founding fathers of the first generation, Williams, Gorton, Coddington, Easton, and others, had recently died, and inferior men had replaced them. Second, the colony was charmed by Andros's siding with them and against the Atherton Company over the issue of the Narragansett lands. Plymouth surrendered equally quickly, but with much greater opposition in the colony. The Judas who delivered Plymouth was Nathaniel Clark, 
secretary of the colony. For his treachery, he received an appointment on the Council of the Dominion and from Andros a gift of the valuable Clark's Island in Plymouth Harbor. Rich in salt, pasturage, and timber, the island had been set aside by the Plymouth town government for support of its minister and the poor. The Reverend Ichabod Wiswall of Duxbury and Deacon John Founts, town clerk of Plymouth, were so incensed at this gift that they began to raise funds to carry the matter into the courts. Andros immediately had them arrested on the charge of levying taxes without his consent and forced them to stand trial in Boston. The sickly Wiswall almost died during the ordeal. There was also considerable opposition in Plymouth to the arbitrary increase in taxes by Andros. The town of Taunton refused to elect a commissioner, declaring that it did not feel free to raise money for the inhabitants without their own assent by an assembly. For daring to transmit this defiant resolution, the Taunton town clerk, Shadrach Wilbur, was imprisoned for three months by Andros and punished with a heavy fine. The town constables of Taunton were also arrested for neglect of duty, and one of the local justices was suspended for not arguing against the protest at the town meeting. Also annexed to the new dominion in early 1687 was Eastern Maine, or Cornwall, transferred from New York. While under New York, Thomas Dongan had sent two commissioners, John West and John Palmer, to manage its affairs. West and Palmer there pioneered in the Andros technique of forcing the inhabitants to buy new confirmations for their land titles at exorbitant fees. Now Andros declared that the old Dongan West Palmer confirmations were invalid and that the matter must begin anew. Connecticut, however, proved a far more difficult nut to crack. For one thing, Connecticut had bitter memories of Andros's attempted aggression against it during King Philip's War a dozen years before. It procrastinated for months. Its leaders, such as Secretary John Allen and Fitzjohn Winthrop, were eager to sell out to Andros. Winthrop even praised the Dominion as containing all things that will really conduce to the growth and prosperity of the people. But the general court stood firm and refused to surrender to Dominion rule. Finally, at the end of October 1687, after nearly a year had elapsed, Andros went to Hartford and simply seized the government. Fitzjohn Winthrop was well rewarded by being made Major General, the highest military office in New England, in charge of the militia of Connecticut, Rhode Island, and King's Province. In return, Winthrop played the sycophant to the uttermost, expressing his admiration for Andros's loving care over New England and for those designs your Excellency lays to settle a lasting happiness to the prosperity of this country. Andros also made certain to appoint new courts, militia, and customs officers in Connecticut. It should not be thought that his expansion of the area of dominion brought the incidental but important advantages of a unified trade area for New England. On the contrary, 
Andros soon outlawed all traveling merchants and peddlers, thus narrowly confining trade to each local town and area. In the area of religion, however, the creation of the dominion had willy-nilly a libertarian impact. The crown could not move toward the establishment of Anglicanism without disestablishing the Puritan church and providing religious liberty for non-Puritans. This problem was acute in Massachusetts, Plymouth, and Connecticut. Despite the great decline in Puritan fervor over the years, the theocracy still held sway. Especially was this true in Massachusetts, though even here it was now favored by only a minority of population of the colony and was increasingly challenged by merchants who were not church members. The Council of the Dominion, making laws for all New England, now had to decide whether to extend the Puritan establishment to the rest of New England, Rhode Island, and Cornwall, or to end it everywhere. The Council's Committee on Codification urged the former course, but the Anglicans and Quakers on the Council fought this bitterly. Walter Clark, a Quaker and former governor of Rhode Island, pointed out that since the Puritan ministers were just as much dissenters from the Church of England as the Quakers or any other sect, they should therefore depend on voluntary contributions in the same way as all the others. Those citizens who would not voluntarily support a Puritan minister, said Clark, should not be forced to pay against their will. The council defeated the Puritan attempts at expansion. The Puritan establishment lapsed, and religious liberty and separation of church and state won the day. This result was aided by news of King James's declaration of indulgence of April 4, 1687, which granted liberty of conscience to all Englishmen, including dissenters. The Quakers of Situate in Plymouth promptly tested the law by refusing to pay taxes for the Puritan ministry, standing on the Declaration of Indulgence. Andros and the Council granted the Quakers' request for return of their property, seized by the constables for non-payment. Thus, the Declaration of Indulgence and the refusal of Council to continue coerced support for the Puritans jointly brought disestablishment to New England. Since the network of government schools in Massachusetts was Puritan, the Council's decision not to continue the Puritan establishment had the corollary libertarian effect of dissolving the government schools. Thrown back on voluntary or market support, many of the schools that had been artificially extended by relying on compulsion now had to close. Randolph would have liked to replace them with Anglican public schools, but was thwarted by lack of funds. The crippling blow to the Puritan theocracy intensified the decline of Puritan zeal among the populace, and such ungodly customs as maypole dancing, stage plays, Sabbath breaking, and the drinking of alcohol spread more widely. By the end of 1687, Sir Edmund Andros, as head of the Dominion of New England, was the sole and absolute ruler 
of all of New England, from the towns of Maine to western Connecticut. But this was only the beginning of the expansion of the Dominion and of Andros's power. In the spring of 1688, Andros received instructions from King James II to incorporate the colonies of New York and the two New Jerseys into the Dominion. The king named Andros governor of the enlarged Dominion, with his headquarters still at Boston. He was, in addition, to appoint a deputy governor at New York to administer that colony and the Jerseys. The Dominion institutions, including the new taxes, quit rents, and press and book censorship, were now to be imposed on the expanded territory. During August, Andros traveled throughout New York and the Jerseys, incorporating these colonies into the giant Dominion of New England. Captain Francis Nicholson of Andros's foot guard was named deputy governor for New York and the Jerseys. Governor Dongan of New York was, of course, unhappy at being replaced. For the citizens of that colony, the sudden loss of their home rule and their annexation by the Dominion of New England were additional important straws to add to their accumulating list of grievances. At first, some New Yorkers were mollified, as the Long Island towns were at long last reunited with New England and the anti-Catholics were happy to see the departure of Dongan. But Andrus's tyrannical policy soon changed their attitudes, especially his action in seizing the bulk of New York's public records and carrying them off to Boston. Francis Nicholson protested this seizure and later was to note how fatal it hath been to this city and the province of New York for to be annexed to that of Boston, which, if it had continued, would have occasioned the total ruin of the inhabitants. Furthermore, the Dutch in New York were unhappy at being joined to their old enemy, New England. Nicholson, too, aroused the suspicions of the frenetic and was believed by many New Yorkers to be a crypto-Catholic. East Jersey and West Jersey were incorporated into the Dominion without much difficulty, although there was considerable protest in West New Jersey at Andrus's practice of reappointing existing public officials if they paid him a substantial fee. Some officials refused to pay for reappointment and launched public protests. Governor Andrus's foreign policy for the expanded Dominion continued the Dongan course of aggressive pressure on New France. Andros repeated a Dongan ultimatum that the French withdraw from a fort in Seneca country. The French quickly complied. English-oriented historians like to speak of a French menace to the American colonies in justifying the aggressive actions of England and the English colonies against New France. And yet, New England alone had a population in 1688 of over 100,000 as compared with 12,000 in all of New France. Furthermore, the English were firmly allied against the French with the most powerful, bloodthirsty, and aggressive of the Indian tribes, the Iroquois. The real menace was to the thinly populated French, 
The record of Anglo-American aggression against New France in the colonial era is ample witness to that fact. As soon as he took over the government of New York and the Jerseys, Andros held a conference at Albany with the Iroquois, reminiscent of a similar conference a decade and a half earlier. There he cemented the long-standing Iroquois-English alliance. In eastern Maine, Andros issued an order forbidding anyone to trade or settle in the territory without a license from his government. Andros then proceeded to break into the Penobscot River trading post of a French resident, the Baron de Saint-Castine, and to confiscate his arms, furniture, and other supplies. While Andros was away from Boston, some Indian depredations occurred at Saco, Immediately, Captain Blackman seized twenty suspect Indians and shipped them to Boston. Their alarmed tribesmen seized a few whites at Casco Bay to hold for a prisoner exchange. The prisoner exchange was agreed upon, but typically the white captain refused to admit an Indian peace party, and several whites were killed in the skirmish that followed. The embittered Indians now joined forces with the equally embittered Castine, who promised them aid for raids against the English. Andros quieted the situation down by sternly rebuking Colonel Ting of Casco Bay for exceeding his instructions by making war on the Indians. By your seizing and disturbing the Indians, you have alarmed all your parts and put them in a posture of war. Andros wisely ordered the release of all the Indians except the actual criminals. But the leaders on the spot, such as Ting, John Hinks, and William Stoughton, whipped up hysteria in Boston against the Indians and asked for supplies and troops. A draft of manpower ensued, and troops were sent north. The absurd hysteria over the Indians is seen in this account. Upon receipt of news that two or three Indians had been seen skulking about along the frontier, orders were dispatched to the outlying towns to send eight or ten armed horsemen every day to scout in search of Indians and kill any who refused to submit themselves. The military commander of Cornwall went to the length of implicitly accusing Andros of excessive leniency to the Indians. As if to disprove the charge of softness in the face of the non-existent threat, Andros sent two companies and several ships to the frontier and ordered the Indians to release all Englishmen and surrender all murderers of Englishmen. When the Indians retaliated by burning two towns, Andros mobilized a force of several hundred and garrisoned eleven forts along the frontier. Then, before any warfare occurred, Andros, in the venerable white tradition, launched a sneak attack on the Indians, destroying their homes, canoes, and supplies. In the traditional rationale of preventive war, this was done before the least harm of mischief was done by the Indians. By the end of 1688, Sir Edmund Andros stood master of all he surveyed. 
virtually the absolute ruler of all English America from the Delaware River to the St. Croix River in eastern Maine, the governor of the expanded Dominion of New England stood at the pinnacle of power. Indeed, with quo warranto action brewing against the remaining proprietary colonies, new peaks of power and expansion were on the horizon. But, as often happens, pride went before the fall. Andros was only a few more months at the pinnacle before he was tumbled unceremoniously into the trough. Volume 1, Chapter 57 The Glorious Revolution in the Northern Colonies, 1689-1690 through 1690. The fall of Sir Edmund Andros, crucial as it was, was a reflection of the fall of his far mightier sovereign, James II, who was deposed in the virtually bloodless Glorious Revolution of November-December 1688 and replaced by William and Mary of Orange. William and Mary, the Protestant daughter of the Catholic James, were crowned the sovereigns of England in February 1689. This moderate shift from James II's despotism, as well as from his attempt to grant religious liberties to his fellow Catholics, brought an end to the 17th century era of conflict and rebellion in England. Indeed, there has been nothing like a revolutionary upheaval in England since. The news of the glorious revolution brought the thrill and joy of expected liberation to the northern colonies, all of which, save Pennsylvania, were groaning under the tyranny of Andros and the dominion of New England. The example of the glorious revolution was all that was needed to fire the spark of revolt in the northern colonies. If the English tyrant could be overthrown, why not his American henchmen? Indeed, all that was needed to spark a revolution was the news that the Glorious Revolution had begun. The news of Williams's November landing in England first reached Boston on April 5th, and the successful outcome was not yet known in America. Andros, who had privately heard the truth in eastern Maine many weeks before, tried to keep the news from the people by arresting the hapless young man who brought the news. When he refused to remain silent, Andros sent him to prison without bail for bringing traitorous and treasonable libels and papers of news. But news of this sort could not now be kept secret, and preparation for a coup against Andros got quietly underway. Wild rumors spread about the colony that Andros was a secret papist, that he was conspiring with the French and the Indians to take over the colony, and so forth. It became evident to the leaders of the colony that a popular revolution against Andros was inevitable. So the leaders determined to take charge of the revolution, to keep it in channels that would be safe for themselves, and to prevent what ill effects an unformed tumult might bring. Not only did John Usher shift to insurrection, but even that old rogue William Stoughton, managed to preserve his record of being on the winning side by joining the leaders of the impending rebellion. 
The revolution was precipitated by Andros's panicky attempt to suppress the growing opposition to his rule, specifically an attempt at a special meeting of the council to try Reverend Cotton Mather, eminent son of Reverend Increase Mather, for preaching sedition. The revolution broke out on the morning set for the trial, April 28. The speedy and virtually bloodless revolt was launched at that morning when bands of boys and youths ran through Boston, shouting falsely that the popular revolution had already begun in the other parts of town. Captain George of the naval frigate Rose was seized. Two hundred armed rebels of the militia gathered under the command of Captain John Nelson. The English soldiers at the fort showed reluctance to fire on the people of Boston. Edmund Andros surrendered and was kept in prison for a year by the revolutionaries, as were the other hated leaders of the Andros regime, including Edward Randolph, Joseph Dudley, John West, John Palmer, and Charles Lidget. Of the twenty-four men imprisoned with Andros, twenty were English bureaucrats, military and civilian, and only four were from New England. To justify this revolution, the leaders issued on April 18 a declaration of the gentlemen, merchants, and inhabitants, and the county adjacent, drawn up by Cotton Mather. The declaration set forth the rebel case, including the numerous oppressions the citizenry had suffered, and praised the glorious revolution in England. The revolutionaries were now faced with the inevitable problem of what to do next. The radicals urged the frank reproclamation of the old Massachusetts Bay Charter that had been vacated five years before, but the leadership was not prepared to take so drastic a step. Instead, the leaders quickly established on April 20 a 37-man revolutionary council for the safety of the people and conservation of the peace. This council was heavily weighted with Boston merchants and included old magistrates, councillors of the Dominion, and former private citizens. This self-constituted council now named the cautious and venerable ex-governor Simon Bradstreet as president and Waite Winthrop as commander of the militia. The Council for Safety then summoned a popular convention to meet on May 9. To unite the people of Massachusetts, the Council took the highly significant step of suggesting that the towns extend the right to vote from Puritan church members to all freeholders. Most of the Massachusetts towns quickly complied. Delegates were selected at meetings of the freemen and inhabitants of the towns, an inhabitant being someone over the age of 24 with an estate of 80 pounds or more. At the convention that met on May 9 were 66 delegates from 44 towns of the colony. The relatively radical convention wanted the old charter reproclaimed and it appealed to the old pre-Dudley Council of Magistrates, the last under the old charter, to resume its functions and to reconstitute a general court with the convention delegates as the House of Deputies. The more conservative magistrates, however, refused, and the Council for Safety continued to exercise rule until the next enlarged convention met on May 22. 
The second convention represented 54 towns, of which 42 had instructed their delegates to insist on resumption of the old charter. Once again, the majority of the more timid and conservative magistrates opposed the plan. Finally, however, the popular will prevailed, with 44 towns voting for restoration of the charter government and nine for continuing temporary rule by the Council for Safety while awaiting the final royal decision. The last charter governor, Simon Bradstreet, as well as the charter magistrates, now jointly agreed to reconstitute the old general court and to resume the charter government. The convention further overruled the governor and magistrates by insisting that the Council for Safety not continue as ruling magistrate body of the colony. With good reason, the delegates distrusted the revolutionary fervor of such council members as Waite Winthrop and the notorious William Stoughton. This action of the convention removed them from their post of power. However, within a week, the convention decided to compromise slightly by naming Winthrop, Samuel Shrimpton, and three other opportunists to vacancies in the old Council of Magistrates. By the end of May, this arrangement had been completed, and the general joy was at this moment redoubled by news of the coronation of William and Mary. A great celebration ensued in Boston, with pomp and banquets and wine literally flowing in the streets. But celebration was not enough to secure the fruits of victory. Caution was the watchword of the new monarch, and one of his first actions in January was to order all previous arrangements continued in force until further notice. Specifically, Sir Edmund Andros was to continue his rule over New England. Fortunately, however, Reverend Increase Mather, who had fled to England to plead Massachusetts' case against Andros, was able to block transmission of the king's order to New England. Indeed, Mather went further, and with his old friend and parishioner, Sir William Phipps, a native of eastern Maine, petitioned the king to restore all the New England charters. The cautious crown would not go that far, but it did agree to remove Andros immediately, and to call him unto an account for his maladministration. The king also agreed to draft for Massachusetts a new charter that was to grant at least some of the colony's demands. Mather even succeeded in introducing into Parliament a bill to restore the Massachusetts Charter. The bill passed the House of Commons, but was blocked by the House of Lords. The old guard of the royal bureaucracy politicked for this roadblock. Sir Robert Southwell of the Plantation Office warned a colleague that the bill would so confound the present settlement in those parts and their dependence on England that tis hard to say where the mischief will stop or how far the act of navigation will be overthrown thereby. While Mather's valiant efforts failed to win resumption of the old charter, he did succeed in winning temporary royal recognition of the revolutionary government. This news, too, was received with great joy, as if the old charter was as good as renewed, for on June 5, 
the old political institutions of Massachusetts had been reconstituted, including a general court and a newly elected House of Deputies. Along with the temporary recognition of the Massachusetts regime, the king ordered Andros and the other prisoners sent back to England. Many radicals wanted to ignore the order and keep the hated oppressors in jail, but after many weeks of delay, the prisoners were shipped back to England in February 1690. The citizens of Massachusetts realized that the first order of the day was to convince the crown of the justice of the grievances against Andros and the need to restore the old charter. Right after the two-day revolution, local committees busily gathered evidence of grievance against the Andros regime. By the end of 1689, a central committee was organized in Boston to collect the testimony. Numerous pamphlets on the Andros regime were published in Massachusetts to try to win the minds of the crown, and on May 20, 1689, as soon as Massachusetts heard the news of the proclamation of William and Mary, the colony explained to the sovereign that the people had risen as one man in emulation of the late glorious enterprise and were able to accomplish the victory without the least bloodshed or plunder. In England during 1690, Massachusetts and the Andros-Randolph party argued their respective cases, their charges and countercharges, before the Committee for Trade and Plantations. Massachusetts sent over two agents, Thomas Oates and Elisha Cook, to aid Mather. The committee, headed by the former Earl of Danby, now the Marquis of Carmarthen, showed obvious partiality to the Andros side in the hearings. Quickly, the committee cleared Andros and Randolph of charges against them. Carmarthen did not even give Massachusetts the chance to present its case. Also powerful on the pro-Andros side were the two prominent royal bureaucrats, Robert Southwell and William Blathwaite. Edward Randolph helped turn the hearings into an attack on Massachusetts by open testimony and by publishing anonymous tracts against the colony, concentrating on its failure to enforce the navigation laws. In the meanwhile, Parliament tried to pass a bill prohibiting the voiding of any corporate charters. This would have restored the old Massachusetts charter. But the bill took too much power away from the crown for William III's comfort, and King William defeated the bill by dissolving Parliament in February 1690. It was becoming clear that Massachusetts would have to settle for a new charter, granting far less independence than the old. At home, the Massachusetts regime made halting, last-minute attempts to gain support among non-Puritan church members. By the end of May 1689, the towns had pledged enlargement of the freemen, but nothing had been done for a year. After a petition for enlargement was sent to the general court in 1690, the court finally repealed the restrictive clauses and voted to admit to freemanship anyone able to pay four shillings and the poll tax or whose income from land was six pounds. In the spring of 1690, 700 new freemen were admitted, of whom nearly two-thirds were non-church members. But Puritans were still favored in the new regulations, for church members 
were specially exempt from the property qualifications. As might be expected, the electrifying news of the overthrow and arrest of Andros in Boston galvanized the other colonies under Andros's sway. In Plymouth, the people seized Andros's main henchman, the counselor Nathaniel Clark, and reestablished the old Plymouth government under former Governor Thomas Hinckley. Clark was sent to England along with Andros and the others, hopefully to answer for his high crimes and misdemeanors. Plymouth always charterless and anxious to obtain a proper charter, naively thanked Increase Mather for supposedly presenting Plymouth's case at court. But on arriving in England, Plymouth's agent, Reverend Ichabod Wiswall, soon discovered that Massachusetts was trying to absorb Plymouth in its own charter, in short, to play the same game by which Connecticut had seized New Haven three decades before. Mather, indeed, had already managed to incorporate Plymouth when Wiswall arrived and was able to strike out the clause, an act for which Mather dubbed Wiswall the weasel. But Mather had an enormous advantage for winning his way, money. Mather was supplied with the very large sum of 1,700 pounds, which he was able to use for the purpose intended, to spread about in the right places. Plymouth, on the other hand, was a poor colony and had little money to supply. Wiswall had virtually nothing to bestow for favors. When, in February 1691, the Plymouth General Court, in desperation, asked the towns to subscribe 500 pounds to keep their independence, the sum could not be raised. Plymouth's future was fading fast. When New Hampshire heard the glorious news of Andrus's arrest, it did not, like the other New England colonies, have a recent self-governing past to look back upon. Instead, it had been strictly a royally controlled colony, and before that, for decades, part of Massachusetts. The four New Hampshire towns first attempted to draw up a self-governing constitution to frame a government. The Constitutional Convention met at Portsmouth on January 24, 1690, and included 22 of the leading men of the colony. It included also the rehabilitated revolutionary hero, Edward Gove of Hampton, as well as Major William Vaughan and Major Richard Waldron from Portsmouth. The convention agreed to a brief constitution providing for election of a president to be head of the province's militia, and a council of ten representing the people of the four towns. The president and council were also to call an assembly of representatives from each town. This was the first constitution in American history to be drawn up by popular convention and then submitted to the people for ratification. But the town of Hampton, worried about too much power accruing to Portsmouth under this arrangement, refused to elect representatives, and so the Constitution fell through. The immediate reaction was a petition signed by hundreds of the leading men of New Hampshire, urging Massachusetts to resume, at least temporarily, government of the colony. The revolutionary Massachusetts government promptly granted the request at the end of February, and in England, Mather did his best to absorb New Hampshire as well as Plymouth in his forthcoming new charter. But Massachusetts' plans were foiled from two sides. 
In the first place, the independent and unbridled town of Hampton, led by Nathaniel Weir, balked at a permanent surrender to Massachusetts. And Weir was known in England as the man who had gone there from New Hampshire to lay low the hated Governor Cranfield five years before. Perhaps more important was the partial reactivation of the old Mason menace to the liberty and property of the residents of New Hampshire. Mason, who had been on the council for New England, had sold his proprietary claim to New Hampshire to Samuel Allen, and Allen was able to persuade the king to nominate himself to be governor of the new royal colony of New Hampshire. Allen named his son-in-law, the former Dominion treasurer John Usher, to be lieutenant governor and operating head of the colony. Usher assumed his post in August 1692. New Hampshire had lost its struggle for self-government. Usher was not only a son-in-law of the new proprietary pretender, but had himself bought a great amount of New Hampshire land from Mason, and therefore depended on the latter's rather dubious title. Usher's return brought the Mason, now Allen, claims once again into the forefront of New Hampshire politics. The leading enemies of the Mason claims, Vaughn, Waldron, Weir, now banded together to oppose the Usher regime. Connecticut, too, received the news of the Boston Revolution with jubilation. Facing the question of what to do next, the colony confronted three alternatives— to resume the old charter government, which, unlike Massachusetts, had not been formally voided, to continue the Dominion government, which had virtually dissolved, or to follow Massachusetts' path and establish a provincial committee for safety. Leading the fight for the first alternative was James Fitch, who also wanted to exclude such top Andros supporters as Fitzjohn Winthrop and John Allen from public office. Counter-pressure for continuing the defunct Dominion came from Reverend Gershom Buckley of Wethersfield and Edward Palms, both of whom had been made judges by Andros. Connecticut had an election on May 9, 1689, and the delegates decided to reestablish the former Governor Robert Treat and the General Court. One of the Court's first acts was to resume the old laws and institutions of the colony. But while the bulk of the freemen agreed with Fitch that the old Andros henchmen must be excluded, the more conservative delegates decided to reappoint the old Council of Magistrates. As a further blow to the revolutionary forces, they appointed such old Andrews supporters as Fitzjohn Winthrop and Samuel Willis, members of the Council. The old opportunist clique, anxious to head off Fitch's likely drive for democratic reform of the Charter, had managed to outmaneuver the popular party. The decisions of the convention were submitted to the body of freemen for approval, but the freemen could only vote for or against the entire panel of officials selected by the delegates. They did not have the option of voting down such individual nominees as Allen or Winthrop. Still battling the new dispensation, however, were such ultra-reactionaries as Gershom Buckley and Edward Palms, 
who pleaded with England to restore the Old Dominion rule. In a sense, Buckley was more prophetic than his more moderate colleagues, for James Fitch, counselor and the great leader of the Connecticut Revolution, soon came to dominate the council and the Connecticut government. The newly elected counselors were followers of Fitch. Fitch, an open admirer of Jacob Leisler's revolutionary government in New York, was able by 1692 to widen the Connecticut franchise. The only requirement for freemanship was now possession of a 40-shilling freehold. Moreover, a highly democratic election system was installed. Each freeman could write out a list of 20 nominees for the 14 posts of governor, deputy governor, and magistrates. The officials were to be elected from the top 20 names submitted by the freemen in a second series of town meetings. Connecticut had decided for self-government and for resuming its old charter, but the Crown had not yet spoken. Despite a lack of able agents in England, Connecticut won from the King's lawyers in August 1690 a decision that its old charter was still valid. Connecticut was not yet wholly out of the woods, though its self-governing charter had been reconfirmed. Rhode Island did not receive the news of Andros's arrest with the same enthusiasm as its sister colonies. For one thing, it shared Andros's deep antipathy to Massachusetts. For another, it was grateful for Andros's support in the old Narragansett controversy with Connecticut. Indeed, Andros had been preparing to flee to Rhode Island before his capture. Rhode Island now determined to return to its old self-governing charter. The timorous former governor, Walter Clark, however, refused to reassume his office. It was temporarily occupied at the end of February by John Cogshall, the previous deputy governor. At the end of April, Newport issued a summons to the other towns of Rhode Island to meet there on May 1 to plot the colony's future course. There the delegates decided to resume operations under the old and never officially vacated charter. But once more the timid Walter Clark refused to reassume his post, and the permanent post of governor was granted to the Quaker Henry Bull. Thus, on the advent of the glorious revolution in England, the New England colonies took the welcome opportunity to overthrow the Dominion regime. Upon the imprisonment of Andros and his henchmen, Massachusetts returned, at least temporarily, to self-government according to its old charter and institutions and was followed by Plymouth, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, the last temporarily placing itself under Massachusetts' sovereignty. We remember, however, that the Dominion of New England had expanded to New York, and to the banks of the Delaware. These lower colonies had been left in charge of Lieutenant Governor Francis Nicholson. Nicholson also learned of the glorious revolution in early February, but kept it from the public. Finally, news of the overthrow of Andros reached New York at approximately the end of April. Already the Dominion was in a far stronger position in New York than in New England. For when Andros and his colleagues were arrested, there were no other Dominion officials in New England to continue the old regime in power. 
Furthermore, there were previous charters to which the colonies could conveniently return. But New York and the lower Dominion areas were still controlled by Nicholson and his subordinate officials, and there were no charters to fall back upon. Governor Nicholson, the representative of the king's authority in New York and the Jerseys, was now faced with the problem of what to do at this point. His first step was to call the New York members of the Council of the Dominion together, but prudently they failed to appear. Nicholson was left with the appointed civil and military officials who constituted the de facto government under him. At the end of April, 26 such officials began to meet as a ruling convention or council. The first rebellion against the Dominion in New York broke out, as might be expected, in the always turbulent Suffolk County on eastern Long Island. Led by Southold, the freeholders of Suffolk met at Southampton on May 3rd, ousted all the local appointed civil and military officials, and elected their own. They also demanded the return of the tax monies that had been extorted from them. The Suffolk towns were soon followed by the towns of Westchester and Queens, each of which established home rule. The grievances of Queens on western Long Island were aggravated by the fact that drafted militiamen from that county had not been paid for their part in a military expedition Dongan had sent against French Canada. Now Nicholson decided to pay these ex-soldiers, but determined to raise the funds by ordering the collection of Queens County's arrears for back taxes. The money was never collected from the rebellious people of Queens, and this protest of militiamen's pay was promptly joined by Kings and Suffolk counties. On May 9, the protesting ex-soldiers gathered armed at Jamaica to demand their promised pay. Nicholson and his council agreed. This was followed on the same day by demonstrations for back pay by the New York City militia with similar results. We have seen that the Catholicism of several high officials in New York had intensified the anti-Catholic hysteria in New York attendant on troubles with the French. New York was the colony closest to French Canada and the Iroquois, and conflicts with the Catholic French had grown in recent years. By May 6, discontent had spread to New York City itself. After a vote to apply customs revenue to strengthen the fortification of New York, the charge was made that the collector of customs, Matthew Plowman, was a Catholic. So hypersensitive were New Yorkers becoming on this issue that a government official at Setauket, Brookhaven, Long Island, refused to serve as a messenger to Andros, fearing that the people taking him to be a papist would raise and plunder his house, if not offer violence to his family. Using the accusation against Plowman as a convenient excuse, the merchants of New York City now refused to pay the custom duties, asserting that they were illegal decrees of the executive. In short, the atmosphere in New York by the end of the first week in May was becoming increasingly revolutionary. Anti-Catholic prejudice quickly spurred a tax rebellion and an implicit call for a representative assembly with sole power to levy taxes. 
And meanwhile, Dominion government was caught in an increasingly aggravated inner contradiction. The clamor for promised back pay by the armed militia grew at the same time that refusal to pay taxes increased in scope and breadth. How then could the Nicholson regime impose more taxes to pay the promised back salaries? Nicholson's promises were not enough to satisfy the increasingly revolutionary militia. On May 10, the militia captains of the Long Island towns of Southampton, East Hampton, and Huntington demanded that the Manhattan fort be delivered into the hands of such persons as the country shall choose, that is, clearly out of existing hands. The ruling convention of New York City officials denounced the militia action as mutinous, but the Long Island towns, joined by Hempstead, refused to send delegates to any expanded convention called by Nicholson. On May 22, the Nicholson Convention ordered the signers of the various petitions to appear before it. They flatly refused. The developing revolutionary temper of the militia was further aggravated by Nicholson's failure to proclaim William and Mary as his sovereign. This prompted further suspicions of his allegiance to the Catholic and absolutist James II. Matters finally came to a head on May 30. Lieutenant Hendrick Kyler of the militia directed a corporal to place a militiaman at a certain sensitive post at the fort. When the regular English soldier refused to give way to a New Yorker at the post, Kyler took the dispute to Nicholson. Not only did the governor side with the soldier and order the militia corporal from his room at gunpoint, but he told Lieutenant Kyler that he feared for his life and would set the town in fire rather than see the situation continue. Word of Nicholson's threats spread through New York City like wildfire and caused an immediate revolt by the militia. The New York militia decided to ignore all commands from either Nicholson or his appointed militia commander, Colonel Nicholas Bayard. Further, the militia proceeded to take over and hold the fort. The day after this revolt, the militia issued a declaration of the inhabitant soldiers. The declaration, signed by some 400 men, avowed militia support for the new Protestant monarch and explained the militia's seizure of the fort by Nicholson's threat to burn the city and by his alleged aid to a Catholic plot to slaughter New Yorkers. There was now no definite government in New York. The revolutionary militiamen held the fort themselves but had not yet openly repudiated Nicholson as governor. The governor now foolishly precipitated his own ouster by ordering Colonel Bayard to take command of the militia. When Bayard ordered the militia companies to leave the neighborhood of the fort, most of them refused. They joined the company that happened to be taking its turn occupying the fort that day, a company headed by a leading Dutch Calvinist merchant of German origin, Captain Jacob Leisler. The militiamen had now openly repudiated the orders and the rule of the governor. There were now two parallel governments in New York, the militia and Governor Nicholson and his convention officials. On June 3 and 4, 
four of the five captains of the militia, the leading officers subordinate to the repudiated Bayard, signed a humble address of the militia and people of the city. This document recognized and hailed King William as liberator from tyranny, popery, and slavery, and as the protector of the true Protestant religion, liberty, and property. The militia also proceeded to call for a new revolutionary governmental form, a committee of safety. The committee consisted of two delegates from each county and was to meet on June 26. The Nicholson government had precipitated this revolutionary step by ordering all the New York funds, now kept at the fort, transferred to the home of Councillor Frederick Phillips and by commanding the militia captains to appear before the convention. Both demands were refused by four of the five militia captains, with Leisler the most outspoken. With the council denouncing the rebels, Nicholson sailed on June 24 to England for help. Before going, he angered New Yorkers still further by ordering the Catholic customs collector, Matthew Plowman, to enforce the payment of duties. The Nicholson Council now decided way too late to remove Plowman and to fill his post with four collectors, including the hated Nicholas Bayard. The militiamen, however, were by now in far too rebellious a mood to accept this arrangement. They evicted the four men from the Custom House and substituted their own appointee, Peter Delanoy, a former treasurer and collector of New York City. Some of the militiamen tried to assault Bayard, but were stopped by Captain Leisler. On June 26, the Revolutionary Committee of Safety met in Queens. Most of the counties of New York accepted the invitation to send delegates, and prominent citizens attended from New York City, Kings, Queens, Westchester, and Richmond, Staten Island counties, as well as one each from the towns of Tappan, Hackensack, and Elizabethtown in New Jersey. The county delegates were in turn elected at county meetings of delegates elected by the towns. Refusing to send delegates was Suffolk County, where the towns, especially Southold and Setauket, once again hoped to join Connecticut. Albany, Kingston, and most of New Jersey also failed to send representatives. It seems clear that the town elections were highly democratic, with almost all of the adult males of the participating towns voting in the elections for delegates. The Suffolk towns were not, incidentally, the only ones that wanted to merge with Connecticut. Jacob Leisler was particularly active in working for such a merger, and Connecticut did agree to send two delegates to the meeting of the Committee of Safety, along with ten friendly soldiers. The delegates to the committee, to repeat, were not unknown members of a mob, but prominent citizens of the community. The Revolutionary Committee, for example, included in its ranks Dr. Gerardus Beekman of Kings, a future acting governor of the colony, William Lawrence of Hackensack, a future counselor, and Samuel Edsel, father-in-law of both Lawrence and Delanois, and a prominent trader who had held political office in New Jersey. The Committee of Safety officially dissolved the authority of the Royal Council and its Customs 
commissioners, appointed Peter Delanoy as moderator of the committee and confirmed his appointment as collector. It also named Jacob Leisler as permanent captain of the fort. The old municipal court now ceased to meet. Leisler refused to guarantee the safety of its members. The reactionary pro-Andros mayor of New York City, Stephanus Van Cortland, and his fellow councillors made themselves scarce. The revolutionary government was now the sole government in New York City and vicinity. Now that the revolution had been accomplished and the old order completely overthrown, we may pause to ask about the meaning of this revolution. For it is important, when weighing the reasons for the outbreak of a revolution, to separate this stage from the later history of the revolutionary government after it has taken power. Many writers have judged the rebellion to be a class struggle, a pure outbreak of religious hatred, or an ethnic war of Dutch against English rule. Yet it should be clear that all these explanations are either fallacious or, in the case of the religious explanation, partial and misleading. The revolution was not a class struggle of the poor against the rich or of the laborer against other occupations. It was the culmination of many years of political and economic grievances suffered by every great economic class in the colony, by every section, by English and Dutch alike. The aggressively English towns of Suffolk were and had always been even more revolutionary than the Dutch of New York, and the Dutch members of the ruling oligarchy, the Bayards, the Van Cortlands, and the leading Dutch ministers were just as fiercely opposed to the revolution as were the English members. Economically, the leaders of the revolutionary movement ranged from the prominent merchants and other citizens named above to such men as Joost Stoll, a carter, and an ensign in Leisler's militia company. Stoll was probably the single person most responsible for the fateful decision of the militia to seize the fort on May 30. In short, this was truly a liberal people's revolution, a revolution of all classes and ethnic strains in New York against the common oppressors. The oligarchal ruling clique and its favorites, receivers of patronage, privilege, and monopolistic land grants from the royal government. Indeed, the counter-revolutionaries, the opponents of this popular rebellion, were almost invariably the ruling clique, the royal bureaucracy and the recipients of monopolistic land grants. In this group were Bayard, Van Cortland, Phillips, William Nichols, Peter Schuller, and his brother-in-law, Robert Livingston. A leading historian of the rebellion has written, A fair characterization of all the opponents of the revolution would be that they were officials and landed, or would-be landed aristocrats. There are, however, no grounds for terming the rebellion a class struggle in the Marxist sense. Capitalists were found in both camps. The reason for the last statement might be added, capitalists are never a homogeneous entity, as is true of all Marxian classes that are not, as we have noted above, estates or castes. The capitalists who gained their money from government privilege were against the revolution. 
The capitalists who earned their money in free market activity joined all the other producers in the colony to favor it. As in the other colonies under Dominion rule, though with greater difficulty because of the Nicholsonian bureaucracy, the people took heart from the overthrow of Andros in Boston to end the hated rule of the Dominion in New York as well. Even the anti-Catholicism is largely explainable by the Catholicism of James II and many of his ruling henchmen in New York. And finally, the revolution in New York cannot correctly be termed Leisler's Rebellion. The fact that Jacob Leisler acquired control of the revolutionary government after it had assumed power should not be allowed to obscure the fact that Leisler was only one of the many leaders of the actual revolution and that this was a spontaneous uprising of the mass of the people. Any libertarian revolution that takes power immediately confronts a grave inner contradiction. In the last analysis, liberty and power are incompatible. Thus, Peter Delanois was now supposed to collect the colony's taxes, but a tax paid to a Delanois was no less oppressive or tyrannical than the same tax paid to a Nicholson. And so the merchants still refused to pay the duties, again using the argument that they had not been levied by a representative assembly. Six weeks later, the revolution took a decisive step from liberty to power. On August 16, the Committee of Safety, in its second meeting, created an executive of almost unlimited authority by naming Jacob Leisler, Commander-in-Chief of New York Province. As soon as Leisler assumed supreme power, he, naturally, began to use it. The first step was to arrest whoever dared to criticize the new regime. Arrest included merchants and laborers, Dutchmen such as the Schulers and Phillipses, and Anglicans such as Thomas Clark. Many were arrested on suspicion of disloyalty. It is true, however, that the prisoners were treated with relative moderation, and many were freed on taking a loyalty oath to William and Mary. Leisler also used his power to conscript youths, and even children, into labor gangs to repair Manhattan's Fort James. The Revolutionary Committee of Safety, before adjourning, decided to press ahead with the annual September elections that had been held in pre-Dominion years, also to expand democracy and check oligarchy by subjecting justices of the peace and militia captains to the decisions of the voters. In an action reflecting the bitter anti-Catholicism of the people, all Protestant freeholders were made eligible to vote. In New York City, the people elected aldermen and common councillors according to the old charter. In addition, Leisler made elective the three top posts in the city, mayor, sheriff, and town clerk, which had always been appointive. The free elections removed the counter-revolutionaries from office, and Stephanus Van Cortland was replaced as mayor by Peter Delanoy who was to be the last popularly elected mayor of New York until the 19th century. Although Leisler and the committee controlled the bulk of New York, they did not command the allegiance of Albany. Albany, tightly run by the privileged monopolist of the Iroquois fur trade, was devoted to the Dominion. 
Its top officials were leaders of the Andros oligarchy, for example, Mayor Peter Schuller and his assistant and brother-in-law, Robert Livingston. In the fall elections, Albany simply re-elected its old officials. The shift from liberty to power was now proceeding apace. Leisler and the committee became filled with imperialist zeal to impose their unwanted rule on Albany. An expedition of three ships was sent by Leisler under his future son-in-law, the merchant Jacob Milburn, to seize Albany. Albany, to cover itself, forced every townsman to take an oath of allegiance to William and Mary. The Albany Convention then refused to permit Milburn to enter the fort. Milburn now tried to appeal to the people of Albany over the heads of their rulers. He urged them to overthrow all government derived from James II and promised free elections and other liberties. Milburn's stirring words had some effect, and a hundred citizens of Albany elected Joachim Statz as captain of Milburn's troops in Albany. But the support of Statz and the Albany opposition for Milbourne was not enough. The convention oligarchy and the fort determined to resist, and they threw into the breach the powerful support of the Iroquois fur-trading allies of the Albany oligarchs. The Iroquois threatened to attack Milbourne should he persist, and Milbourne finally left ignominiously for home. Moreover, to complete the fiasco, Captain Statz and his Milbourne militia were now obliged to take orders from the convention. Albany was the more strengthened by Connecticut's recognition of its convention government. At this point, Leisler's fortunes took a swift turn upward. A letter arrived in mid-December from King William, legitimizing the rule of either Nicholson or such as for the time being take care for preserving the peace and administering the laws, and naming said person lieutenant governor. Thus, by the end of 1689, the revolutionary government in New York, as in Massachusetts, had been at least temporarily legitimized by the crown, while the other New England colonies resumed their old ways of self-government. As with the other colonies, the key to their fate rested on the decisions of the new monarch. The August session of the Committee of Safety had decided to send an agent to England to plead its case. Chosen was the revolutionary Cartman, Joost Stoll, whose lower-class ways were not, alas, calculated to endear him to the aristocratic officials of the crown. Stoll presented seven bold demands to the Privy Council, including royal and parliamentary approval of the actions of the Revolution, a new self-governing charter for New York, and encouragement for a united colonial effort to conquer French Canada. But unlike the cause of Massachusetts at court, Leisler's regime was doomed from the start, for even as Leisler was being temporarily confirmed in his post, the king prepared to end his rule and all self-government in New York. Heavily influenced by the reports of the old oligarchs, Bayard and Van Cortland, the lords of trade recommended that a royal governor with two companies of troops be sent to rule New York. Colonel Henry Slaughter was promptly chosen as governor. Only a war in France held up Slaughter's actual arrival in New York and permitted Leisler to continue his interim rule. 
In contrast to conditions in other colonies under dominion rule, everything was quiet during the Glorious Revolution in the colonies of East Jersey and West Jersey. While the New England colonies aimed to resume self-government, and while New York tried to move from royal colony to self-government, the Jerseys had been proprietary colonies before the Dominion. With Nicholson and his royal officials gone, the proprietors who had been facing quo warranto action against their territories trod warily indeed and did nothing during the years of turmoil after 1689. Central government in the Jerseys disappeared with the end of the Dominion, and the colonies were left with existing local governments only. In this state of purely minimal government, the people of the Jerseys were happy. The royal officials were gone. Their ancient proprietary enemies were cautious and inactive. Indeed, there was virtually nothing against which to revolt. Volume 1, Chapter 58 the Glorious Revolution in the Northern Colonies, 1690-1692 through 1692. While the Northern Colonies were routing the hated Dominion and at least temporarily restoring self-government, King William was inaugurating his reign by taking England into a general European alliance, the League of Augsburg, against France. William had already been at war with France as Stadtholder of Holland, and he was now eager to continue in that tradition. The war with France, beginning in 1689, had important repercussions in the New World. Historians of each nation, when treating their country's foreign affairs and conflicts, almost always make it appear that their side was the righteous one, and their state beset and threatened by lowering enemies. Any objective historian of New France and the English colonies, however, should certainly conclude that the menace was to New France and not from New France. New France had a population of 12,000 compared with that of 100,000 in New England alone. Second, the English were solidly allied with the most feared, most aggressive, and most imperialistic Indians in the Northeast, the Iroquois. The basic struggle between the French on the one hand and the Iroquois, Dutch, and English on the other was economic, the beaver trade. In the 17th century, the French had settled in Quebec and along the St. Lawrence and had developed a thriving fur trade with the Indian tribes farther west. But this trade interfered with the Iroquois, who tried by coercion to obtain a monopoly of the intermediate fur trade. The French in Canada could deal directly with the western tribes, but the Dutch and English in Albany could not. In Albany, the Iroquois could find a market for resale of the furs purchased from the Indians farther west. In short, both the Iroquois and the English had a vested interest in aggressions against the French. The Iroquois to eliminate competition for the purchase of furs from the western Indians and to obtain a monopoly of the middleman fur trade. The English to oust the French from the fur trade and to grab French land for the glory and benefit of the crown. 
The Iroquois had plagued and ravaged the French settlers, as well as the more peaceful Indians in the Northeast, for decades. During the 1640s, the Iroquois plundered the French and drove out friendly tribes, but in the course of another war were able to reestablish their position. We have observed that Governor Dongan urged the Iroquois to attack the French during the 1680s. The Iroquois went unerringly to the heart of the matter, the fur trade. After the Iroquois had driven the peaceful fur-trading Hurons from the St. Lawrence, the latter settled in the Great Lakes areas as far west as Wisconsin, and a direct fur trade with the French was established from there. Now, in the mid-1680s, the Iroquois invaded Huron country, and by 1686 were able, by force of arms, to break the vital chain between the Great Lakes fur trade and the French. After the French made a feeble attempt to oust the Iroquois and restore the fur trade, the Iroquois began mercilessly to ravage the French settlements on the St. Lawrence, even to the environs of Montreal itself. The raids reached a peak in the summer of 1689. When the venerable Comte de Frontenac resumed his old post as governor of New France that fall, his obvious task was to try to preserve the colony from the Iroquois menace. Now that England had declared war on France, Frontenac did not have to respect the status of privileged sanctuary with which the English had cloaked the Iroquois. Seeing English military strength weakened by the overthrow of the Dominion, the French and allied Indians executed a daring raid on February 9, 1690, upon the upstate New York trading post of Schenectady. The raiders burned the town, massacred a large portion of the inhabitants, and captured the rest. Two other daring and successful raids with similar results were engineered by Frontenac against Salmon Falls, New Hampshire, and Falmouth, Maine, on Casco Bay. Ever since the previous December 1689, Jacob Leisler had been in control as the temporarily recognized ruler of the New York colony, but Albany still proved recalcitrant. Now, with Albany frightened by the raid on Schenectady, Leisler made a determined move to assume control. Leisler had lost no time in transforming the revolution in New York into a virtual duplication of the old power. The old Committee of Safety was now made Leisler's counsel. It quickly decreed the Revenue Act of 1683 to be still in force and went so far as to order Delanois to collect back taxes as well. Seeing the liberalism of the revolution vanish, a group of angry merchants issued a declaration of the freeholders of New York in protest. Leisler's order was torn down and the declaration substituted. Leisler, by decree, prohibited defacing his orders. He also established a new court of the exchequer to try to collect revenue. Still, Leisler had enormous difficulty in collecting taxes. Like many another tyrant, Leisler then decided that this was the result of a subversive, hellish conspiracy, and he ordered a summary search of all suspect houses and the arrest of his opponents. 
By February, there were numerous arrests of people caught speaking contemptuously of his government and also of suspected papists. Leisler's imposition of a despotism in order to levy taxes was a fateful step. Before then, the Leisler movement had been truly a people's revolution. Its only opponents had been members of the discredited ruling oligarchy. But now the liberals, who had been his staunchest supporters, began to leave the Leisler cause in droves. In mid-May, 1690, merchants and other leading citizens of New York drew up a humble address to the king protesting Leisler's slavery, arbitrary power, and ruling us by the sword. The authors included such prominent merchants and great leaders of the revolution as Leisler's former fellow militia captains, de Peister, Lodwick, and Stuyvesant. The petition also complained of Leisler's confiscation of goods, even as far as Elizabethtown, New Jersey, plundering of homes and searching of mails. Jacob Leisler's frenzy to collect taxes was largely because of his determination to seize Albany and then to mount a giant intercolonial invasion to conquer New France. He'd always been a hardliner on Papist New France, and now the war and the massacre at Schenectady gave him his long-awaited opportunity. The higher taxes and the rigorous enforcement were to pay for Leisler's cherished invasion plans. By the end of February, Leisler decided to call a representative assembly in New York to make the raising of taxes more palatable to the increasingly restive populace. The assembly finally met at the end of April. Suffolk County, except for Hempstead, refused to send any delegates. Suffolk still hoped to join Connecticut and also balked at the high tax program. Leisler barred from voting all those who had not taken what was in effect an oath of allegiance to himself. Therefore, the election, especially in the upstate anti-Leisler county of Ulster, was not truly free. The assembly dutifully imposed a new property tax of three pence per pound, but tried to win the support of the farmers and the New York masses by ending the hated New York City flour monopoly, the New York port monopoly, and the Albany fur monopoly. Abolition of the three hated monopolies was highly welcome to the people. Leisler, though, was angered by the growing popular movement for release of his political prisoners. He brusquely dissolved the assembly for even daring to receive the petitions of the people, urging him to free the prisoners. The popularity that Leisler could have earned by ending the monopolies never materialized because of his taxes and confiscations to finance his unrealistic dream of the conquest of French Canada. To confiscate supplies for an expedition against the French, Leisler imposed on grain exports an embargo, which allowed him to seize the grain for military purposes. Ending the flour monopoly did little good when farmers and merchants could not export the grain at all. Moreover, by decree, Leisler embargoed all exports of pork and confiscated all private stores of pork meat. He also searched all suspected places without bothering about a warrant. Stocks of cloth in the city were also confiscated. 
Other foci of resistance to Leisler were New Rochelle, where the newly settled Huguenots objected to a tax burden for his needless expedition, and traditionally anti-tax Suffolk County, which Leisler had to force to submit to him. An East Hampton meeting in May, for example, was evenly split between accepting Leisler's authority on condition of some redress of grievances or not submitting at all without further word from England. No one at the meeting advocated unconditional submission to Leisler's authority. Despite an increasingly restless home base behind him, Leisler proceeded on his course of seizing Albany and then mounting an invasion of Canada. As soon as Leisler acquired legitimacy in December, he ordered Albany to submit and to hold new municipal elections. But the Albany Convention refused and was backed by the Connecticut militia, sent there to aid against the French. The Schenectady massacre, however, changed the situation. Leisler was now able to blame Albany's recalcitrance for the poor preparation against the attack. Furthermore, the Albany oligarchy was now beginning to face numerous internal and external troubles. First, Leisler conscripted a militia and ordered it to seize Albany and Ulster counties. Second, the people of Albany, fearful of a French attack, began to ship their goods downriver to New York City. The Albany Convention ordered all such shipments stopped. And finally, Connecticut withdrew its troops and advised Albany to submit to Leisler, while Massachusetts, as fellow revolutionaries against the Dominion, inclined toward Leisler and joined in this plea. Connecticut and Massachusetts were entreated by Albany and Ulster to support them and to send more troops. Leisler demanded that Connecticut put its troops under his command. Albany's chief agent to Connecticut and Massachusetts in the spring of 1690 was Robert Livingston, perhaps Leisler's most determined enemy among the Albany oligarchy. Leisler sent agents to urge Connecticut to arrest this rebel Livingston. Connecticut did finally decide to remove its troops from Albany, but refused to arrest Livingston. New York's comrade in revolution, Massachusetts, almost did arrest Livingston, but he was able to save himself by citing the friendship of the Iroquois to the Albany oligarchs. Under pressure from all sides, Albany could only give in. It submitted to Leisler on March 20. Leisler appointed three commissioners to govern Albany, including Jacob Milbourne. Esopus Kingston also submitted, and Milburn imposed Leisler's authority there. As opponents of Leisler began to flee Albany, the commissioners issued an order prohibiting any mail from leaving the city. They also forced into submission several burghers who had previously refused to obey the militia. Generally, though, Leisler conciliated the oligarchy by reappointing existing officials. The exception was Livingston, who was still in Connecticut, and whom Leisler attempted to try for treason. With Albany secured, Jacob Leisler proceeded to the second stage of his grand design, the United Colonial Conquest of Canada. Leisler called a great 
Intercolonial Conference at Albany for May 1, 1690. He assured the various governments that New York would contribute 400 men to such an expedition, 260 of whom were already in arms, and the Iroquois had promised a 1,000. Virginia refused the invitation, and Quaker Pennsylvania, again in a state of anarchism, simply ignored it. The Jerseys, unfriendly to New York anyway, and a haven for many of Leisler's enemies, also ignored the invitation. Maryland was sympathetic, but was now in the midst of Coode's rebellion, and had little time or men to spare. This left the New England colonies, which appeared at the conference and pledged a total of 355 men for the expedition to be conducted under a supreme commander named by Leisler. Sixty men were pledged by Plymouth. Massachusetts promised 160, and Connecticut 135. Rhode Island sent no delegates and would conscript no men, but it agreed to contribute 300 pounds to help finance the campaign. Massachusetts had itself proposed an intercolonial conference concerning an invasion of Canada, and had in fact scheduled a New England conference at Newport before the New York meeting was called. It was the attempt to finance and supply this mammoth campaign that led to the despotic exactions and confiscations and to the rising opposition to Leisler in New York. The raising of the militia aggravated resentment still further. One Westchester realist pointed out that they was fools if any of them did go and said, who would give them a leg or arm if they lost them? Kings and Queen's counties were restive, and desertions from the conscript militia began to mount. In accordance with the decision of the Albany Conference, Leisler named his right-hand man, Jacob Milborn, to be supreme commander. It was decided that a naval attack on Quebec would be coordinated with a land assault on Montreal. But the other colonies had never really been enthusiastic about the Leisler expedition and had only joined under pressure of popular enthusiasm in New England for Leisler's promised conquest of New France. Plymouth now withdrew its commitment, pleading poverty and lack of resources, and Massachusetts threw its resources instead into the naval expedition headed by Sir William Phipps to capture Quebec. Moreover, Massachusetts found that its citizens refused Anne Moss to be drafted into the militia, much less to volunteer. Only Connecticut now remained a direct ally of Leisler, and Connecticut, guided by such enemies of Leisler as Secretary John Allen, whom Leisler had wanted arrested as a Jacobite, and Robert Livingston, took advantage of the situation to take over the expedition. Connecticut now insisted that Milburn be replaced as supreme commander by Fitzjohn Winthrop of Connecticut, a close friend of Livingston's. Finally, at the end of June, Leisler was forced to yield and appointed Winthrop head of the expedition. While Leisler's military plans were beginning to crumble, the mounting opposition to his rule at home culminated in an armed revolt on June 6th. Sparked by an attempt of the relatives of Nicholas Bayard to release him from a Leisler jail, the rebels assaulted Leisler. But the governor was saved by the people, and thirteen of the rebels were arrested. 
When the tumult died down, the prisoners were released upon pain of fine. Although his support was crumbling on all sides, Leisler stubbornly determined to press on with the invasion. The expedition, begun on August 1, was a study in absurdity. The enmity between Winthrop and Livingston on the one hand and Leisler on the other could not have been more intense. To cap the picture of 1,000 warriors promised by the Iroquois, only 70 Indians appeared, and they accomplished virtually nothing. And yet, despite the evident folly of the attempt, Winthrop set forth with 500 men, less than half the number, 1,200, Frontenac rapidly raised to defend Montreal. After wandering around in the woods of New York for two weeks, short of canoes and supplies, Winthrop ignominiously returned home. Phipps' naval attack on Quebec in October was bungled so disastrously that he did well to get most of his men back to Boston. The grandiose attempt to conquer French Canada had proved a fiasco. Massachusetts characteristically met its failure by clamping a tight censorship on any criticism of the regime. Phipps had succeeded, however, in capturing Port Royal in Acadia, Nova Scotia, on an expedition the previous spring. The motivations for Phipps' expedition were incisively set forth in the diary of the conquest. May 11, the fort surrendered. May 12, went ashore to search for hidden goods. We cut down the cross, rifled the church, pulled down the high altar, and broke their images. May 13, kept gathering plunder all day. May 14, the inhabitants swore allegiance to King William and Queen Mary. Having pursued his goal of invasion with single-minded fanaticism, Leisler now looked around paranoically for a scapegoat for the debacle. He fastened, naturally enough, upon Fitzjohn Winthrop. Leisler promptly put Winthrop and some of Winthrop's officers under arrest, along with the leading burghers of Albany. Leisler intended to court-martial Winthrop for failure, or rather for plotting to ruin the invasion. Finally, Leisler was forced to release Winthrop under pressure of Connecticut and especially of the Iroquois. But he continued to snarl to the last, accusing Allen of being part of the so-called sabotage plot and charging Winthrop with being a tool of Livingston. Connecticut's refusal to grant further military aid was greeted by the irascible Leisler with the charge that the men of Connecticut were responsible for the failure of the invasion, and he termed them fiends and hypocrites. Leisler's dream of conquering Canada was a shambles. Following the classic course of tyrants, the now desperate Leisler redoubled his tyranny to maintain himself in power. The New York Assembly met again in September 1690 and levied a tax of threepence per pound sterling on all property for military purposes. It also demanded the return in three weeks of all who had fled the colony on the rather absurd enticement of a promised fair trial. A 75-pound penalty was placed on anyone refusing a military or civilian appointment by Leisler. 
A £100 penalty was levied on everyone leaving Albany or Ulster without Leisler's consent, and all emigres were ordered to return. Again, resistance arose in New York to Leisler's depredations. The town of New Rochelle continued evading Leisler's order to all towns to name justices of the peace and tax collectors. In Queens County, an armed revolt flared in October. The courts were suspended, and Leisler directed the prohibition of anyone aiding or encouraging the rebels. Thomas Willett, who had participated in the previous personal assault on Leisler, now gathered 150 men for a march on New York. But Milburn's armed group of 300 easily routed the rebel forces. The King's County militia also showed signs of rebellion, but Milbourne's ample use of court-martials soon quelled that disturbance. Finally, Leisler tried desperately to collect the property tax, but the towns failed to name assessors and tax collectors, and few of them paid. Petitions against Leisler were sent to London, old women taunted him on the street, and crowds stoned him denouncing his tyranny and calling him such names as dog-driver, deacon-jailer, and little Cromwell. Cracking in all directions, Jacob Leisler's reign in New York was swiftly coming to an end in more ways than one. On March 19, 1691, Governor Henry Slaughter, appointed by the king almost two years before, finally made his long-delayed arrival in New York. Slaughter was thoroughly opposed to Leisler and his supposed rabble, and thoroughly partial to the old oligarchy, as seen by his defense before the Lords of Trade of the alleged necessity of New York City's port monopoly. But before Slaughter could arrive, Leisler had more troubles. At the beginning of 1691, Major Richard Inglesby arrived at New York with a troop of English regulars. Inglesby demanded that Leisler surrender the fort, but Leisler stubbornly maintained that Inglesby had no written authority from Slaughter or the king. Both sides now began to recruit forces. Large numbers of militiamen joined Leisler in response to the menace of the royal troop. Meanwhile, Thomas Clark, veteran opponent of Leisler, was raising troops for Inglesby on Long Island and arresting some Leislerians. Flatbush and Kings County were also centers of recruitment by Inglesby, and Westchester arrested several Leislerians. Civil war was now in the offing. Although an uneasy truce permitted Inglesby to quarter his troops at the city hall, both sides continued to threaten and to raise forces. Leisler darkly warned that all this was a papist plot against William and Mary and himself. Most eager for war against Leisler were Inglesby's theoreticians, the men appointed to Slaughter's council. This group, largely representing the old oligarchy, consisted of the still-imprisoned Nicholas Bayard, Stephanus Van Cortland, Frederick Phillips, and William Nichols who had been imprisoned along with Bayard, Gabriel Minvier, the lone militia captain who had always been against the revolution, William Smith, an anti-Lislerian, Thomas Willett, 
who had led Long Island revolts against Leisler and had plotted the June 6 assault upon him, William Pinhorn, an English merchant who had fled Leisler tyranny to East New Jersey, Chidley Brook, a relative of Slaughter, and the notorious Joseph Dudley, governor of the Dominion of New England before Andros. This group of advisers called on Inglesby to overthrow the Leisler rule. On March 16, Leisler issued a proclamation ordering Inglesby to cease his preparations for war and demanded an answer in two hours. Civil war then ensued within the city, with Inglesby capturing a blockhouse. Several hundred men on each side now skirmished with each other. When Governor Slaughter finally arrived on the 19th, he stepped into a developing civil war. Leisler continued to delay surrendering the fort, but finally did so. It is possible that pressure by Leisler's own men helped end his purposeless stubbornness. Since Leisler never proposed to mount a direct revolt against King William's authority, his continued balkiness made little sense. The old oligarchy now moved back in, thirsting for vengeance. Leisler and all his leading supporters were arrested and imprisoned. On the advice of his counsel, Slaughter quickly created a special court with ten supposedly unconcerned judges. Four bitter anti-Lyslerians and six veteran royal officials and partisans of Andros and Slaughter. Three of Leisler's most implacable enemies were assigned to prepare the evidence against the Lyslerians, and the three prosecuting attorneys were also bitter enemies of the prisoners. Charges against Leisler and his nine fellow defendants were the maximum, treason and murder, including traitorously levying war upon the king. Instead of following the usual practice of sending the defendants to England for a sober trial, the enemies of Leisler determined on speedy justice. To say that the charges, let alone the procedure, were excessively harsh would be an understatement. After all, Leisler, as lieutenant governor and commander-in-chief, had been acting upon a plausible commission from the king. The conflict with Inglesby, on which the charges rested, was a jurisdictional dispute, with legal lines hardly clear-cut. Yet, by March 31, the ten defendants had been indicted for treason and murder by a grand jury. The trial proceeded rapidly. Finally, Leisler, Milbourne, and six others, Gerardus Beekman, Abraham Gouverneur, Johannes Vermilge, Thomas Williams, Mindert Cortis, and Abraham Brasher, were convicted and sentenced to death, and their property was confiscated by a bill of attainder. Numerous other Leislerians, such as Joost Stoll, were indicted for riot. The Leisler jury, incidentally, was as packed as the special court of ten judges. Three of them had been leaders in the attempted June 6 assassination of Leisler, Two of the defendants, however, Peter Delanois and Samuel Edsel, were acquitted by the jury. This shocked people like Bayard, and later historians have hinted at bribery. Governor Slaughter, at this point, began to lose his nerve about carrying out these mass executions on his own responsibility. 
He therefore reprieved the six lesser, Lyslerians, and even asked for a royal pardon for them. The question now was what to do with Lysler and Milbourne. Slaughter's close friend, Nicholas Bayard, now led the pack calling for Lysler's blood as a warning against all future rebellion against the royal government. Three Dutch ministers close to the old oligarchy, led by Reverend Mr. Selyus, also called for death. The only minister pleading for reprieve was the Reverend Peter Dale, a Huguenot, who was fined by the new anti-Lessler assembly for these activities. Opposing the oligarchs was the voice of the people, who once again rallied around their former champion. Petitions with over 1,800 signatures were circulated calling for Leisler's reprieve. The sheriffs of Staten Island and other counties were ordered to arrest anyone circulating petitions for reprieve. Slaughter's council, led by Bayard, was bent on death and overrode the opposition of the relatively disinterested Dudley. The assembly agreed, and Leisler and Milbourne were executed on May 16, 1691. Slaughter was perhaps helped to decide for execution by a special gift of money from the anti-Lyslerian assembly. One interesting story about the hanging is that no carpenter could be found to supply a ladder, which had to be provided by the Reverend Mr. Sellis. If not strictly accurate, the story is indicative of the depth of popular feeling against the killing of Leisler. The revolutionary government in Massachusetts was, of course, none too pleased at this potential precedent. Reverend Increase Mather declared that the two men were barbarously murdered. But Massachusetts did not, like New York, have to face a strong and vindictive royal oligarchy. The upshot of the glorious revolution for New York was that, by the spring of 1691, the self-governing regime of Leisler was ended, and New York was again a royal colony, headed by a royal governor, with the old oligarchy back in power. But the retrogression was only partial. Slaughter came bearing instructions for New York to have a regularly elected assembly, an institution which that colony had never really had before. To this extent, considerable progress had been made since Dongan's pre-Dominion government. The first regular assembly met at the end of March 1691. While it was anti-Lyslerian, its actions of most lasting significance were those repealing the Carting Act, the provision for permanent financial support of the government, and the other acts of Dongan's short-lived Assembly of 1683. The Assembly thus placed the governor on notice that, though he could call and dissolve it at will, he was continually dependent on the Assembly for the raising of revenue. The new Assembly also greatly extended the definitions of rebellion and treason to include such vague offenses as disturbing the peace and quiet of the government. All land grants were reconfirmed. The New York City Council passed tighter regulations for carters and made requirements for freemanship more restrictive. The oligarchy was in power, but the Lyslerians remained active and embittered. 
The quarrel was intensified by the numerous damage suits put through by the oligarchy against the former Lyslerian leaders, and Delanoy, freed on the treason charge, was imprisoned by Slaughter for being Lysler's collector of customs. Governor Slaughter died in the summer of 1691, but his policy of vengeance was continued in full force by his acting successor, Major Inglesby, who was selected by the council. The new governor arriving in late summer 1692 was Benjamin Fletcher. Fletcher, who ruled during the 1690s, sided with the oligarchy, but was not the zealot that Inglesby was. He finally agreed to release the six Lyslerian prisoners as well as the minor convicts and to restore their confiscated estates. But first he forced the Lyslerians to admit their guilt, and he arbitrarily voided the election of several of them to the assembly. Fletcher, moreover, continued to mutter threats of execution against them until they finally secured a full pardon from the crown in 1694. Finally, Lyser was fully, though posthumously, vindicated when Parliament in 1695 retroactively absolved Lysler and Milbourne of guilt and annulled their convictions. The end of turmoil in New York in 1691 still left the status of post-glorious revolution Massachusetts unresolved. By the spring of 1690, the Crown had dismissed the Massachusetts charges against Andros and his aides, but argument over the permanent settlement continued to rage. Finally, in October 1691, after almost two years of struggle over the type of new charter to be issued, the Crown promulgated the new Massachusetts Charter. The new charter, which fixed the course of Massachusetts government for three quarters of a century, was part way between the old charter and the royal absolutism of the dominion. On the one hand, the self-government of the old charter was completely buried. Massachusetts was now a royal colony with a governor and lieutenant governor appointed by the crown rather than elected by the people. Furthermore, the governor was the dominant ruler of the colony. All military and judicial officers were to be appointed by him, with one exception. Admiralty courts, which enforced customs duties, would still depend on the crown for their makeup. Moreover, the governor could veto any legislation. In addition, the general court was to be called into being and dissolved at the governor's command. On the other hand, in contrast, to the totally dictatorial dominion, there was an elected assembly, the House of Representatives, which was to levy taxes and pay the salary of the government officials, including the governor. This power over government salaries was a mighty weapon for the House to wield. The council, the upper house of the general court, was to be elected indirectly by the whole general court rather than by the people, old charter, or royally appointed the Dominion. Its membership, however, was subject to the governor's veto, giving him substantial control over its affairs. Furthermore, the new council was not nearly as powerful as the old council of assistance. The latter's judicial powers were transferred to a new, appointed Supreme Court, and its executive powers shifted to the new governor. 
royal control was further provided by giving the king a veto of legislation and the power of appeal of major judicial decisions in the colony. In short, as a royal colony, Massachusetts' formal political structure was quite close to that of Virginia or even of New York, especially after its newly formed assembly exerted itself against the executive. One of the most momentous features of the Massachusetts Charter of 1691 was its change in the requirement for voting. Its sole test was now either a modest freehold property yielding 40 shillings in annual rent or any property, personal or landed, with a total value of 40 pounds sterling. No longer did Puritan church members have exclusive or even discriminatory rights to vote. Now everyone could vote who met the property qualifications, pitched so low as to make suffrage almost universal in the colony. Professor Robert E. Brown investigated the effect of the property qualification on voting eligibility. He found that in the 18th century, with over 90% of the people of Massachusetts being farmers and artisans owning their own farms, and with the average farm ranging from 80 to 180 acres, even an unusually tiny farm of 12 acres was worth over twice the minimum needed for voting. Even the 2% of the farmers who were tenants were generally worth considerably more than the requirement and the great bulk of the small number of town laborers were, even in the late 18th century, let alone the late 17th, artisan entrepreneurs rather than wage workers in the modern sense. Generally, the estates of even the humblest artisans were far above the voting minimum. A lethal blow had at long last been delivered to the Puritan theocracy. Liberty of conscience was granted by the Charter to all Christians except Catholics. The vital land question was amicably settled by automatically reconfirming New England land titles and by not requiring quit-rents on any land to be granted in the future. All mineral rights were, happily, granted to the colony, but the king reserved to himself all trees with a diameter larger than two feet, for the use of the Royal Navy. As a sweetener to Massachusetts for the deprivation of its old self-government, the new charter granted to Massachusetts the main towns, Permaquid, Eastern Maine transferred from New York, Nova Scotia, newly captured from the French, and Plymouth. The Mason claims, as we have seen, kept New Hampshire as an independent royal colony, with the people struggling against the gubernatorial rule of the proprietary claimant. Long without an agent in England to defend its interest, Plymouth, the old mother colony, met its demise, suffering the same fate at the hands of Massachusetts as New Haven had at the hands of Connecticut three decades before. Plymouth's general court met for the last time in July, 1692. Before dissolving, it set aside a day to be kept as a day of solemn fasting and humiliation. Apart from Massachusetts' territorial expansion, the only remaining remnant of the Dominion concept was the Charter's grant to Massachusetts of command over the militia of all the New England colonies. But this attempt at centralized command 
proved to be ineffective as the colonists refused to serve outside their own colonies. Elijah Cook and Thomas Oates, Massachusetts agents in England, were too embittered to agree to the new charter, but Reverend Increase Mather decided to swallow his chagrin, particularly at granting the vote to non-Puritans, and to lead the colony to acceptance of the new dispensation. He and his friends of the ruling clique could at least look forward to sharing power with the crown. Increase Mather was also able to take comfort in the fact that he was allowed by the crown to name the first governor, lieutenant governor, and counselors, who, in contrast to all the succeeding counselors, were appointive. At Mather's guidance, the lusty Sir William Phipps, an old friend of Mather's and the hero of Port Royal, was appointed governor. William Stoughton, always emerging on top, was selected as lieutenant governor. Committed to the new dispensation, Mather brought back into the council Waite Winthrop and others of the old merchant opportunists and excluded several of the most hard-line advocates of the old charter. These included such determined men of principle as Cook, Oates, and their leader, Thomas Danforth. Finally, Phipps, with Mather, arrived in Boston to take charge in May 1692. During its first session in that year, the new general court completed the framework that was to rule Massachusetts until the end of the 18th century. One law chartered town corporations. Another established the framework of representation in elections for the new general court. A common myth about this framework, much propagated by later writers, asserts that the seaboard towns were overrepresented in the general court, and that this malapportionment was perpetuated during the following century, giving ever greater over-representation to the merchant aristocracy of the seaboard towns, as against the newer and smaller agricultural towns. In the first place, we have noted that the 40-shilling or 40-pound property qualification was, again contrary to later myths, low enough to allow almost everyone to vote. Therefore, if the seaboard did dominate, it was a domination based upon the votes of the seaboard's average man. But, second, this plausible contention, plausible because population in fact moved westward from the seaboard, and a democracy will almost inevitably overrepresent older sections, turns out to be the reverse of the truth. For the 1692 apportionment law laid down the following rules. A town with less than 40 eligible voters could send one representative to the house if it desired, but this was not compulsory. A town of more than 40 qualified voters was compelled to send a representative. A town of over 120 eligible voters could send two delegates, but was forced to send at least one. Furthermore, no town, regardless of size, could send more than two delegates except Boston, which could send four. Note that this basic law of 1692, which remained essentially in effect until 1775, far from privileging the large old towns, did precisely the opposite. Any new town was entitled to a representative, but no town could have more than two. 
This ensured substantial overrepresentation of the smaller agricultural towns as against the larger seaport areas, and it also ensured that as new small towns were added over the years, this agricultural small town overrepresentation would be intensified. It is intriguing that, far from complaining about discrimination, the larger towns were quite satisfied with this arrangement, whereas it was the smaller towns that were constantly trying to reduce their own representation to evade the necessity of sending delegates. It must be concluded that in those days of small pay for legislators, the cost of sending a delegate to Boston was greater than the benefits resulting. A startling testimony to the low degree of state intervention in Massachusetts society during the 18th century. For the absence of privileges and benefits from sharing in state power indicates that the overall impact of that power on society and the economy must have been low indeed. Another basic law passed in 1692 established the new framework for town government in Massachusetts. As developed in this and later acts, the town meeting had many highly democratic and liberal features, notably annual elections to ensure very frequent popular checks on municipal officials. Also, the provision that any ten persons could place an item on the town meeting agenda. By this period, the town proprietors had little political say-so, rule being exercised by the freemen of the town. It is, again, another heralded myth that town voting was more democratic than voting for representatives. Quite the contrary. Although relative quantities fluctuated because of changes in money value, in the basic law the property qualifications for town voting, while still low, averaged about 25% higher than for provincial voting. As a result, the best estimate is that under this basic law, the town franchise comprised 75 to 80 percent of the males, as compared to well over 90 percent for provincial elections. The brutal domination of the Puritan theocracy, having faded under compelling pressures during three decades, had now been eliminated. No longer could the Puritan theocrats hang Quakers or persecute heretics. No longer could they compel people to attend the Puritan church. No more could they preclude non-Puritans from voting in town or provincial elections. The watchful eye of the royal governor and the rising influence of the far more worldly, though nominally, Puritan merchants would be there to prevent a resurrection. What was the reaction of the Puritans to this new charter? The basic reaction of the Puritans to their bitter defeat was to fall back on a second line of defense. If they could no longer persecute Anglicans or Quakers, they could at least establish the Puritan church and have the satisfaction of forcing the unbelievers to pay for Puritan church support. The Puritans lost no time in so doing. A law of 1692 forced each town to pay for, maintain one or more Puritan ministers. All taxpayers were forced to pay for their support. 
The first year, all the taxpayers of each town, being forced to finance their local Puritan ministers, were entitled to choose their own. But the following year, 1693, the choice of its minister was placed on each congregation to be ratified by town taxpayers and attendees of the church. In 1694, the Puritan establishment tightened further. A group of ministers protested that non-Puritans were blocking ratification of ministers. The general court obligingly provided that a council of local Puritan elders. Could keep a minister in office regardless of the vote of the town freemen. As a corollary to the establishment of the Puritan Church, a law of 1692 also forced every town to hire a schoolmaster. Here was an attempt to erect a network of public education in the colony. If the Puritans could no longer force everyone to attend their churches. They could at least impose Sunday blue laws on all. A law of 1692 prohibited all work, games, travel, and entertainment on the Sabbath. Violations were punishable by fine, stocks, whipping, or jail. But enforcement of these edicts became an increasingly aggravating problem. Volume One, Chapter Fifty Nine. Aftermath in the 1690s. The Salem Witch Hunt and Stoughton's rise to power. The Glorious Revolution imposed the last great settlement on the Northern Colonies. After the smoke of the tumult was over, Massachusetts, New York, and New Hampshire were royal colonies similarly structured. The main forces of conflict were, as they had long been in Virginia, the royal governor and his oligarchic council on the one hand, and the more democratic assembly representing the people of the colony on the other. In New York, the royal and landed oligarchy had been particularly strong and rapacious for many years, and the institution of a representative assembly was just beginning. In Massachusetts, as We have seen the electoral base made the always more democratic assembly an especially democratic and relatively liberal voice of the people, whereas the new royal post of governor bid fair to preserve the rewards of oligarchic and royal rule. When Massachusetts heard the news of the new charter at the turn of 1692, a power vacuum opened in the colony. The new institution of royal governor offered a tempting prospect for oligarchic power and plunder, despite the prospect of conflict with the popular House of Representatives. But it was still not clear which group would take control. The old Puritan theocracy was in rather frantic retreat from external and internal blows, but still remained strong in the colony. The new coalition of Governor Phipps and Increase Mather was an alliance of moderates. Mather, rather half-heartedly, was trying to lead the more fanatical Puritans to the new realities of a more pluralistic and liberal society. Phipps, highly liberal for a royal official, and as Massachusetts governor, was strongly sympathetic to the colony's desires for freedom from the exactions and regulations of the crown. 
If the Mather-Phipps coalition had been allowed to continue in control, Massachusetts might have found a tolerable and even welcome path into the 18th century. The steady easing of Puritan restrictions combined with a decided drift back to effective Massachusetts independence from royal depredations. In short, Massachusetts might have been able to advance toward a synthesis of the best of the two contending sides of the recent past, the self-government and freedom of trade of the Puritans without the theocratic persecutions, and the religious freedom and mercantile cosmopolitanism of the pro-royal opportunist without the royal despotism. But such a synthesis for liberal independence was not to be, for at the heart of the new regime was a sinister canker, Lieutenant Governor William Stoughton. Stoughton was determined to overthrow this moderate liberalism in order that he and his friends, including the formerly discredited Joseph Dudley, might return to power and that he might renew his plundering of Massachusetts. Stoughton and Dudley were determined to regain power and to reimpose a royal absolutism that they would lead at the head of a newly plundering oligarchy. To do this, they would have to discredit and eliminate Governor Phipps. With great luck, William Stoughton found his opportunity at hand, opportunity to split the ordinarily anti-royalist masses and to rally the body of Puritan theocrats behind him. In short, Stoughton found a way to rally the two extremes to swing the Puritan masses behind his Tory opportunist in order to crush the moderate center. This opportunity was the notorious Salem witch hunt of 1692. Witchcraft had always been a capital crime in New England, but it had also been almost entirely a dead letter. The problem, after all, was obtaining evidence of guilt, and until now the sober judges and leaders of the community had not been willing to credit spectral evidence the unsupported testimony of a historical victim of witchcraft that somebody's spectral witch shape had appeared to attack him. But now Puritan zeal was in retreat on many fronts. Notably was it retreating from the burgeoning rationalistic and skeptical temper. Perhaps the Puritan leaders felt a re-emphasis on spectral evidence and the powers of witchcraft could vindicate the true faith and roll back the tide of rationalism and secularism. As early as 1681, a group of leading Puritan divines had decided to combat rationalism by gathering supposed evidence of the supernatural in earthly affairs. Among these evidences was witchcraft, one of the leaders of this project was Reverend Increase Mather. In 1684, he compiled A Galaxy of Superstitions, an essay for the recording of illustrious providences, which is a record of the deeds of magicians and gremlins and which had considerable impact on the public temper. Careful attention was paid by the Puritan ministers to any cases of hysterical children that they could find. 
the ministers would quickly see in them evidences of witchcraft and demon possession. With the most eminent divines of the colony paying eager and almost loving attention to any signs of juvenile hysteria, these signs were accordingly encouraged and nurtured by the eager solemnity with which they were greeted. The Reverend Cotton Mather took one of these young girls into his home, the better to record the memorable providences, 1689. The time was now ripe for the Puritan divines to lead a frenzied mob in a determined rear-guard attempt to reinstall Puritan fanaticism in its old home, an attempt that would be abetted and used by Stoughton and the Tory opportunist. In February 1692, at the town of Salem Village, now Danvers, these reactionary forces found their chance. The stage had been set by the solemn findings of the Mathers. Now a group of young girls of Salem Village became bewitched and began the delightful game of accusing other people, at first mostly personal enemies, of witchcraft. The leaders of the bewitched girls were the two daughters of the Puritan divine, Reverend Samuel Paris, and so their accusations were taken all the more seriously. At first... Neighbors who had annoyed the girls were accused of being witch tormentors, but like an infection, the accusations spread with great speed throughout the colony. Legal proceedings commenced. Since spectral evidence was now accepted by the courts, the supposed witches were quickly condemned, imprisoned, and hanged. After the classic pattern of intimidation and informing, Reprieve came only if the witch would confess his or her guilt. And the confession was deemed sincere, only if other people, accomplices, were named. Many of these confessions were extracted under torture. The circle of accusations thus became ever wider. The first hanging was that of a neighbor of the Paris family, Sarah Good, whose five-year-old daughter was even imprisoned as a witch. Beginning with helpless old women, the circle of victims of the witch hunt soon expanded. The Reverend George Burroughs, a retired Puritan minister himself, had the bad fortune of incurring the dislike of the Parises. Burroughs was duly accused of being a leading witch. Witches are male as well as female, of confederacy with the devil, and so forth. Reverend Mr. Burroughs was accused by several of the girls of witchcraft. The unfortunate minister became the most prominent victim of the witch hunt. Although the more moderate increase Mather was dubious of the spectral evidence, his son Cotton had no such doubts, and eagerly whipped up the witch hunt generally, and specifically against Burroughs. Plagued by dishonest or deluded witnesses and biased judges, Burroughs was sentenced to be hanged. It was no wonder that Burroughs, a good Puritan, was led by these proceedings to disbelieve in witchcraft altogether, a dose of rationalism imbibed by many who were falsely accused in their turn. On the day of Burroughs' execution, he made a brief and moving statements of his innocence, concluding with the Lord's Prayer. The crowd, convinced of his innocence, began to move to free the unfortunate Burroughs, but Cotton Mather, 
playing a role reminiscent of Reverend Mr. Wilson's at the hanging of Mary Dyer a generation before, stepped to the fore and explained to the crowd that it was easy for an agent of the devil to simulate innocence. Thanks to Cotton Mather, the hanging of the venerable wizard proceeded according to schedule. The witch hunt flourished. One unfortunate woman, Martha Carrier, denounced by Cotton Mather as a rampant hag, found that her four children had been induced to testify against her. In a Boston court, even a bewitched dog was solemnly tried, convicted, and executed. When Sir William Phipps arrived in Boston, he found the colony under a full head of witch-hunt steam. He found over one hundred accused witches in prison and awaiting trial. In over his depth, he turned, unfortunately, to the Mathers for advice. The Mathers and the rest of the clergy called for continual efforts to detect and root out witchcraft in the colony. The crime must meet speedy and vigorous prosecution. The Mathers did warn that more than spectral evidence should be required for conviction, but this was a mere pro forma note of caution, unheeded by them or by the judges. Phipps then centralized the witch trials. On advice of the council, he turned over all witch trials to a special court of seven counselors. Naively, Phipps wrote William Blaithwaite that the seven judges were persons of the best prudence. Chief judge and strongman of the new court was Lieutenant Governor Stoughton. The other counselors constituted, in the words of Professor Don, a perfect microcosm of the Massachusetts ruling coalition, Puritans and Tory opportunists. Trusting believingly that all was safe and in sober hands, Phipps left for Maine to fight Indians. Stoughton was left in charge of the court, which opened in Salem in early June. Too many writers have treated the Salem witch hunt in psychological terms, childish neuroses and mob hysteria. The vital point is not the hysteria of children, but the use made of it by the adult society. Neither can the witch hunt be treated as a case study in mob psychology, for the witch hunt was not a lynching bee, but a program carried out by the elite of the colony and directed by the lieutenant governor himself, the man whose major aim had long been the exercise of power. During the summer, the witch hunt centering in Salem spread throughout the colony. Other young girls joined in the business of being bewitched and of leveling accusations until their number rose to fifty. Favorite targets of accusations were any who dared to raise their voice to criticize the witch hunt or even to assert that witches didn't exist at all. Concentration on these targets served to intimidate critics of the veritable reign of terror. This same cause was served by executing, as evident proof of diabolism, any conscience-stricken informer who dared to recant his implication of other persons. To make sure of verdicts against the accused, Lieutenant Governor Stoughton decided remarkably to operate under the old charter rules. 
As a result, the jurors were chosen only from the ranks of Puritan church members, and the hapless defendants were allowed no rights of counsel. And, crucially, the special high court decided to admit all spectral evidence under the rather dubious assumption that the devil could not assume the spectral shape of non-witches. All of the witch executions, including Burroughs's, were the handiwork of the Staunton Court. By the end of September, the High Court had condemned 27 for witchcraft and had executed 20. Fifty witches had escaped punishment by confession, an additional hundred were in prison awaiting trial, and some two hundred more were accused but not yet imprisoned. This amounted to almost one percent of Massachusetts' population being accused of witchcraft during a period of only a few months. Here and there brave men literally took their lives in their hands by coming out openly against the monstrous proceedings. Young Joseph Putnam, a relative of one of the bewitched girls, offered his home as refuge to any accused witch and announced with loaded guns that anyone who should come to arrest him for witchcraft would come at his own peril. More silently, Counselor Nathaniel Saltonstall, one of the judges on the special court, withdrew in disgust from the proceedings. The eminent young liberal Puritan of Ipswich, Reverend John Wise, who had led Massachusetts' opposition to the Andros regime, now spoke up in defense of two accused parishioners, as did twenty neighbors of the accused couple and the prominent liberal merchant of Boston, Thomas Brattle, widely distributed an open letter, a full and candid account of the delusion called witchcraft which prevailed in New England. Brattle denounced the New Salem philosophy and attacked the suppression of personal liberty upon spectral evidence. Prophetically, Brattle warned, What will be the issue of these troubles God only knows? I am afraid that ages will not wear off that reproach and those stains which these things will leave behind them upon our land. As the bewitched girls and their adult supporters felt their newfound power, the social level of their accusations continued to rise. Beginning with poor crones, the accusers now began to strike at some of the most eminent men of the colony. The renowned Puritan minister of Boston, Reverend Samuel Willard, was accused of witchcraft, although this was understandable in view of Willard's criticism of the witch trials. But soon the girls moved to strike at some of the leaders of the witch hunt itself, the wife of Reverend John Hale of Beverly, one of the most ardent of the witch hunters, was accused of being a witch. So, too, the mother-in-law of one of the most zealous of the judges in prosecuting the witches. It is not surprising that Hale soon came to see that the witch hunt was a double-edged sword, and he joined the outspoken critics of the witch trials. Perhaps the most interesting and tactically the most mistaken of the accusation was the one leveled against none other than Lady Phipps, wife of the governor. The Phippses were liberally inclined, and during her husband's absence, Lady Phipps angered the hardline witch hunters by ordering that one of the accused witches be freed. And so, 
in the full, heady exercise of its terrorizing power, the witch-hunt reached too far. It moved against the Phippses themselves, against, in short, the major obstacle to Stoughton's assumption of power in Massachusetts. The witch-hunters had made their fatal mistake. Phipps, never enthusiastic about the witch-hunt, now turned flatly against it. At the end of September, he suspended the special court and all its proceedings for a three-month period. As Phipps explained to the Crown, some were accused of whose innocency I was well assured, and many considerable persons of unblameable life and conversations were cried out upon as witches and wizards. Increase Mather concurred in suspending the infamous court, but his son Cotton tried his best to have the witch trials continued. In fact, the witch hunt was not yet over. Phipps again journeyed to Maine, and a large number of colonists, including ministers and judges, seized this opportunity to press for continuation of the trials, even though in defiance of Phipps' order. The Reverend Samuel Torrey was particularly eager to get on with the prosecutions. The matter now came before the general court, and debate was intense. The hardliners were determined to continue the trials as before. The moderates called instead for a convocation of ministers to advise the government, with the trials to be suspended meanwhile. The resolution for a convocation passed the general court by a very close 33-29 vote. The margin of victory included those who either had been themselves accused of witchcraft or had had relatives so accused. If not for their votes, the general court would have continued the witch hunt. When Phipps returned, such counselors as the old Puritan Samuel Sewell and James Russell tried desperately to persuade him to change his mind and continue the prosecutions, but to no avail. When the convocation of Puritan ministers assembled, the hardline old guard, sensing its defeat, remained away, and so the proceedings were dominated by such relative liberals as William Hubbard, Samuel Willard, and John Wise. The ministers put the question to increase Mather, who gave the expected moderate advice. The devil, Mather maintained, is capable of taking the shape of innocent persons. This could be seen, he shrewdly noted, by the fact that many ardent believers in the guilt of the witches were themselves soon accused or found a close relative in that position. And with the devil that able, spectral evidence was clearly worth little or nothing. Using the moderate Mather formula, Phipps ended the old special court and after the general court incorporated the Massachusetts judicial system into the charter, Phipps created in January 1693 a new superior court, which heard the witch cases. The court, under Phipps' orders to prohibit the use of spectral evidence, found it difficult to indict or convict witches. Of over 50 suspect witches, 26 were tried and only three convicted and sentenced to death. William Stoughton, Chief Justice of the Old Court, now assumed that office in the new. A hardliner to the end, he happily prepared to execute the three convicted women, along with five who had been condemned by the Old Court, 
but despite Stoughton's indecent haste, the eight executions were barred at the end of January by last-minute reprieve from Governor Phipps. The reprieve was cheered by thousands in the colony, but it infuriated Stoughton. Rising in passionate anger, Stoughton thundered that the court, if left unhampered, would have cleared Massachusetts at last of witches. But now justice was obstructed, and the task unfulfilled, thus advancing the kingdom of Satan. Stoughton left the implied question unstated. Was Phipps consciously doing the devil's work? With this diatribe, Stoughton tempestuously quit the court. The court proceedings dragged on for several months, but the heart was now out of it. The juries began to acquit everyone, despite the anger of the judges. Finally, in April, a servant girl, May Watkins, was indicted for witchcraft and acquitted by the jury. The court forced the jury to reconsider, but the panel was adamant. About this time, the remaining prisoners were released. The Salem Reign of Terror was over. The side of the coin opposite that of the myth of mob hysteria should be noted. For one thing, the witch hunt was led and directed by the elite of the colony, the magistrates and the ministers. In addition, by no means were all the masses caught up in the witch frenzy. On the contrary, it was the revulsion of the people, as shown at the borough's execution and particularly by the jury acquittals, that was instrumental in bringing the witch trials to an end. In addition, popular petitions had flowed into the government, denouncing the informers and defending the accused. The end of the witch hunt left Phipps in a very weak political position in the colony. Hated by the hardliners for stopping the witch trials, Phipps had equally disenchanted his natural supporters, the liberals, by condoning the trials in the first place. The whole prosecution, after all, had been conducted by officials of his administration, and so Phipps bore ultimate responsibility. The fanatical Puritan old guard, meanwhile, was not so constituted as to give up without a fight. The people of Massachusetts had almost been won back to the old faith and zeal by the frenzy of the witch hunt. Perhaps they could yet be won back with a further campaign against witchcraft. The indefatigable Cotton Mather now dug up the case of Margaret Rule, a bewitched girl of seventeen. Mather found the case, asked the girl numerous leading questions, gave her great publicity, tried in vain to get some accusations, and then wrote up the case in the monograph Another Brand Plucked Out of the Burning. Mather distributed the essay widely as an open letter. Phipps had banned any publication on witchcraft. Mather might have been successful in reviving the witch-hunting spirit had it not been for a courageous Boston cloth merchant, Robert Califf, who stopped him in his tracks. Bitter at the clergy's whipping up of the Salem witch-hunt, Caliph attended Margaret's public examination by Mather and refuted it in 1694 in an open letter of his own. Infuriated, Mather denounced Caliph as one of the worst of liars and had him arrested for slander. But Mather prudently decided not to press charges 
and Caliph kept peppering Mather with letters pointing to the unreliability of the evidence and the absurdity of the accusation of witchcraft. Ministers and magistrates joined in reviling Caliph as an atheist, but he stood his ground. President Increase Mather and the fellows of Harvard College, all but one of them Puritan ministers, joined the fray in March 1694, trumpeting the remarkables of supernatural intervention in the natural world and asking people to send to the Harvard fellows more such evidences. Caliph, with cutting sarcasm, sent in his own list of remarkables, the deaths of one of the witch-hunting judges, of two sons of another judge, and so forth. Finally, in 1700, the intrepid Caliph gathered the whole inflammable discussion into one book, More Wonders of the Invisible World, published in London, as no Boston printer would dare to publish it. Increase Mather had the book publicly burned in Harvard Yard, but this only served to spread the book more widely. Caliph's More Wonders, indeed, had served to crystallize the popular revulsion against the whole witch-hunt episode and its leadership. The instigator of the witch-hunt, Reverend Samuel Paris, was now driven out of his Salem parish by the aroused congregation, and one of the main bewitched girls of Salem confessed her dishonesty and begged forgiveness. The Massachusetts General Court itself admitted in 1696 that it had committed wrongs by participating in the witch hunt. And in the same year, Counselor Samuel Sewell, one of the witch hunt judges, confessed his errors publicly and had the liberal Reverend Samuel Willard read the confession aloud in church. Willard read the noble words, Samuel Sewell being made sensible that as to the guilt At Salem, he is more concerned than any that he knows of, desires to take the blame and shame of it, asking of men and especially desiring prayers that God would pardon that sin. Perhaps the supreme irony of the entire affair was that Margaret Rule, who, like so many of the other afflicted, turned to promiscuity in later life, After prodding by Cotton Mather to tell the name of the witch who was afflicting her, named Mather himself as the guilty wizard. Unsurprisingly, Cotton Mather's interest in witchcraft dwindled markedly after that. But through it all remained Lieutenant Governor William Stoughton, as always unrepentant, as always ready to come out on top. Phipps had lost prestige from the witch frenzy, The old Puritan theocrats had been thoroughly discredited. Rationalism was now stronger than ever, but political events were bringing Staunton to the brink of power. Governor Phipps now lost the confidence of the Crown for taking a vigorous part in defending Massachusetts' liberties against the depredations of royal officials and for his conflicts with other governors. In the summer of 1692, a Captain Short tried to impress Bostonians into the English Navy. When two members of the Massachusetts General Court opposed these despotic acts, Short invaded their homes and assaulted them. Short then failed to obey orders by Phipps to follow him eastward to Maine. 
Infuriated at these peccadilloes, Phipps, on his return to Boston in early 1693, fought with Captain Short on the street, knocked him down, and beat his cane over Short's head. Phipps then imprisoned Short and had him shipped to England for trial. In connection with Short's arrest, the governor also got into a row with Short's successor and with the government of New Hampshire. In addition, Phipps, in his capacity as commander-in-chief of the king's armed forces in the Northeast, came into conflict with Lieutenant Governor Usher of New Hampshire, who repulsed Phipps' attempt to inspect the fort at Portsmouth, as well as his demand to search the New Hampshire towns for deserters from an English ship. Governor Phipps also defended Massachusetts' liberties in opposing the depredations of Jalil Brenton, whom Edward Randolph had contrived to have appointed as royal collector of customs for New England. Brenton, son of Rhode Island merchant William Brenton, enforced the duties rigorously, but Phipps joined the Massachusetts merchants in arguing that jurisdiction over customs, collecting, belonged to his own, more pliable, naval officers. When Brenton, toward the end of 1693, seized a ship arriving in Boston from the West Indies, the irascible Phipps threatened to break every bone in Brenton's body and to cut off the ears of Brenton's witnesses if, if he did not release the vessel. Phipps punctuated the threat by beating Brenton with his cane and fist. Even Edward Randolph, Though Surveyor General of the King's Customs in America was flatly refused an accounting of the customs books by Governor Phipps. Moreover, Phipps sponsored a proposal to exempt Massachusetts from the exactions and requirements of the Navigation Acts. And when the Speaker of the Massachusetts House, Nathaniel Byfield, had the temerity to call for greater royal control over Massachusetts, With the notorious Joseph Dudley as governor, Phipps had him expelled from the house. In addition, Phipps, a man of decided pro-Leslurian sympathies, came into sharp conflict with Governor Benjamin Fletcher of New York, a partisan of the royalist oligarchy of that colony. Both men claimed jurisdiction over the Connecticut militia, and Fletcher threatened to take under New York jurisdiction the island of Martha's Vineyard, by this time a part of Massachusetts. Fletcher also demanded the surrender of young Abraham Governor, one of the convicted but released Leslarians who had moved to Boston. Governor had written a letter, seized by Fletcher, highly critical of the New York chief executive. Phipps angrily refused Fletcher's importunate demand, and also informed Fletcher's agent that New York's former governor, Henry Slaughter, should have been brought to trial because of his murder of Leisler and Milborn. With the accumulation of Cases concerning Phipps's opposition to royal power over Massachusetts. The king finally yielded to the charges, especially Brenton's, and to the anti-Phipps machinations of men like Joseph Dudley, and recalled Phipps to England in February 1694 to answer charges of misconduct. Fighting for his political life, Phipps tried to obtain a vote of support for his continuance by the general court. Bolstered by the support of Increase Mather, Phipps won a bare majority of the Democratic House of Representatives, 
but the relatively oligarchic council, headed by the implacable Stoughton, was determined to dispose of Phipps. Phipps finally sailed for England at the end of 1694 and died soon after arriving in England. Phipps's recall and death left the executive power in the hands of none other than Lieutenant Governor Stoughton, who now achieved his long-term objective of assuming power in Massachusetts. Stoughton was to remain as acting governor for the remainder of the decade. With Phipps gone, the days of a liberal governor were over, no more any quixotic defense of Massachusetts' liberties. Instead, Stoughton swiftly molded a pro-royalist ruling clique of spoilsmen and plunderers in the best Dudley tradition. Stoughton's major allies were the self-same Dudley, still trying to win the permanent spot of governor, and Speaker Byfield, whose daughter was married to Stoughton's nephew. Opposition to Stoughton centered in the more democratic lower house. Thus, in 1696, the House of Representatives voted to send an agent to England to work for restoration of the old Massachusetts Charter, but the council oligarchy naturally vetoed the plan. With the glorious revolution over, a royal government fixed on Massachusetts and the inconclusive war with France dragging to a close, and in 1697, with the status quo ante restored in the colonies, King William now had time to turn his attention to enforcing the imperial system upon America. The great trading center of Massachusetts especially needed attention, for there the navigation laws were still virtually unenforced. The London merchants in particular were pressing the crown more than ever to crack down on their colonial rivals. As a result, three significant steps were taken to tighten imperial control of the colonies and to compel enforcement of the navigation laws. For one thing, Parliament in 1696 passed another navigation act, which, one, confined all colonial trade to English-built ships, two, required all colonial governors, including the elected governors of Connecticut and Rhode Island, to take an oath to enforce the navigation laws, three, gave the royal customs official in the colonies the right of forcible search and seizure, Four stipulated that colonial governors appointed by proprietors must be approved by the king. Five forced merchants re-exporting enumerated articles bought from another colony, for example tobacco from the south, to post a bond to ensure that the goods not be sold to another European country. And six authorized the crown to establish special vice-admiralty courts to enforce the navigation laws. Second, also in 1696, the administration of colonial affairs was taken from the Lords of Trade, a committee of the Privy Council dominated by the court aristocracy, and shifted to a new and independent Board of Trade. Although the new board contained seven privy councillors, the active working members were eight paid officials, generally representing the London merchants. 
Among its many functions, the board was empowered to recommend the disallowing of laws conflicting with English law or policy. The third step, the following year, was the creation by the Privy Council of the Network of Vice-Admiralty Courts for the Colonies, authorized in the Navigation Act. These courts were specially created for the trial and punishment of violators of the Navigation Acts. Prior to 1697, accused violators were tried at the regular common law colonial courts. This meant that the judges were colonists, who probably disapproved of the restrictive laws, and that the trials were by juries, almost invariably sympathetic to the violators. To surmount this problem, the Privy Council now commissioned the royal colonial governors as vice-admirals, each empowered to create a vice-admiralty court under his jurisdiction. The vice-admiralty court could now convict violators without the inconvenience of putting the case to a jury of the defendant's peers, for here trial was conducted by the judge only. The judges, of course, were to be royal officials, in effect appointed by the governors, as were all of the vice-admiralty court officials. In practice, the judges had the full management of the vice-admiralty courts, and to ensure diligence in convicting offenders, the judges were paid a percentage of the value of the violator's goods that they condemned. Enhancing the power of each judge was the fact that each court had one judge only, although in some cases the judge appointed a deputy to try cases. For instance, the judge of the Massachusetts court, the jurisdiction of which covered New Hampshire, appointed a deputy for the latter colony. Since the vice-admiralty post were only assigned to royal governors, the Massachusetts court was assigned jurisdiction over Rhode Island and the New York court over Connecticut and the Jerseys. In 1699, the English also moved against the growth of manufacturing in America. The colonists were accustomed to rural household manufacture of textiles for their own use, but now New England and Long Island were beginning to manufacture woolens for commercial markets and beginning to outcompete the powerful English woolen industry. Not only were the English manufacturers alarmed, but so also were the English merchants, who stood to lose control of the trade of the southern colonies should the latter purchase their manufactured goods from Boston instead of from England. Therefore, Parliament passed the Woolen Act of 1699, prohibiting the export of wool or woolens from any American colony, even to another colony. Instrumental in drafting and implementing these measures was none other than the old enemy of the American colonies, Edward Randolph. Randolph had had a great deal of experience with recalcitrant juries in the early 1680s and renewed that experience when Surveyor General of the Customs in America in the early 1690s. His later enforcement difficulties occurred particularly in Maryland, and by the spring of 1694, Randolph was reporting to England on Trade Act enforcement, 
I find that by the partiality of juries and others that I can obtain no cause for His Majesty upon the most apparent evidences. Returning home in the fall of 1695, Randolph submitted a lengthy memorandum on his findings. Randolph was now brought in to advise on the new Navigation Act, and he was one of the two co-authors of the original draft of the Act. Randolph then went to work for the new Board of Trade, of which his old friend, the Earl of Bridgewater, was president. And when the officers of the Vice-Admiralty Courts were selected, Randolph's suggestions were adopted, as were roughly the boundaries of the court districts. One of the major disputes in framing the Navigation Act stemmed from Randolph's attempt to impose a royally appointed attorney general in every colony. To transfer full power over their trade from the colonies to the crown, it was necessary for the prosecuting attorneys to be under crown control. Randolph wanted the crown to appoint all the attorneys general of the colonies directly, but the colonies themselves and their proprietors bitterly protested such a change, and the crown finally decided to appoint advocates general to prosecute admiralty cases, but to allow the colonies to continue to choose their own attorneys general. This meant that crown agents would be limited to admiralty cases and further that jurisdictional disputes over the courts of trial might loom large in the future. The upshot was a diversity of pattern in the several colonies, but generally the colonial attorneys general were used also as crown advocates general. Only in Massachusetts and Virginia was a separate crown official appointed. Because of Randolph's good offices, Nathaniel Byfield was selected as the judge of the Massachusetts and New Hampshire Admiralty Court. But Waite Winthrop, the old weak-willed moderate and member of the council, could not possibly accept this crowning of the nefarious Stoughton-Byfield alliance. These were the men whom Winthrop privately referred to as the Jacobite clique, the high Tory followers of the pretender James II who have in a little time got more by the government than all that have been before, who eat up the poor as bread and squeeze them to death by virtue of an office. With the Massachusetts Council overriding Stoughton and refusing to assent to Byfield's appointment, Winthrop, pulling strings in England, was able to get himself appointed as judge instead. Randolph bitterly concluded that the Massachusetts smugglers had turned out Mr. Byfield, a man zealous for having the acts of trade duly executed. Volume 1, Chapter 60 The Liberalism of Lord Bellomont in the Royal Colonies The settlement after the Glorious Revolution had made New Hampshire a royal colony. Samuel Allen, claimant to the proprietorship, was named royal governor. Allen's son-in-law, the wealthy John Usher, served as lieutenant governor and resident executive of the colony. Usher struggled with the assembly throughout the 1690s. He continually asked it for tax money, which the assemblyman claimed the colony was too poor to afford, and tried to conscript troops which they failed to supply. 
The assembly was thus the spokesman for the liberties of the people against the exactions of the royal and proprietary executive. Usher's attempts to collect quit rents was largely futile, as no quit rents could be collected from a New Hampshire jury. When Usher urged the assembly to raise more taxes, it replied that it would do so only if Usher would join them in petitioning for a return of the province to Massachusetts. Finally, mass pressure from the citizens of New Hampshire persuaded Allen to discharge his generally hated son-in-law and to fill his post in 1697 with the treasurer of New Hampshire, William Partridge. Partridge, powerful at court as a heavy supplier of mast and timber to the Royal Navy, now fought it out with Usher before the legislature for the office of lieutenant governor. The council and assembly insisted on Partridge in what the rattled Usher described as the Piscataqua Rebellion. The assembly sent its profound thanks to the king for the new appointment. In regard to the tyrannical Usher, the assembly assured the crown that there had been no disturbances but what he himself had made. We already noted that Benjamin Fletcher became royal governor of New York in 1692, and that, though the convicted Lyslerians were allowed their rehabilitation, Fletcher was a staunch partisan of the old oligarchy. After the Leslarians received full royal pardon, Fletcher had to let Delanois and others take their seats as assemblymen. He later blamed their obstructions for the allegedly inadequate defenses of the colony. In addition, Fletcher kept the conflicts alive by threatening to shoot anyone who in the May 1695 election would dare to vote for Delanois. In the New York City elections that year, the despotic Fletcher sent roving bands of soldiers and sailors through the streets, threatening to draft anyone who happened to vote incorrectly. These troops were also made freemen of the city arbitrarily in order to gain their votes against the popular Leslarian party. Such methods of intimidation were successful in confining public offices to the hands of the minority oligarchy. Economically, Fletcher feathered his own nest and those of the oligarchy in many ways. For one thing, in return for lavish bribes, Fletcher granted the protection of New York to pirates, who abounded in that era. As a result, many prominent New Yorkers accumulated fortunes from piracy. In addition, huge arbitrary land grants were handed out to favorites of Fletcher, thus sowing the seeds of trouble for over a century to come. These vast privileges to the landed oligarchy widened the gulf between the New York oligarchy and the rest of the people. In 1697 alone, Adolph Phillips received the highland patent of 205,000 acres, a large chunk of Putnam County. Stephanus Van Cortland received 86,000 acres of choice land in Westchester, and Robert Livingston received 160,000 acres in Dutchess County. During the Fletcher years, Phillips also received many thousands of acres in Westchester, and other large grants were handed out in a rush to Beekman, Schuler, Rhinebeck, Heathcote, Van Rensselaer, and others. William Smith 
ally of the oligarchy on Long Island, received a grant of no less than 50 square miles in Nassau County. Fletcher specialized in buying the allegiance of members of his council. Thus, one councillor, Captain John Evans, received an enormous tract of 800 square miles in 1694, and Fletcher made a grant of almost 540,000 acres in the Mohawk River Valley to a Dutch minister, the Reverend Mr. Delius, and a group of other members of the oligarchy. In return for these services, the grantees paid Fletcher large amounts in bribes, and intolerable corrupt selling away, as Fletcher's successor described it. Fletcher received a total of approximately 4,000 pounds sterling in bribes. Concerning the grants of monopoly privilege that required assembly approval, Fletcher had a more difficult time. This new democratic institution naturally represented the farmers, the bulk of the New York populace, the farmers bitterly opposed attempts by the old New York City monopolist to regain their old flower-bolting and packing monopoly. So determined was the assembly to secure free trade in flour that it insisted on refusing to pass any other measure whatever until Fletcher agreed to this bill. Finally, under this pressure and after the assembly had bribed Fletcher with 400 pounds, Free trade in flour became law in 1695. New York City made repeated frantic attempts to regain the flour milling monopoly. In 1700, it adopted an ordinance placing heavy duties on all flour and biscuits imported into the city from the outlying farms. But again, the assembly refused to pass any appropriation or tax bill until this ordinance was repealed. Finally, after an unsuccessful attempt to pack the assembly with city representatives, the New York City merchants had to reconcile themselves to the loss of their monopoly privileges in the flour industry. Governor Fletcher was also eager to establish the Anglican Church in New York. He also wanted the assembly to vote taxes for government for the duration of the life of the current king. The assembly, of course, adamantly refused to do either one. Fletcher also had no success in exerting his will over the Connecticut militia, to the rule of which he had a royal claim. Ordered in 1693 to place its forces at his disposal, Connecticut absolutely refused. The embittered Fletcher announced to England that the laws of England have no force in this colony. They set up for a free state. Instead of chastising Connecticut, the crown, in effect, removed Fletcher's authority. By the mid-1690s, the three royal colonies of the North, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and New York, were all suffering under Tory oligarchs, Stoughton, Allen and Usher, Fletcher, and conflicts raged between them and the liberal assemblies. In the meanwhile, the Tories were rapidly losing favor in the home country, the Tories were being replaced in political favor by the more liberal Whigs. The naming of the Whig William Popple as Secretary of the new Board of Trade signified a decline in the influence of the powerful Tory bureaucrat William Blaithwaite. By 1695, the King had decided to bring unity to his strife-torn royal colonies by appointing a common governor over all of them, 
the highly influential liberal Whig Robert Coote, Earl of Bellomont, friend of the great liberal philosopher John Locke. News of the appointment of Bellomont was greeted with joy by the liberal forces in these colonies, and with heart-rending anguish by Dudley and Staunton in Massachusetts, by Fletcher in the New York oligarchy, and by Allen and Usher in New Hampshire. William Penn, Peter Delanois of New York, and the Winthrop brothers, Fitzjohn and Waite, were also jubilant. Bellamont was known to have been bitterly anti-Dudley and anti-Andros, and a staunch defender of the Lislerian revolution. In fact, he had charged that Leisler and Milburn had been barbarously murdered. After two years of delay, Lord Bellamont's appointment as royal governor of the three colonies was announced in 1697, and Bellamont arrived in New York to take up his post in April 1698. It took a year for Bellamont to assume his post in the New England colonies. He arrived to take over as governor of Massachusetts in May 1699 and in New Hampshire in July of the same year. This common appointment, incidentally, did not mean that the colonies of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and New York were amalgamated as under the Dominion. Instead, each kept its separate political institutions, but simply had a common governor. Lord Bellamont lost no time in aligning himself with the popular liberal forces in all three of these colonies. From Massachusetts, Wade Winthrop traveled to New York with two other delegates of the general court to greet the new governor. He later wrote to a friend of Bellamont's noble character. In his inaugural speech in the Bay Colony, Bellamont boldly attacked Charles II and James II as aliens and hailed William III. Bellamont associated with such liberal leaders as Winthrop and Elisha Cook, he deplored with equal fervor the Puritan fanatics and the Tory oligarchs. The grateful general court voted Bellamont a very large salary of 1,500 pounds, the largest sum that Massachusetts ever voted for a colonial governor before or since. Unfortunately, Bellamont did not have enough time to exert any real impact on Massachusetts. He left the colony after little more than a year, in the summer of 1700, and he met his untimely death the following spring. Bellamont's impact on New Hampshire was considerably greater, despite the short span, for Bellamont decisively confirmed the relatively liberal William Partridge as lieutenant governor in place of the Tory John Usher. Bellamont was totally disgusted with the proprietary party and with Allen's persistent attempts to grant him huge bribes and to divide the province with him. Bellamont curtly told Allen, I would not sell justice if I might have the world. And he denounced Blathwaite for being on Allen's payroll. Under Bellamont's aegis, the courts of New Hampshire gave short shrift to Allen's proprietary presumptions and Partridge and the Assembly reconfirmed all the land titles that Allen had tried to dislodge. Allen took his case to the king, 
and the proprietary claims were to drag on for an additional half-century, but never again was proprietary feudalism to come close to imposing itself on the settlers and landowners of New Hampshire. Bellamont had, in effect, delivered a decisive blow to proprietary predation in New Hampshire. Lord Bellamont spent most of his all-too-brief tenure in New York, and there had the greatest impact. In the first place, Bellamont launched a determined and uncompromising attack on the land grants to the oligarchy. In the short time that proved to be available to him, he accomplished a remarkable amount. He publicly deplored the fact that three-quarters of the land of New York had been placed in the hands of less than a dozen men because of the large land grants. Fletcher's corruption and arbitrary subsidies were denounced, and Bellamont managed in 1699, after a bitter struggle, to drive through the council the invalidation of many of the Fletcher grants. The Mohawk grant to Delius and Company and the land gifts to Bayard, Evans, and others were invalidated. The Delius grant was considered particularly unfortunate, for dispossessed Indians were forced to leave and began trading with the French. The grant, therefore, had aroused the hostility of the Albany fur traders as well as the Leslarians. Lord Bellamont had to overcome the implacable opposition of three council members, themselves the recipients of huge land grants from Fletcher, Stephanus Van Cortland, Robert Livingston, and William Smith. Because of this opposition, Bellamont was unable to get many other Fletcher as well as previous grants annulled. He was, however, able to get the Crown to impose a 1,000-acre limit on future grants, to annul extravagant grants, and to require forfeiture of lands that had not been settled and improved within three years. Much of Bellamont's short term was concerned with cracking down on piracy and on the connivance of the New York oligarchy in that organized theft. Such leading oligarchs and anti-Lislarians as Frederick Phillips, Thomas Willett, Thomas Clark, and William Smith were all denounced for piracy, and six oligarch councillors, including William Nichols, Nicholas Bayard, and Captain Gabriel Minvier, were suspended by Bellamont for the same reason. Bellamont began more as a determined opponent of the oligarchy than as an ardent Lislarian, but his furious struggle with the oligarchy inevitably made him leader of the Lislarian party in the colony. Bellamont also endeared himself to the Lislarians in 1698 by rescuing Lesler and Milburn from their graves near the scaffold and reburying their bodies with pomp and ceremony near a Dutch Reformed church. When Bellamont arrived in New York, he found the assembly dominated by the oligarchy. Even though the assembly was a relatively democratic organ, much of the rural electorate represented the feudal manors rather than the tenants living on them. To carry through his land reform program, Bellamont needed a liberal assembly and he obtained the defeat of the Jacobite party in the 1699 election. He did this partly by holding all voting on the same day, 
thus preventing the customary practice of a man's voting in every county in which he owned property. In fact, Bellamont issued a proclamation for a truly free election and charged that the people have been heretofore interrupted in their freedom of elections. After Bellamont removed the councillors implicated in piracy, it was this assembly that drove through the Bellamont land reforms. The assembly also compensated some former Leslarians for expenses, pardoned the remaining Leslarians under sentence, and arrested several of the tax-farming oligarchy for misappropriation of funds. The Grateful Assembly also voted the large sum of 1,500 pounds as salary to Bellamont. It was the Leslarian Assembly, incidentally, along with Bellamont, that had put the severe and successful pressure on New York City to end its tax on rural flour. The Assembly, however, did belie its general anti-monopoly record by prohibiting the importing of empty casks into the city of New York thus, in effect, granting a monopoly of cask-making to the Coopers of New York City. It should be noted that, after the death of Leisler, the Leislerian party did not have to suffer any of the embarrassing contradictions of Leisler's own dictatorial and warmongering program. The movement now blossomed forth as a truly liberal one, with a major emphasis on freedom as over against monopoly privilege, whether in flower or in land. Indeed, Bellamont's goal in land reform envisioned not only invalidating all the land grants, but also cutting the public domain into small plots and granting them free and clear to individual settlers, thereby anticipating the libertarian homestead program. Bellamont recognized that the repressive landed monopoly in New York would drive away potential settlers in droves to neighboring colonies, where land was free, abundant, and unengrossed by privilege. The landed oligarchs of New York were so worried by Bellamont's thoroughgoing plans for land reform that they hired a lawyer, John Montague, to plead their cause in England. Montague continued the feudal landowners' traditional policy of confusing their arbitrary property claims granted by government privilege with the rights of private property itself. He did not point out that arbitrary land grants sharply conflicted with the genuine property rights of past and future settlers. In one important respect only did Bellamont betray the liberal cause and thereby undercut his own liberal support. This was his emphatic determination to enforce the Navigation Acts. This, of course, was in keeping with the new tightening of imperial mercantilism put through in the last analysis by the Whiggish merchants of England, eager to gain monopolistic privileges for themselves. Here, Bellamont made common cause with the Tory Edward Randolph, who, as surveyor general of the customs, praised Bellamont's rigor in enforcement and denounced Fletcher's laxity. Using his office for plunder, Fletcher had not been particularly interested in enforcing regulations. This attempt to enforce the hated navigation laws alienated the merchants of New York from Bellamont and split the liberal movement in the colony. 
the merchants and the assembly threatened to vote no more taxes and to tear down the customs house. Many actually fled the colony and moved to the east New Jersey port of Perth Amboy. Large-scale petitions of merchants and others asked for Bellamont's dismissal. Other opponents of Bellamont were part and parcel of the oligarchy. His annulment of a land grant that had been leased to the Anglican Church led to a typically Tory outcry that the Church was in danger and to pressure upon the bishop to ask for Bellamont's recall. The Anglican minister, Reverend William Vesey, led in this hypocritical attack, and Vesey was to remain the leader of the High Church Party in New York for many years thereafter. In a counterattack, Bellamont unsuccessfully tried to have Vesey removed from the post on the ground of Jacobite sympathies. When the Reverend Mr. Delius, who had lost his huge land grant, was suspended by the assembly from his church post, the wrath of the Dutch church fell on Bellamont's head. Petitions poured in in behalf of Delius. They came from the elders, deacons, and members of his Albany church, as well as from many others, including Fletcher in England, diligently trying to blacken his successor's reputation. Volume 1, Chapter 61, The Aftermath of Bellamont The sudden death of Lord Bellamont in March 1701 ended the liberal interlude in the northern royal colonies just as it was getting underway. A power vacuum immediately followed in each of the colonies, and competing groups rushed in to try to fill it. In Massachusetts, Lieutenant Governor Staunton happily prepared to reassume power. By this time, ordinary conditions were reversed in the colony. The council was liberal, while the House of Representatives had a majority for the royal oligarchy. Stoughton tried to dissolve the general court and rule alone, but the council was able to force him to call a special session quickly. In that session, the Stoughton-dominated lower house voted to ask the king to promote Stoughton to governor, but the council angrily defeated the plan. By late spring 1701, the succession crisis was becoming ever more acute, for the venerable Stoughton was dying. Councillor Waite Winthrop, assuming leadership of the Liberal camp, was appointed chairman of a joint committee of the general court. Making a last try for resumption of self-government, unencumbered by the crown and its oligarchy, Winthrop's committee recommended to the king a petition for restoration of an elected governor and other elected executive officials to the colony. The council warmly approved, but again the House of Representatives rejected the plan. When Stoughton died in July, Winthrop, as the senior councillor, functioned as the chief executive of the colony. The council, moreover, elected him to succeed Stoughton as chief justice of the superior court. In the council, Elisha Cook was Winthrop's chief supporter, while former Speaker Nathaniel Byfield led the opposition. Massachusetts then decided to send Winthrop as its agent to England, but when he prepared to ask bluntly for resumption of the old Massachusetts Charter, the House of Representatives again vetoed the plan. Wait, Winthrop's little moment of glory disappeared all too quickly. 
a furious struggle raged in England. Massachusetts' agent and friend of Winthrop, the liberal Sir Henry Ashurst, was trying desperately to block Joseph Dudley's appointment as governor. Ashurst, who had helped increase Mather, try to restore the old charter a decade before, suggested that Winthrop be appointed to succeed Staunton. Ashurst, however, was undercut by the unseemly haste of the general court in dumping him as its agent and naming one of the Jacobite clique to succeed him. It is true that the court did this after hearing in September of Dudley's appointment. Ashurst, though, would have had a good chance of having the appointment canceled. Furthermore, Winthrop ruined his chance for a royal appointment by repeating his old call for resumption of the old charter. Even his friend Ashurst, a moderate liberal after all, would not go that far. As it was, Dudley, backed by the Board of Trade and letters from his Massachusetts supporters, including the Mathers, now apparently willing to bow to whoever was successfully in power, finally received the appointment as governor of Massachusetts and New Hampshire in December 1701. The collapse of the liberal opposition, particularly in the Democratic elected House of Representatives and the supine acceptance of the same Dudley whom the colony had happily imprisoned a dozen years before were signs of the new spirit that had come to rule over Massachusetts. It was a spirit of resignation to the royal oligarchy and placemen and a shift from opposition to those attempting to get on the gravy train. No better sign of this shift was the action of Waite Winthrop. A would-be liberal crusader in 1701, the aging Winthrop was happy to become Dudley's pliant henchman in 1708. But while Dudley was to rule Massachusetts and New Hampshire for over a decade, he did succeed at least in reinvigorating a liberal opposition in its traditional home, the Lower House. The ever-despotic Dudley moved determinedly to crush the will of the council and mold it as his creature. For example, the secret ballot was now prohibited in council meetings. Dudley also tried to dictate to and bully the House, but the representatives holding the purse fought back. For example, they kept Dudley on an annual salary of less than 300 pounds. There was thus formed a liberal opposition to the depredations of the royal governor and his allied oligarchy. The pattern of 18th century politics in the royal colonies in America had been woven in Massachusetts. In New Hampshire, the hated John Usher was appointed lieutenant governor under Dudley. The assembly expressed its opposition to Usher by failing to vote him a salary. The Allen proprietary claims were pushed in the courts by Usher. But not only did the juries rule against them, even Dudley threw his weight against the feudal proprietary. Dudley thought it better to throw in his lot with the leading merchant oligarchs of the province, with the Waldrons and the Hinks. The proprietary claims were to be lost in the courts, and the people of New Hampshire were finally able to get rid of Usher when he was removed as lieutenant governor in 1715. 
the death of Lord Bellamont threw the colony of New York into a turmoil. His lieutenant governor was John Nanfan, a cousin of Bellamont's wife, who would be expected to carry on the old governor's policies. But Nanfan happened to be in Barbados at the time. The council was now in charge, and the council had a Lislerian majority. But the senior councillor, and therefore its president, was William Smith, one of the most implacable of the anti-Dislarian oligarchy. Smith now claimed that all the governor's powers devolved on him alone, rather than on the council as a body. But the Lislarian council quickly overruled Smith, and the latter had to bow to its decision, a decision that was later to be vindicated by the crown. Their first attempt to take power having failed, the counter-revolutionaries saw that their only hope for power lay in England, and so they began to pepper the crown with requests and advice. The highly reactionary Nicholas Bayard tried to whip up nationalistic prejudices by complaining that Bellamont had favored the Dutch element. Livingston, Smith, and Schuller wrote lengthy letters complaining of the regime. When Lieutenant Governor Nanfan returned to New York in May, he effectively placed his prestige on the Leslerian side. The heated spring elections of 1701 strengthened Leslerian control of the assembly, which was enhanced by the overthrow by the people of Albany of its local oligarchy. The Leslerians now passed a bill to compensate Jacob Leisler's son and moved against the landed monopolist by ordering the payment of taxes and quit-rents on all unimproved, arbitrarily granted land. However, the Leislerians alienated the merchants still further by financing compensations through raising duties on imports, some Lyslerian leaders also succumbed to the temptations of power by violating their own principles and granted themselves substantial tracts of land. Among such were De Peister, Stats, and Delanois. The degree of land plunder was, however, very small compared with that of previous grants. The assembly also proceeded to confiscate the property of Livingston and part of the estate of Van Cortland for misappropriation of public funds while in power. Nanfan cheered the Lyslerian reformers on, and Chief Justice William Atwood, newly arrived from England, set himself squarely on the Lyslerian side. But this idol of liberal reform was not to last. By the end of 1701, the New Yorkers heard with dismay of the appointment of Lord Cornbury as new governor. He was known to be partial to the Tory oligarchy and was coming over with the hated Richard Inglesby and with the former private secretary of Benjamin Fletcher. Rumor had it that the newly appointed councillors were all to be hard-line anti-Leslerians. The Tory reaction involved in the choices of Dudley, Usher, and Cornbury to succeed the liberal Bellamont was no coincidence. For in England, 
Toryism was again dominant by 1701, and the Tories were able to strengthen their dominance with the accession to the throne of Queen Anne in 1702. As an English friend wrote jubilantly to Livingston toward the end of 1701, most or all of the knot of lords whereof the Lord of Bellomont was one are removed and dead. But the Lyslerians were determined that if they must go out, they would do so with a bang, not a whimper. They determined to leave in a blaze of revenge. The arch-reactionary Nicholas Bayard, on hearing of Cornbury's appointment, was impudent enough not to conceal his jubilation. He promptly sent Cornbury a congratulatory address, signed by 800 New Yorkers. Bayard's address contained bitter indictments of the existing government, including charges of corruption, injustice, and, most serious of all, the willingness to grant the vote to non-freeholders and to attack the foundation's property by annulling the privileged land grants. Now the Lyslerians had the chance to pay back Bayard with some of his own favorite coin. Noting that many soldiers had been induced to sign the petition, the council indicted Bayard and his aide William Hutchins, New York City alderman and tavern keeper, for treason and conspiring to raise sedition and mutiny. The indictment came under the very law of treason of 1691 that Bayard had helped frame and used so devastatingly against the Lislerians. It soon became known, by the way, that the soldiers knew little of the contents of the petition but were attracted by free beer or promises provided by Alderman Hutchins. The trial was arranged quickly, with Atwood as judge and the Lislerian leader, Counselor Thomas Weaver, as prosecutor. In imitation of the trial of Jacob Laisler, the jury was packed, this time against Bayard. The foreman, for example, was a brother of Abraham de Peister, a leading Leslerian. Bayard, a Dutchman himself, also protested because the jurors were Dutch and relatively poor. Judge Atwood concluded the trial by virtually demanding a verdict of guilty, which was duly obtained. Convicted of treason, Bayard was sentenced in March 1702 to death. His property was to be confiscated. John Nanfan, however, did not wish to go too far. Having made his point forcefully, he reprieved Bayard in exchange for the prisoner's expressing sorrow for the crime for which he was convicted, a roundabout confession of guilt. Expecting Cornbury to arrive at any time, Bayard refused to make a direct confession. Hutchins was also tried and convicted for treason and won his reprieve in the same way. Other leading anti-Lislerians, in a panic, fled the colony, vowing vengeance against Atwood. Two of the emigres, Thomas Wenham and Philip French, had been indicted for complicity in treason and were now outlawed. They were joined in flight by the Reverend Mr. Vesey, who had propagandized widely against the regime, even though amnesty had been promised to all but one of the exiles— and even Bayard and Hutchins received the benefit of a letter to the crown from Nanfan, asking for a royal pardon. The prosecutions were never to go beyond giving Bayard and the oligarchs a sampling of their own medicine. 
The last great gesture of the Bellomont Nanfan regime was Nanfan's ouster of Robert Livingston from the council at the end of April, the very least punishment, remarked Atwood, that Livingston deserved. But the shades of night were approaching fast. Cornbury was to arrive in early May, and the temper of the oligarchy was revealed in such signs as God save the king and hang John Nanfan, and a poem that warned the Leslarians to wait the approaching change and then lament their fate. Lord Cornbury did not disappoint the expectations of either side. Indeed, historians most partial to the oligarchy blanch at Cornbury's record. Even the arch-Tory historian William Smith, son of the anti-Lislarian leader, admitted, We never had a governor so universally detested, nor one who so richly deserved the public abhorrence. His guiding purpose was personal plunder, and it was natural for him, just as it had previously been for Fletcher, to align himself with that party which needed the most favors and was in a position to pay the most for them. Soon after assuming office, Cornbury ousted the Leslarians from council and filled Atwood's chief justice post with William Smith. He attacked the Lislarians as troublesome spirits and freed Bayard and Hutchins, who were cleared by the Privy Council. After packing the council, Cornbury dissolved the assembly, made many English soldiers freemen of New York City, and removed all Lislarian sheriffs from office. Having secured a pliant assembly, Cornbury proceeded to persecute the Lislarians further, John Nanfan was clapped into jail for years under charge of false imprisonment and misuse of public funds, and was kept there despite repeated orders from England to release him. Nanfan finally escaped, but his property had all been confiscated. Lady Bellomont's estate was confiscated for Cornbury's personal use. One mercy, though, Bayard was not allowed to wreak full revenge. His suits against leading Lislarians and his jurors for damages were disallowed by the crown, and his bill to prohibit any of his judges from holding any government office was too much even for Cornbury and the assembly. The new Cornbury-dominated assembly promptly repealed all the acts of the Nanfan assembly and also repealed the Bellamont secured annulment of the enormous land grants of the Fletcher administration. And while Queen Anne refused to allow this repeal to stand, Cornbury himself returned to the Fletcher policy of huge land grants to favorite oligarchs. Large tracts were granted to Rhinebeck, Livingston, Phillips, Schuler, Smith, Van Rensselaer, and Heathcote, and the boundaries of the grants were defined so vaguely as to permit the grantees to stretch the tracts a hundredfold. The old feudal grant of Rensselaerwick was reconfirmed by Cornbury, and a large tract was granted to Cornbury's relative, George Clark, the new secretary of the colony. Cornbury was more than able to compensate the landed oligarchy for the setback it had received under Bellamont. Cornbury also tried to restore the flour monopoly to New York City merchants, 
and to overlord the city's representation in the assembly. He also wanted restored the old power to prohibit the export of wheat, thus oppressing the farmers for the benefit of the flour makers by executive order. By this time, however, the Slarians were able to bounce back in the new assembly. The assembly was in any case disgusted with Cornberry's flagrant appropriation of tax funds for his personal use. By 1704, it was refusing to vote any more money unless it was allowed to appoint a treasurer in charge of the public funds. The assembly was able to win its case in England for extraordinary expenses. Naturally, it then tended to make all grants of money extraordinary ones. The assembly also denounced Cornbury's practice of charging ruinous fees to defendants being prosecuted at court. Lord Cornbury was finally removed from office in late 1708. Characteristically, he then had to flee New York to escape creditors to whom he owed several thousand pounds. After very brief terms by Lord Lovelace and Richard Inglesby, Robert Hunter became governor in 1710. By now, twenty years had elapsed since the Leisler Rebellion, and under the lengthy and soothing rule of Hunter, the Leislerian passions died down and faded away. In one of his first addresses, Hunter warned that no faction would receive any encouragement from him. His appointments to the council and other offices were consciously designed to be impartial and to allay tempers on both sides. Furthermore, both factions had already begun to cooperate in asserting the power of the assembly as a check against the excesses of Cornbury. Thus, Hunter fought the assembly for years and dissolved session after session, but each time all the same members returned with greater fury. Finally, by 1713, Hunter was forced to accept from the assembly skimpy revenue bills of a purposely short one-year duration. Clearly, New York was beginning to settle down into the governor versus assembly structure that was becoming characteristic of the royal colonies. But even though the Leslarian movement had faded away, that which had provoked its rise, the quasi-feudal oligarchy, had unfortunately not faded too. Although the Leslarian revolution had succeeded in bringing an assembly to New York, which would become the focus of popular opposition to government, it did not succeed in destroying the feudal oligarchy. Indeed, land monopoly was now aggravated by the grants of Fletcher and Cornbury. Governor Hunter saw the danger and prophetically warned the Crown that the owners of the vast estates in New York would cripple the growth of population in the colony by insisting on renting out instead of dividing and selling their lands. Retaining the land and renting it out, as under feudalism, will not succeed in America. Hunter warned, where full ownership of cheap and fertile land can be obtained in all the other colonies. But Hunter, alas, was not a crusader. So, while basically opposed to landed monopoly, his policy of balance and moderation only left the problem of land monopoly and quasi-feudalism a festering sore 
that would linger in the New York social and political structure for over a century. Hunter did not add to the arbitrary land grants in New York, but by pursuing moderation instead of principled reform, he made no move to remedy the problem. In fact, Hunter even appeased the landlords by recommending a waiver of the requirement that a certain proportion of each landed estate be settled within three years of the grant. Hunter's only long-run achievement was to eliminate the one social movement dedicated to the removal of the feudal land monopoly. Volume 1, Chapter 62 Rhode Island and Connecticut After the Glorious Revolution We have seen what happened in the northern royal colonies after the Glorious Revolution. Connecticut and Rhode Island, alone of all the colonies, continued on their old self-governing path. Connecticut's charter was reconfirmed, as we have seen, in 1690, Rhode Island's in late 1693. Rhode Island was probably the only colony that did not greet the overthrow of Andros with great joy. Not only did Andros and Rhode Island have in common a profound hatred of Massachusetts, but the little colony was thoroughly grateful for Andros's decision to stand with it on the Narragansett country question and against the aggressive claims of Connecticut and the Atherton Company. Upon the overthrow of the Dominion, Rhode Island assumed possession of King's Province, never to relinquish it again, even though the territorial dispute dragged on for years. In 1703, commissioners from Rhode Island and Connecticut finally settled the dispute. In a compromise, the territory of the Narragansett country was conceded to Rhode Island, but Rhode Island agreed to ratify all existing land claims to the area, thereby granting victory to the huge arbitrary Atherton Company land claims. In effect, the decision foisted on the future of Narragansett country a large plantation way of life. Rhode Island remained one of the most libertarian of the colonies. The Quaker governor, John Easton, found it impossible, for example, to raise troops in 1691 to join in the war to conquer Canada. The basic cause was the inability to impose enough taxation on the colony. The libertarian bent of the colony continued when the non-Quaker Samuel Cranston was elected governor in 1698. A nephew of the former Quaker governor, Walter Clark, Cranston essentially continued Quaker policy. Thus, tax laws were scarcely enforced and laws in general almost totally ignored in the colony. In 1698, Edward Randolph ranted that neither judges, juries, nor witnesses were under any obligation. His explanation for this unusual breadth of liberty and minimization of government in the colony was that the management of the government, such as it is, was in the hands of Quakers and Anabaptists, who for one thing would take no oath. This included a refusal of the Quaker governor in 1698 to take the required oath to enforce the navigation laws. Neither did Rhode Island impose any government schooling on its citizens. The elected governors of Rhode Island assumed admiralty powers. Hence the Quaker governor, Walter Clark, refused to permit the English admiralty judge to function in the province. 
Since the crown could not control Rhode Island by appointing a governor, it tried to bring the colony's militia under neighboring royal governors. Governor Phipps of Massachusetts tried to send agents to take over the Rhode Island militia in 1692, but the assembly and government fought back, ordered their own officers to retain command, and asked the king for redress. Rhode Island also pointed out that several Massachusetts counselors had a vested interest in the Narragansett country and thus in bringing Rhode Island to heel. The Crown replied against Rhode Island but shifted the militia power to New York. It did concede Rhode Island's control of its own militia in peacetime. Ironically, Rhode Island's gravest conflict with the governors of New York came under the relatively liberal Bellamont administration, One of Bellamont's non-liberal traits was an excessive zeal in hunting down pirates, a practice which absorbed a good deal of his energies during his brief term. Unquestionably, Rhode Island governors had aided and abetted piracy during the war with France in the 1690s by commissioning privateers, whose only difference from pirates was an official license to plunder. Bellamont, investigating conditions in Rhode Island during 1699, was already prejudiced against Rhode Island and denounced its leaders as poor, lower class, and generally Quakers and sectaries. He was particularly bitter at the absence of religious orthodoxy among them and the lack of government schools. Bellamont's liberalism, so refreshingly intense and benighted New York, virtually disappeared in the highly individualistic colony of Rhode Island. So far, no outside governor had successfully made good his claim to command of Rhode Island's militia. But the tyrannical Joseph Dudley, who had lobbied in England for abolition of the Rhode Island Charter, dearly tried. On assuming the governorship of Massachusetts in 1702, Dudley attempted to assume command of the colony's militia as well as impose an admiralty judge on Rhode Island. Going to Rhode Island, he pressed his militia claim, but the Rhode Island governor and council refused and asserted their own authority. Dudley ordered the militia major to serve under him, but the major stood with Rhode Island. In more turbulent King's Province, Dudley was more successful, and the militia joined his command. But the Rhode Island officials soon went to the Narragansett country and won the militia back again. Dudley's exercise of admiralty jurisdiction also greatly angered the colony. Dudley, as had Bellamont, objected to Rhode Island commissions to privateer pirates, and when his admiralty judge, Nathaniel Byfield, released a French prize captured by a Rhode Island privateer, he was hooted down the street by an angry Newport mob. Once again, Rhode Island's disdain for war and the state, its quite obvious lack of patriotic exultation in killing officially declared enemies, brought down upon its head numerous denunciations for being a rogue's land. Dudley complained to the Crown that the colony was a perfect receptacle of rogues and pirates. He was particularly bitter that the Quaker-run colony would contribute neither men nor money to the great war to conquer French Canada, which had been resumed in 1701. In fact, the Rhode Islanders went so far as to shelter deserters from the army. 
In this, of course, Rhode Island was following in its great tradition of being the haven for refugees from all types of state persecution. Dudley was also bitter at Rhode Island's low taxes. While Massachusetts strained and groaned under a tax burden of 2,200 pounds per month to pay for war against France, Dudley noted that Rhode Island relaxed happily with taxes of less than one penny on the pound. Dudley kept up his harangue and charges against Rhode Island, and by late 1705 they were endorsed by the Board of Trade. Beginning in 1701, the board had tried several times but failed to induce Parliament to liquidate the self-governing and proprietary colonies, that is, those not under direct control of the crown. The proposal had largely been engineered by Randolph and Dudley, the old enemies of the American colonies. Now in 1704-05, the board took its case to a more sympathetic crown and urged that the Queen appoint royal governors for Rhode Island and Connecticut. The leader in the drive to smash Connecticut's and Rhode Island's independence was again Joseph Dudley. But the tide was stemmed by Sir Henry Ashurst, the indefatigable English liberal and now an agent of Connecticut, who was aided by Robert Livingston and William Penn. The Board of Trade made its last attempt to cripple the Rhode Island and Connecticut charters in a parliamentary bill of 1706. Ashurst was again easily able to defeat the bill. Moreover, the Board of Trade was by now losing its power and its Tory drive. The war against France was going well. Edward Randolph, the board's great champion of aggressive imperialism, had died in 1703, and Blathwaite and the other high Tory members of the board were to be dismissed in 1707 and succeeded by far more moderate and liberal members. As the war with France dragged on, however, Rhode Island began to drift from pacifist and libertarian principles and to tax its resources heavily by contributing men and materials. As we shall see in a later volume, Rhode Island, following the lead of Massachusetts, financed the ruinous expeditions against the French by turning to a dangerous and mischievous instrument completely new to the Western world, the creation of paper money. And with the Quakers losing control of the provincial government, the non-Quaker assembly decided to shift control of the militia to the central government from the towns, where Quaker influence was still strong. Connecticut, of course, in these years followed much the same path as her sister colony, Rhode Island. It similarly rebuffed attempts by Massachusetts and New York to assume command over its militia, and led in repelling attempts by Dudley, Randolph, and the Board of Trade to liquidate its independence. Connecticut, too, hung back at first in the resumed war against France, but at the end of the first decade of the 18th century was zealously participating in attempts to invade Canada. Connecticut, however, continued to handle her own meager maritime cases, even though she was technically under New York's jurisdiction. When Connecticut effected its revolution against the Dominion in 1689, the true leadership of its government rested in the hands of the main architect of the revolution, the pro-Leslarian James Fitch. 
As leader of the popular Liberal Party, Fitch, though only a counselor, dominated the government. Fitch drove through a democratic extension of the franchise to freeholders of 40 shillings, as well as a uniquely democratic method of selecting public officials. Taking his stand squarely for the old charter, Fitch threatened reprisals against the partisans of the royal oligarchy. The arch-reactionary party continued well after 1690 its desperate attempts to restore royal government in Connecticut. Thus, Gershom Buckley, Edward Palms, and William Rosewell, aided by the Tory governor Fletcher of New York, petitioned the king in 1690 to restore royal government. Buckley expanded his diatribe against the charter government into a book, Will and Doom, 1692, which remained unpublished, but which furnished ammunition for all the Board of Trade attempts of the following decade to liquidate independent Connecticut. Governor Fletcher, after command of the militia was transferred from Massachusetts in 1693, tried to assume control of the militia in Connecticut. The Connecticut government resisted Fletcher's demands, and the threat of bloodshed forced Fletcher to return to New York. Fletcher finally obtained the limited power to requisition a quota of troops in the colony, but Connecticut managed to resist this as well. The liberal revolutionaries headed by Fitch were, however, destined to go down to defeat, not at the hands of Tory opponents of Connecticut independence, such as Buckley and Palms, but at the hands of more subtle middle-of-the-roaders headed by Fitzjohn Winthrop. Having headed off various assaults on Connecticut's charter during his stay in England, Winthrop returned to Connecticut a popular hero in 1698. He won election as governor that year, and Fitch was ousted from his council post. Winthrop's method was deadly to the liberal cause. While disarming the liberals by successfully defending Connecticut's charter against Tory assault, Winthrop reimposed government power and oligarchic rule at home. Winthrop moved quickly to enlarge the powers of the governor, only nominal during the liberal days of Fitch. The assembly granted Winthrop more power to act between legislative sessions, to appoint government officials, and to manage military affairs. Furthermore, in 1699, Connecticut, like Rhode Island three years earlier, split its legislature into two chambers. This bicameral split was a maneuver to increase executive and oligarchic power, for now the governor and his upper house of assistants were able to veto the popularly elected deputies. Furthermore, the judicial system was converted into an independent oligarchic power, Whereas before 1698, judges were elected annually in each county, now county judges remained independently in office on good behavior. In this way, the judges were freed of the checks put on their power by popular elections and were transformed into a quasi-permanent oligarchic bureaucracy. Or, as the reactionary Samuel Willis put it, they were freed from the arbitrary humors of the people. Finally, to complete the litany of counter-revolutionary statism imposed by the Winthrop regime, 
A law of 1699 established the Puritan or Congregational Church in each town. Every taxpayer was now forced to pay for its maintenance, and new churches could be formed only on permission of the general court. New public schools were also forced upon the colony. Professor Dunn's comments on Winthrop's reactionary reforms are more favorable, but provide correct insight into the facts. For example, by curbing the colonist undisciplined anarchic, that is, individualistic behavior, he, Winthrop, could meet charges from the Board of Trade that Connecticut's government was inadequate and irregular. The reforms were particularly designed to break James Fitch's Democratic faction. With support increasing for Fitch, and with Winthrop kept busy for the next decade in defending Connecticut's charter, there was no time for further changes of this type in Connecticut. But the damage had been done. Furthermore, the main result of the Board of Trade's assault on Connecticut was to force the colony to agree to the right of appeal in judicial decisions to the Crown. Moreover, the status Winthrop program was not yet ended, for when Winthrop died in 1707, he was succeeded by his chief advisor, Reverend Gurdon Saltonstall, who proceeded in the Saybrook platform of 1708 to organize the Puritan churches into a tight Presbyterian system. If a community is to have a state-run church, it is far easier for the state to control a centrally governed church than one of independent congregations, so Connecticut transformed its Puritan churches halfway between truly congregational and Presbyterian forms into a fully Presbyterian structure. The legislature convoked a synod of ministers and elders at Saybrook, which adopted the new regime. The general court then imposed the system, taking care to allow religious liberty to dissenters, provided their churches were licensed by the state. From then on, only a minister legally recognized by the general court could receive state support. It was also in Saltonstall's regime that Connecticut threw itself into expensive attempts to carry the war to Canada. During the long tenure of Reverend Mr. Saltonstall, the oligarchic faction became cemented in the colony. Here was the beginning of Connecticut's later reputation as a land of steady habits. Volume 1, Chapter 63, The Unification of the Jerseys During the crisis years of the Glorious Revolution, both Jerseys at last rested peaceful and content. The Dominion bureaucracy had gone, and the respective sets of proprietors did not dare to stir, lest their grants be revoked by the Crown. The Dominion bureaucracy had gone, and the respective sets of proprietors did not dare to stir, lest their grants be revoked by the Crown. They therefore decided not to impose any rule until the smoke had cleared. Government in both colonies was local and purely minimal. Dr. Daniel Cox, court physician and non-Quaker, had, before the onset of the Dominion, bought from Edward Billinge the sole right to govern West New Jersey, as well as the largest proprietary share in that colony. He also held a much smaller share of the East New Jersey proprietorship. 
Cox fought hard and successfully to prevent the Lords of Trade from annulling the charters of the two Jerseys, or from amalgamating them into New York and thereby converting them into royal colonies. In the spring of 1692, Cox sold all his rights and titles in the Jerseys to a group of non-Quaker businessmen, the West New Jersey Society, for 9,800 pounds. The society was owned by holders of 1,600 shares of stock issued at 10 pounds each. Originally, the society had 48 stockholders, the most prominent being Sir Thomas Lane, who was to serve also as Lord Mayor of London. We have already noted that the proprietors of East New Jersey had chosen the Scot Andrew Hamilton to be deputy governor in 1687. After the Dominion was imposed in 1688, Hamilton returned to England, and both the Jerseys remained without a central government. Until 1692, in that year, however, with the proprietorships at least temporarily saved, both of the Jerseys appointed Hamilton to be governor. The first step toward unity of the two Jerseys had begun. Hamilton took up his post in the far wealthier and more populous East New Jersey, of which Perth Amboy was the capital, and appointed Edward Hunloke to be his deputy in West New Jersey. With the return of central and proprietary government came the return of turmoil and conflict in the Jerseys. Hamilton's guiding instruction was to begin once again to enforce collections of the hated feudal quit rent. Fearful of attempts to submerge the Jerseys into New York, East New Jersey now made particular efforts to aid New York in attempting to prosecute the war against New France. And New York's Governor Fletcher expressed his gratitude to Hamilton for the 400 pounds and the 65 men supplied. Despite the fact that the proprietors of both colonies had been Quakers, the ethnic composition of the two Jerseys differed greatly. East New Jersey was heterogeneous, comprising Dutch, Puritans from New England, and Scotsmen. The Scots were mostly Presbyterians, not Quakers, despite the fact of Quaker proprietorship during the years of their migration. West New Jersey, on the other hand, was a poor, sparsely inhabited, predominantly Quaker colony. Despite the differences, Governor Hamilton had no difficulty in persuading the supposedly pacifist Quaker Assembly of West New Jersey to join that of the East in voting ample funds to help New York in the French War. As early as the year before, the West Jersey Assembly had resolved that while the people of the colony could not bear arms or participate in war, they could help defend the province. And in 1693, they voted 300 pounds for the war effort. Paradoxically, Hamilton met the only resistance to his war plans in non-Quaker East New Jersey. Hamilton wanted the colony to supply 30 soldiers for the war, but Speaker William Lawrence of the East Jersey Assembly forced him to cut the supply to 20. However, 430 pounds were raised for the war effort. More than matching the contribution of the year before, even so, Hamilton wrote apologetically to Fletcher that volunteers could not be raised, and that he could only raise troops to send to New York in case of invasion, 
and then only on condition that they would return as soon as the campaign was over. Under Hamilton's aegis, the powers of the local governments over the people were greatly strengthened. The counties were now authorized to levy taxes, to repay debts, and to maintain jails. The levies and appropriations were to be raised by the county judges, meeting with representatives of each town in the county. The townships were also authorized to impose the maintenance of government schools on all taxpayers of the town, even on those opposing the idea. Also, the term of conscripted militiamen was lengthened. Hamilton ran into trouble in 1694, trying to persuade the assembly to increase taxes in order to pay salaries to himself and other government officials. On the other hand, the council vetoed the bill passed by the deputies raising their own salaries, the council pointing out that its members remained unpaid. The quit-rent problem came to a head in 1695. Speaker Richard Hartshorn was the leader of the popular opposition to Hamilton and his council. Conflicts continued in succeeding years over Hamilton's demands for regular levying of revenue for the government, as well as enforcement of the quit-rent. Once again, Elizabethtown, joined by Newton and Shrewsbury, was in the forefront of the opposition. The landlords took the quit-rent cases to the courts, and after the juries, in the words of the proprietors, being all planters, gave a general verdict against their proprietors, the judges arrogantly reversed the jury's decisions. On appeal of the cases to England, the claims of the proprietors were years later rejected by the Crown. The proprietary claim to quit rents had been finally rejected. As soon as the first of these cases had been so decided by the Crown in 1697, 65 citizens of Elizabethtown immediately petitioned the King for an end to the tyrannical proprietary government that persisted in exacting tribute for lands rightfully theirs. At about this time, however, a grave new threat arose to plague the owners of landed property in East Jersey. An English court decided, on a technicality, that the land titles confirmed by former Governor Carteret had only been valid for life, rather than in fee simple for perpetuity. Hamilton now offered to reconfirm the absolute land titles, but only at the price of paying the large backlog of arrears in quit rents. In 1697, Andrew Hamilton was removed as governor in both Jerseys. Under the general interpretation of the Navigation Act of 1696, all Scotsmen were removed from positions of public trust in the colonies. Hamilton was, therefore, replaced as governor of both Jerseys by the former Baptist minister, Jeremiah Boss, who assumed his new post in early 1698. Boss, even before his appointment, had come to be thoroughly hated in West New Jersey and the other colonies. He had earned this ire as a former agent of Dr. Cox and the West New Jersey Society and as an opponent of the colony's violations of the navigation laws. The arch-Tory and inveterate enemy of the colonies, Edward Randolph, had come to the conclusion that Scotsmen were particularly active as smugglers and merchants. 
He therefore inserted a clause into the Navigation Act of 1696 to keep them out of public office in the colonies. Boss was known as one of Randolph's clique of prerogative men, and he schemed at London to use the clause to oust Hamilton and obtain the post for himself. At first, conflict between Boss and the people of East New Jersey was not widespread or intense. The people and the proprietary were jointly engaged in another chapter of continual struggle with New York, winning for Perth Amboy the right to be a free port, unhindered by New York regulations. Using the external dispute as a method of mobilizing support, Boss managed to induce the assembly in the spring of 1699 to increase taxes sharply, with new taxes being levied on a wide variety of property. The new tax burdens stirred up widespread opposition in East New Jersey. A Newark town meeting denounced the tax and warned that there was no guarantee that the money would be used for the announced purposes. Anyway, there was clearly no danger of invasion from New York. The Newark meeting resolved unanimously not to pay the new tax and to resist its collection. Led by young Louis Morris II, a counselor and merchant, later Chief Justice of New York and Governor of New Jersey, the towns of Newark, Elizabethtown, Perth Amboy, and Freehold joined to protest to the proprietors against the rule of Boss. They also specifically attacked a resolution of the lower house of the assembly praising the Boss administration. Morris, indeed, had challenged Boss's rule from the beginning, denying the authority of the Boss-appointed court. Fined for contempt, Morris managed to escape from prison. He continued relentlessly to challenge the basis of proprietary rule. Such rule, he asserted, was by persons who really have not the right to govern. He also denounced the quit-rent as an unjust tax upon us and our heirs forever. Morris was now, in April 1699, charged by the council with seditious assembly, with intent to subvert the laws, and with malicious and reproachful words against Governor Boss. In May, a grand jury indicted Morris, along with Surveyor General George Willocks and Secretary Thomas Gordon, for stirring up opposition in the towns to the taxes levied in March. The next day, a large group from Elizabethtown attacked the jail holding Morris and the others and freed the eminent prisoners. Among the leaders of this revolutionary attack were such well-known citizens as Justice Benjamin Price, Isaac Whitehead, and Jonathan Ogden, Jr. By this time, Boss had left for England to discuss the dispute with New York. Andrew Bowne now ruled as deputy governor. Shortly after their coerced release from prison, Morris and Willocks called on the council to yield and send an armed sloop against Perth Amboy, firing guns by way of defiance to the government. Bowne and the assembly decided to order the suppression of the insurrection in the province, but the assembly realized that virtually the whole province opposed the new taxes and the bulk of its members walked out in protest against them. Only placid Bergen County was not in a state of rebellion. 
With this kind of opposition in the assembly, reinforced by the proprietor's decision to appoint the revolutionary Thomas Gordon as attorney general of the colony, Bound did nothing to enforce the tax act or to suppress the insurrection. Morris's rebellion had succeeded, for soon after Boss returned from England in the summer of 1699, Andrew Hamilton was reappointed governor of the Jerseys. Scotsmen, it was now ruled, were able to hold office in the colonies, and the proprietors seized the opportunity to reappoint Hamilton and end the calamitous regime of Boss. If Governor Boss precipitated conflict and oppression in East New Jersey, his rule over the Quaker colony of West New Jersey was a veritable reign of terror. Hamilton had left West New Jersey alone. As a result, the Quakers' largely libertarian society was not confronted, as in previous years, with the threat of proprietary despotism. As soon as Boss took power, however, he imposed a program of reactionary change upon the colony. Virtually his first act was to oust the previous council and the judges, and to fill their post with his friends and favorites, almost all non-Quakers. The Quaker lower house tried to oppose Boss's accession to power, whereupon he promptly began to throw them into prison. Peter Fretwell, former treasurer of the colony, was jailed by Boss for not acknowledging the government. Furthermore, the great leader of the liberal forces in West New Jersey, Speaker of the House Samuel Jennings, was arrested in the spring of 1699 for saying that Boss's commission as governor was illegal and for slandering one of Boss's appointed councillors as a papist. Three of the new councillors, indeed, published a book denouncing Jennings as the key to the seditious opposition. They wrote, Samuel Jennings, being the leading man of that party, now sings his old song over again, and affirms the government to be in the people, thereby encouraging and exciting the people to rebellion against the present governor, and other their lawful rulers, to the great obstruction of the peace and property of the province. Fretwell and Thomas Gardner, furthermore, were indicted for setting the province in a flame, but they refused to appear for their trial. Rebellion did indeed burst forth in Salem, where the government was resisted, and the boss appointed magistrates expelled from the town. But the governor sent in fifty soldiers and was able to suppress the rebellion. The boss found, however, that he could not suppress the voices of his opposition. Samuel Jennings, undaunted, not only organized a giant anti-boss petition, but also broadened his attack to include the whole proprietary regime, particularly for violating the rights of liberty and self-government that had been granted to the people in the old concessions. Andrew Hamilton returned as governor in December 1699, only to find both colonies in a state of outright rebellion. In West New Jersey, the Boss Puppet Council was unceremoniously removed, and the revolutionary leaders returned to their posts. Jennings to Speaker of the House, Fretwell to Treasurer, Gardner became King's Attorney. But both Jerseys were now in the midst of a revolutionary situation, and a mere change of governors was no longer enough to appease the popular opposition. 
The spark for the rebellion in both colonies was the increase in taxes, and a mere change of personnel would not be enough to relieve the situation. To Lewis Morris and the people of East New Jersey, only the liquidation of the proprietorship would suffice to end the rebellion. The proprietors were indeed negotiating with the crown for surrender of their right to govern, though not of their land claims. However, proprietary government continued in the meanwhile until the crown's decision should be made. But the revolution roared on. In March 1700, justices of the Middlesex County Court, all councillors, were barred from the courtroom by a rebellious crowd led by Edward Slater, one of the main leaders of the rebellion against Carteret nearly twenty years before. A week later, Samuel Carter, leading an angry crowd, denounced the proceedings of the Essex County Court, and the court ordered Carter arrested for contempt which may, if not timely prevented, turn to a convulsion in government to the ruin of the colony. It may be noted that the crowd supporting Carter included such prominent citizens as Justice Benjamin Price, a former counselor. By July, however, Lewis Morris had betrayed the revolution he had led and now shifted vigorously to the other side returning to the council as Hamilton's appointee for president. Morris wanted everyone to submit to the governor. Soon Morris had an opportunity to betray his own neighbors in Monmouth County. The newly appointed sheriff, the Scotsman John Stewart, was on a rampage in the county, jailing rebels. Friends of those about to be arrested thereupon attacked Stewart and forced him to flee, Learning of a plan to free one of the captured men, Morris informed Hamilton, who appeared with an armed troop and then demanded the surrender of two of the opposition leaders, Richard Salter and John Bray. But the free men of Monmouth County by now numbered six to one against Hamilton and Morris. Aroused, a hundred citizens of Middletown, armed with clubs, marched to confront the governor's force. A compromise averted an armed clash when the prisoners agreed to put up bail as security for good behavior. The renegade Morris had been given the task of suppressing the rebellion, and his unpopularity was assured when he threatened to drench the colony in the blood of the rebels who did not yield. With Morris ordered to seize Salter and Bray, Monmouth, Middlesex, and Essex counties conferred to decide their next move. They decided to resist Morris's power and to seize, arrest, and incarcerate Hamilton, Morris, and Councillor Samuel Leonard until the Crown made up its mind on the future of the colony. Town after town rose in revolt against arbitrary arrests. A grand jury of Monmouth County soon indicted sixteen men, including Salter and Bray, for riotous assembly and assault of Sheriff Stewart. But the rebels remained undaunted. In September, the Essex County Court at Newark had its proceedings interrupted by Samuel Carter, who challenged the authority of the court. The constable ordered to seize the prisoner was himself assaulted by the rebels, the rebels also assaulted Councillor William Sandford, the president of the court. 
The rebels were led by Carter and Thomas Johnson, a longtime high official in the colony and a leader of the rebellion under Carteret. Two days later, a large group of horsemen arrived from Elizabethtown to demand of the Essex County judges the freeing of one of the prisoners, Joseph Parmiter. Led by Samuel Carter and Samuel Whitehead, the rebels, on being refused, seized the sheriff and forced him to free Parmiter. Soon afterward, in retaliation, two grand juries indicted 85 Elizabethtown men for joining in the insurrectionary action. The revolutionaries countered by signing an Elizabethtown petition to the king against the proprietors. In it, they attacked the quit-rent, which was being exacted even after the royal courts had disallowed it and they asked the crown to replace the proprietary with a royal governor. Leading the opposition to the proprietary in the assembly, which convened in May 1700, was Councillor John Royce. The councillor held an old Nichols patent for his lands. This fact jeopardized the lands and subjected it to quit-rent exactions so long as the proprietary continued. Hamilton convened the assembly, but only to try to get a tax bill passed. He soon saw that there was no chance of success. Moreover, he saw the danger of the Assembly approving the anti-proprietary position. Therefore, Hamilton made haste to dissolve the Assembly. But the East New Jersey petition helped galvanize the Board of Trade to annul the Jersey proprietary. The East New Jersey proprietary tried to stem the tide by its answer to the petition sent to the Crown in December. The answer trenchantly attacked the colonial resistance to payment of quit-rents as a logical prelude to denial of the royal power itself. It concluded that the settlers viewed themselves as the absolute owners of the soil, and hence entitled to an independent government of their own. The proprietors darkly charged that the rebels were merely a few factious and mutinous people impatient of any government. The following March, 1701, the pattern of revolt against the proprietary courts continued. As the Monmouth Court, headed by Governor Hamilton, was examining an accused smuggler named Moses Butterworth, Samuel Willett, an innkeeper, challenged the authority of the court. Willett charged into the court with a company of fifty militiamen. A battle ensued between the police on one side and the militiamen in the crowd, led by Benjamin Price and Richard Borden on the other. The rebels proceeded to free Butterworth and to seize the justices, the attorney general, and the other officers of the court. The next day the court, with Samuel Leonard presiding, was able to reassert its authority despite a challenge by Eliza Catterall, who refused to serve on the compulsory jury, and the refusal of the former court clerk, James Bolin, to surrender the court records. The court quickly seized, convicted, and fined all those denying its authority and refusing to serve on the grand jury. After the disastrous assembly session, Hamilton had decided not to convene it again and to rule only with the help of the council. In May 1701, 
Hamilton and the council petitioned the king to order the people of East New Jersey to obey the proprietary government. Hamilton complained that since he had not yet received official approbation of the crown, the licentious past of the people who look on all government to be a yoke had repudiated his authority in all of his actions. As a result, he pointed out, the reins of government are cut in pieces and the people run into anarchy and confusion. But Hamilton was soon to find that the council was hardly more tractable than the House of Deputies. First, in late 1700, George Willocks, deputy for the proprietors, led a revolt against the leading proprietor, William Dacra, the proprietor's executive secretary. The council stalled hearings on Willock's charges of corruption and injustice against Dacra, but it finally consented to a hearing the following August. Willock's charged Dacra with usurpation of governmental rule, levying arbitrary fines on local landowners, voiding good land titles, and demanding bribes for settling land claims. Backed by the deputy secretary and six resident proprietors, the council turned against Dacra, and the board of resident proprietors finally removed him from his post. But the Dacra problem was purely internal to the ruling oligarchy of proprietors and their favorites. Also internal but far more challenging to the existing regime was a sudden move by former Governor Andrew Bowne at the council meeting in June 1701 to claim the post of governor. Bowne declared that the proprietors had appointed him, but he was challenged by the resident proprietors headed by David Lyle, who pronounced Bowne's claim defective and who charged that the whole thing was an anti-Hamilton maneuver invented by Richard Salter. Bounds' claim was also backed by William Dockra, who was evidently taking the opportunity to try to oust a regime that had already turned against him. Lewis Morris, now agent of the resident proprietors, decided that the best course would be to abolish the weak and confused proprietary rule— and to replace it with a royal government, headed by Hamilton. In that way, Hamilton and the ruling oligarchy in East New Jersey could end the permanent rebellion, and entrenched themselves in power, backed by the might and prestige of the royal government. As rebellion settled into a permanent state, the Tory advisers of the colonies began to offer their solutions, Edward Randolph, in February 1701, advocated not only the end of proprietary government, though not of its land claims, but also the annihilation of the Jerseys. Randolph urged that East New Jersey be annexed to New York and West New Jersey to Pennsylvania. In the meanwhile, all is in confusion for want of government. Andrew Bowne also moved in again, hoping to have his post restored. He called for drastic enforcement of the generally violated navigation acts. Bowne suggested amalgamating the Jerseys with Delaware as part of Pennsylvania. The proprietors themselves, indeed, were 
rapidly becoming reconciled to the end of their rule, and they submitted a memorial to the crown outlining the conditions for voluntary surrender of their governmental rights. The petition, incidentally, was jointly submitted by the proprietors of East New Jersey and West New Jersey. The final surrender by the proprietors and the acceptance by the crown were accomplished in mid-April 1702. The crown decided to grant some, but not all, of the proprietors' original conditions. Proprietary rights to the soil were reconfirmed, along with the quit rents due. All land titles issued by the proprietors were confirmed. The governor was instructed to forbid any tax on unimproved, that is, arbitrarily granted lands, thus greatly aiding the land engrossing pursued by the proprietors. Another important privilege granted to the proprietors was a monopoly of all purchase of land from the Indians. This gratuity, in effect, made vague and arbitrary land grants to the existing landed proprietors. After April 1702, then, the proprietary government was no more. Both Jerseys were now united into one New Jersey, a royal colony. Andrew Hamilton had had no easier time in West New Jersey. The revolutionary state had continued in that colony as well. To a greater extent than in the East, the focal point of resistance was taxation. The unique element in West New Jersey was that a high tax program had been instituted by an alliance of Hamilton with the Quaker-dominated house. By 1701, a general refusal to pay taxes pervaded the colony, a refusal which included the threat of violence against the hated tax collectors. As in East New Jersey, the rebels refused to pay the courts security for good behavior. In March, nearly 80 people rioted in Burlington, broke into prison, and released two men who had refused to put up security for failing to pay taxes. Furthermore, Quaker imposition of high taxes seemed inconsistent with Quaker principles to a group of dissident Quakers who had seceded from the fold. It was these dissident Quakers who formed the bulk of the revolutionaries in West New Jersey, At regular Quaker meetings, they were denounced as seditious. The proprietors were anxious to have Andrew Hamilton appointed royal governor of the United New Jersey, but this was one privilege they were not to receive. The Crown's appointed council for the new colony included six officials from each Jersey, largely taken from the oligarchical leadership of the two former colonies, Councillor Lewis Morris, was designated acting governor by the Crown in June 1702, pending a final appointment. Finally, toward the end of the year, the Crown made New York's governor, Lord Cornbury, governor of New Jersey as well. Cornbury assumed his post in July of the following year. The Crown decided to alternate meetings of the Unified General Assembly between the respective capitals of Perth Amboy and Burlington. The House of Representatives was to consist of 12 representatives from each of the two former divisions, two apiece to be sent by the two capital cities. 
Thus, the structure of New Jersey was now similar to that of the other royal colonies, an appointed governor and council, an elected lower house. Appeals could be made to the king in major judicial cases. The crown accepted the proprietor's request for high minimum voting requirements. Voters had to own at least 100 acres and representatives 1,000 acres. Lewis Morris had warned that without the latter requirement, those persons of best estate and the proprietor's interest would be at the disposal of the tag, rag, and rascality. In short, the property qualification was a method of attempting to secure control of even the assembly by the proprietors. In addition, the people lost the right to have a regular annual assembly. The rights to call and dissolve the legislature and to appoint judges and courts were lodged in the royal governors. But the crucial rights, those of levying taxes for support of the government, remained with the assembly. Also granted were more worthwhile requests of the proprietors, for example, permitting Quakers to avoid taking an oath of office. Religious liberty was also granted to everyone but Roman Catholics, continuing the East New Jersey policy passed under the Law of Rights and Privileges of 1698. But this provision was a mixed blessing. From the time of the original concessions, at the outset of the colonies, both Jerseys had enjoyed extensive religious liberty. By its discrimination, the new proviso was a setback for the Catholics. On the other hand, there was an advance in another direction. The law of 1698 had eliminated the power of the assembly to establish ministers, but now separation of church and state, without which there can be no full religious liberty, was decreed for the colony as a whole. The important exception was a proprietary grant to each township of 200 acres of government land for support of a minister. This feature enabled some of the Puritan towns in New Jersey to keep an established church. As to the proprietor's request to make Perth Amboy and Burlington free ports without harassment from New York, the Crown suggested that this would be granted only if the New Jersey Assembly raised its customs duties and regulations to equal New York's, thus ending embarrassing free competition with the highly taxed and regulated port of New York and increasing the royal revenue extracted from the colonies. Lewis Morris tried to use the new accession of royal power as well as his leading role in the colony to establish the Anglican Church. As early as 1697, he tried to pass such a bill, but it was defeated by the combined efforts of Richard Hartshorn, Quaker, and Andrew Brown, Baptist. One of Morris's main reasons for wanting the proprietors ousted was to further the project of an Anglican establishment. But the royal government would not establish a religion that was very weak in the colony, indeed weak everywhere north of Maryland, the lack of a bishop resident in the colony also handicapped the growth of Anglicanism. For example, it was difficult for one aspiring to the Anglican ministry to be ordained. Either a bishop had to come from England to perform the ceremony, and few chose to come, or the would-be priest had to travel to England. 
What happened, incidentally, to the ultra-Puritan settlement at Newark that was founded by the former New Haven minister Abraham Pearson in 1667? Newark continued at first as a rigorously Puritan township, but Pearson died in 1678 and was succeeded by his son, Reverend Abraham Pearson, Jr. Typical of the Puritan ministry throughout New England, New York, and New Jersey, the younger Pearson was drifting strongly toward Presbyterianism. As a result, Newark ended its established church in 1687 and threw Pearson's salary open to voluntary subscription. Pearson was thereby obliged to move elsewhere. The ultra-theocratic experiment at Newark had collapsed. Thus, New Jersey took its place after 1702 as a northern royal colony with appointed governor and council and a popularly elected assembly. Proprietary tyranny and attempts to impose taxes, quit rents, and arbitrary land allocations ceased. But royal government, in alliance with the land claims of the proprietary, continued the power of the old oligarchy. Also ended forcibly were the several years of successful rebellion in New Jersey. The colony continued to be relatively individualistic, however, and to enjoy religious liberty and diversity. Volume 1, Chapter 64 Government Returns to Pennsylvania Let us now return to the situation of Pennsylvania in 1690. We have seen that by almost unanimous resistance of the Quaker colony, Governor Blackwell's harsh attempt to reimpose a state on an essentially anarchist Pennsylvania had failed ignominiously. Blackwell was forced to return to England. We have also seen that the Assembly in the spring of 1690 refused to vote funds to aid Governor Penn. It also ignored a request from Jacob Leisler to help fight the French in King William's War. When a former Blackwellite, Secretary William Markham, asked for a governmental organization of the colony to provide for military defense against a supposed French and Indian threat, which never materialized, the council preserved the anarchist status of the colony by replying that any people interested might provide for their own defense at their own expense. And even so, any militia had to be obedient to civil authority. This effectively killed the idea of a militia in the colony. The militia mongers were reluctant to pay for the services that they professed to desire so ardently. Furthermore, the Assembly and Council continued their pre-1688 practice of rarely meeting, of doing little even then, and therefore of rarely governing. But William Penn, the absent proprietor, was not disposed to let Pennsylvania continue in this anarchistic idol. In March 1691, the colony received a message from Penn announcing his aim of appointing a deputy governor, and of giving Pennsylvania the option of naming its ruler. Penn expressed a preference for a five-man commission of state to serve as deputy governor, but the Pennsylvania Council overruled him and chose Thomas Lloyd, the great leader of the anti-Blackwell resistance. Lloyd assumed his new post in April. With the accession of a continuous government official, 
Government, unfortunately, was back in Pennsylvania, but its power remained at an absolute minimum. The Assembly and Council still met infrequently, and there was still no taxation in the colony. In the meanwhile, the leading political dispute centered on the three lower counties of non-Quaker Delaware. Delaware, eager for self-government of its own, objected to all of its judges being named by the central government in Philadelphia. This dispute, becoming prominent in late 1690, reached its high point when Pennsylvania was forced to reassume government. Now a single governor would appoint Delaware's officials. Bitter at this turn of affairs and at the idea of a tax to support a Pennsylvania governor, the Delaware counties immediately decided to secede and to found their own self-governing colony. The reimposition of government had directly provoked secession by Delaware. Governor Lloyd did his best to induce the seceding counties to return, promising, in fact, that they would never be forced by the central government to pay any of his salary, and that they would be allowed full local self-government without central interference. Delaware preferred, however, to assure itself of non-interference by remaining independent. Finally, a compromise was reached in the winter of 1691-92. William Penn agreed to appoint two deputy governors, Lloyd in Pennsylvania, Markham in Delaware. These executives would control their respective appointments of officials as well as local matters, while both areas agreed to elect representatives to a joint council and a general assembly. Pennsylvania-Delaware now had two sets of executive officials, and a common legislature. Although a permanent government now existed and had nominal power, Pennsylvania society was still quasi-anarchic, since no taxes were yet being levied by the government. The government was still being wholly supported by voluntary subsidization from the proprietor. But in April 1692, the Council had passed a new bill for the reestablishment of taxation. Making this a particularly bitter blow was Governor Lloyd's concurrence in the bill. The specific tax proposal was one penny per pound of property, or less than twenty-five hundredths percent, with a minimum payment of two shillings. With the May Assembly, always the great stronghold of libertarianism, ratify this drastic and far-reaching proposal to reintroduce taxation? The freemen of Philadelphia and Chester sent the Assembly petitions, strongly protesting the proposed tax. The petitioners urged the Assemblymen to keep their country free from bondage and slavery and avoiding such ill methods as may render themselves and posterity liable thereto. Heeding these protests, the Assembly proved itself still a stronghold of liberty and ended its session without passing any tax law. Unable to collect quit rents or impose taxes, William Penn, rapidly losing money in his support of the Pennsylvania government, cried poverty and begged the Quakers of Pennsylvania in early 1693 to lend him 10,000 pounds. But the practical Quakers saw no sense in making such an enormous loan at heavy risk, 
heavy not only because of Penn's financial straits, but also because of his shaky position at court, owing to his friendship with the deposed James II. The loan request failed. With the government treasury literally empty, Lloyd had to refuse the request of New York for funds to prosecute the war against New France. In 1691 and again in 1693, Lloyd replied that there was no public treasury and that he himself was in great financial difficulty from lack of tax support. At about this time, George Keith began to exert a great impact on Pennsylvania and on the neighboring Quaker colony of West New Jersey. A scholarly Scottish Quaker, Keith had as surveyor general immigrated to East New Jersey in the mid-1680s. He soon established himself as the outstanding Quaker minister of the Middle Colonies, but strong differences with the regular Quakers soon became evident. Religiously far more conservative, Keith leaned toward Presbyterianism, toward formal articles of creed, institutions of elders and deacons, and emphasis on scripture, rather than on inner light. Politically, Keith also was different from the regular Quakers. He was considerably more individualistic. Having moved to Philadelphia in 1689 and become the Quaker schoolmaster there, Keith was stimulated by the anarchistic condition of the colony. He concluded logically that all participation in government was counter to Quaker principles. Keith's fervor was particularly stimulated by Pennsylvania's return to government in the spring of 1691, and even before 1691 Quakers served at least intermittently as government counselors in the colony. How, asked Keith, could a Quaker minister like Thomas Lloyd or Samuel Jennings during these years living in Pennsylvania, professing belief in nonviolence, serve as a magistrate at all? Keith, in short, wished to press on from Quaker nonviolence to pure individualistic anarchism of the nonviolent variety. With the religious and especially the political disagreements between the two groups of Quakers ever intensifying, the split finally became open in the spring of 1692. The Keithians, now calling themselves Christian Quakers, left the standard body of Quakers. As they struggled for influence over the body of the faithful, feeling ran high between the two Quaker factions. In September, the Keithian Quakers were expelled and formed their own organization. After being persecuted so widely for religious differences, how did the Quakers react to a split in their own ranks? Unfortunately, not very differently from other groups. The Keithians had drawn up a statement of their political and religious position, and William Bradford, the only printer in Philadelphia and a Keithian, printed the document. In reply, the Quaker officials arrested Bradford and the distributor of the pamphlet, John McComb, on the charge of printing unlicensed books without including the name of the printer. The Quaker magistrates confiscated the press and type of Bradford and withdrew McComb's license as a retailer. The Quaker government might not yet be able to levy taxes, but it was now indeed a government with a vengeance. 
and from being the persecuted, the Quakers had now become the persecutors. Keith was naturally bitter. He protested the cruel treatment meted out to the two men and denounced Governor Lloyd, Samuel Jennings, and the other magistrates on the council. Although Keith tried to mitigate his offense in the eyes of the government by calling the quarrel strictly a religious one, the government issued a proclamation against Keith at the end of August. The magistrates demanded that Keith stop making speeches and publishing pamphlets that have a tendency to sedition and disturbance of the peace, as also to the subversion of the present government. When the Keithians persisted in their protest, the grand jury in October 1692 indicted three Keithian leaders, including Keith, for writing a book denouncing Jennings and the other magistrates. The jury, incidentally, was packed with friends of Jennings, and Keith fittingly accused his enemies of constituting the judge and jury as well as the prosecution. Keith also pointed out that Quakers never should go to court and thus resort to the use of violence, but should always settle their disputes peacefully and voluntarily. The three men, however, were convicted and fined, though the fines were never paid, and they were denied the right to appeal to the council or to the provincial court. Keith's charges that ministers were being judges and were using governmental authority to suppress religious liberty must have seemed all too familiar to the colonists in America. While the dispute over the Keithians was raging in the colonies, William Penn was, as a close friend of the deposed James II, in deep political trouble in England. King William was also peeved at the anarchistic conditions in the colony and angered, as rulers always are, at the Quaker principles of pacifism. Moreover, the king was anxious to weld the northern colonies into a fighting force for attacking the French. A pacifistic, virtually unarmed colony hardly suited his purpose. Consequently, when Benjamin Fletcher was named governor of New York in late 1692, he was also named governor of Pennsylvania and Delaware. Pennsylvania was now a royal colony. William Penn courageously tried to raise a resistance in Pennsylvania against this invasion by royal officials. The colonists, however, cared little about the proprietary and became critical of Fletcher only when he tried to reimpose taxation on the colony. Fletcher formally assumed the reins of government in Pennsylvania in April 1693. As in the other royal colonies, the council was now appointed by the governor instead of being elected by the people, and laws could now be vetoed by the crown. Fletcher's appointments took the council out of Quaker control. Of the nine new councillors, only four were Quakers, and two of these were Keithians. One immediately beneficial result of the new regime was the freeing of Keith and his friends, and the restoration to Bradford of his confiscated press. Keith and Bradford both left the inhospitable colony, however, Bradford for New York and Keith for England. With Keith's return to England, the Keithian movement, deprived of its founder, began to disintegrate. Some Keithians drifted into pietism. Others became Baptist or Anglicans. 
By the late 1690s, the only Keithian remnants were in Burlington, capital of West New Jersey. In addition, there were some Baptist Quakers in Pennsylvania. In 1700, Keith himself delivered the lethal blow to the movement by converting to Anglicanism. Shortly thereafter, he became an ardent Anglican minister and a missionary to America. It is ironic that in these later years, their individualistic anarchism forgotten, George Keith and William Bradford, now ardent Anglicans, helped to impose a year's imprisonment on Reverend Samuel Bounds of Long Island on grounds of sedition against the established Anglican Church of New York. Fletcher appointed William Markham as his lieutenant governor. Now the de facto operating head of the colony, Markham was the leader of the old Blackwell clique. At this time, the Quakers were taken up with the Keithian schism and could not form a fully unified or consistently libertarian opposition to royal or Markhamite rule. Fletcher did not succeed in imposing a militia on Pennsylvania, although there were some formations in the Delaware counties. He believed that his main mission there was imposing taxation on Pennsylvania in order to raise funds for the New York War against New France. Fletcher convened the assembly in May and speciously argued that any taxes it might provide him for war would go for non-belligerent uses and shall not be dipped in blood. The argument was deceptive because military funds must always be divided between strictly belligerent and supportive non-belligerent uses, and any aid to the latter frees additional funds for the former. Fletcher was able to drive through a tax bill, but not by this reasoning. He succeeded because he and the council had the power to reconfirm or not reconfirm all the existing laws of Pennsylvania. To save the colony's legal structure, as well as ward off a threatened annexation by New York, the Assembly finally and reluctantly passed a tax bill. Taxes had arrived at last in Pennsylvania, and the unique glory of that colony was now no more. Pennsylvanians, like everyone else, now suffered the burdens of taxation. As might be expected, taxation was still very low. A tax of one penny per pound had been levied on all real and personal property, and a six-shilling tax on those without assessed property. Fletcher, interested less in the principles involved in taxation versus no taxation than in raising money for the war with Canada, was highly disappointed with this trifling amount of money. He believed it a petty introduction of future supply. Of the tax raised, half went to Fletcher and the other half to the Crown. Furthermore, the Assembly refused to agree to vote funds for salaries for the upper house. Writing home, Fletcher denounced the pacifism of the unarmed Quakers as well as their resistance to any militia. The Assembly gained in power during the Fletcher regime because the new rules gave it the authority to initiate legislation. On the other hand, the council, so powerful a body before, now became a virtual puppet of the governor, functioning as it did on his appointment and renewal. 
Between the spring of 1693, when taxes were first imposed, and the assembly session the following spring, the government collected a little over half of its tax quota. Of the three Delaware counties, Kent paid more than three quarters of its assessment, and Sussex about one half. Northernmost Newcastle County paid nothing. Of the three counties of Pennsylvania proper, Philadelphia paid over three quarters of its assessment. Chester paid ninety percent, and Bucks County paid nothing. In May 1694, Fletcher urged the assembly to increase its taxed revenue for war purposes. But not only did the assembly continue the tax at the same rate, it also decided to allocate almost half of the revenue for the personal use of Lloyd and Markham for past services as deputy governors. This infuriated Fletcher. Because it promised to deprive him and the crown of the whole revenue, when Fletcher denied that the assembly could raise taxes except for giving to the crown, the assembly retorted that it could appropriate money as it saw fit. Fletcher berated the assembly for neglecting the crown's request to defend the province and angrily dissolved the assembly. Taxation had again gone from Pennsylvania. Even though Fletcher had managed to enforce a monopoly of ferry service upon the Schuylkill, a monopoly which had been granted by Pennsylvania, and to suppress two competing ferries, the dissolution of the assembly now made him lose interest in Pennsylvania. If he could not raise money there, he saw no point in worrying about the affairs of the province. The colony returned to its former quasi-anarchist state with no taxes and a council that did little and met infrequently. Meanwhile, William Penn was campaigning energetically for return of the province to his ownership. He abjectly promised the crown that Pennsylvania would be good, that it would levy taxes for war, raise a militia. And obey royal orders like the other dutiful colonies. He also promised that he would continue Fletcher's laws and keep Markham, well liked by the crown, as his deputy governor. As a result of this cajolery, the crown restored Pennsylvania to William Penn in the summer of 1694. William Penn was as good as his word. By the spring of 1695, William Markham was installed as deputy governor under the restored proprietary. The people of Pennsylvania had long been independent in spirit from the proprietary. Penn's surrender of all Quaker principles in order to resume his proprietorship, as well as to extract quit rents, was hardly calculated to endear him further to the colony. Reverting back to its previous governmental form, the council was now elected by the people. At its first meeting in the spring of 1695, Markham revealed that his major aim was the old one of Fletcher's, imposing taxation on the colony for prosecuting the war against New France. The council proved, however, that the spirit of liberty and independence in Pennsylvania had not slackened. It refused to consider any tax or militia bill, and Markham could only end the session. The first assembly of the restored regime met in September. 
the assembly first indicated that it would levy money for non-belligerent military needs, but not for a militia. But it coupled debate on a tax bill with revision of the Pennsylvania Constitution. It was particularly interested in safeguarding the recently acquired right of the assembly to initiate laws. Again, Markham was forced to dissolve the assembly. Pennsylvania remarkably retained that unique splendor of being a taxless and armsless land. Markham could do little, and the situation of minimal government continued in this fashion for another year. In the summer of 1696, the Crown again directed Markham to build up military fortifications in the colony. Again, the council refused. Finally, in the fall of 1696, Markham decided to usurp the powers of government. He decreed a new constitution of his own, since the colonists were not willing to return simply to the constitution of 1683. The most flagrant of Markham's usurpations of power was his decision to return to the royal practice of appointing the council members, The elected council was replaced by his own appointees, chosen frankly from among the large landowners. It was by this naked usurpation and by the promulgation of his own Markham's frame as the new constitution that the governor was able to push a tax bill through the assembly. He was able also to appropriate revenue for the New York war effort as well as an equal sum for his personal benefit. Under Markham's frame, the assembly kept its right to initiate laws and the property requirements were lowered in the rural areas and raised in the towns. And so the Quakers who led the assembly and who had been able to repulse and rout the attempts of such despotic governors as Blackwell and Fletcher to impose burdensome taxation on Pennsylvania now succumbed to the usurper Markham. It is clear that a deal had been made. Markham obtained the tax bill, and the assembly was assured of the power to initiate legislation. Furthermore, the Quakers who dominated the assembly also won the concession of raising the property requirement in the towns, thus excluding the largely non-Quaker urban poor from the vote. As the persecution of the Keithians first indicated, the Quakers were beginning to abandon the consistent principles of individual liberty for the alluring perquisites of political power. A minority group of leaders formed a coalition to oppose the new dispensation. Making up the coalition were dissidents ranging from Keithians like Robert Turner to old Blackwell henchmen like Griffith Jones. Significantly, its main leader was Arthur Cook, an assistant to Markham. Cook had, along with the now-deceased Lloyd, led the libertarian opposition to Governor Blackwell. The opposition gathered a petition in March 1697, signed by over a hundred, and sent to the proprietor letters attacking the major features of Markham's frame. The opposition particularly denounced the raising of urban suffrage requirements and the institution of taxation. The libertarian opposition now contested Markham's frame, 
A separate set of elections were held in 1697 in Philadelphia County under the old charter of 1683. When the elected councillors and assemblymen presented themselves and were duly rejected, Robert Turner protested the threat to our ancient rights, liberties, and freedom, as well as Quaker domination of the colony's political affairs. Turner also denounced the tax bill of 1696 and urged that the money seized from its rightful owners by that unwarrantable, illegal, and arbitrary act be forthwith restored. He noted that people were coerced into paying the tax by threats and trickery. Popular resistance to the reimposition of taxation in 1696 is indicated by the fact that little more than half of the taxes levied were collected. So many citizens refused to pay the tax that an additional law was passed to enforce collection. Meanwhile, the atmosphere of accelerating statism was reflected in William Penn's messages to Pennsylvania, in which he ordered. The suppression of all trade that violated the navigation laws and of such immoral businesses as taverns, which were proliferating in Philadelphia, and the structure and mores of Pennsylvania affairs were beginning to take on an uncomfortable resemblance to all the other English colonies in America. The holy experiment was beginning to fade. Pennsylvania, until now, the envy. Thus, the occasion of hatred of the other colonies and their royal officials, because of its magnetic attractions of individual liberty, peace, and absence of taxation, was now falling into step with its neighbors. In 1696, the year of the Punitive Navigation Act and the creation of the Board of Trade, new trouble came to Pennsylvania. This time, in the form of royal officialdom. Edward Randolph was particularly incensed at the individualism rampant in Pennsylvania, so he and Colonel Robert Quarry, appointed judge of the Vice Admiralty Court in Pennsylvania, launched a determined assault on the colony's freedoms. The Tory views of Randolph and Quarry recognized no subtle distinctions between the quasi-statism of Pennsylvania. And the Markham frame on the one hand, and the libertarian opposition on the other. To these royal officials, all Pennsylvania was a pest hole, and Markham the leader of the lawlessness. When in 1698 a justice of the peace issued a writ against Quarry's marshal, forcing him to return gold confiscated from a merchant engaged in illegal trade. Quarry wrote to the Board of Trade of Pennsylvania's beloved, profitable darling, illegal trade. Quarry went on to denounce the Pennsylvanians as a perverse, obstinate, and turbulent people that will not submit to any power or laws but their own. They have so long encouraged and carried on a most pernicious illegal trade. Which hath been so advantageous to them that no ordinary means can make them part with it. The new threat from the royal officials and courts easily superseded that posed by the Markham frame to the liberties of Pennsylvania, intended to bring new factions to the fore. So it was in the case of Quarry's Marshal. 
David Lloyd led the prosecution and became a popular hero by denouncing admiralty courts as being greater enemies to the rights and liberties of the people than ship taxes in the days of Charles I. Lloyd was censured by the council for his remarks. In the same year, 1698, the Pennsylvania Assembly courageously passed a law granting accused violators of the Navigation Acts the common law privileges of trial by jury, thus going counter to imperial decisions. William Penn, anxious to continue toadying to the crown in order to keep his proprietary, hastened to veto the law, but in 1699 Quarry reported that he was forced for reasons of safety to hold admiralty court sessions 40 miles from Philadelphia. Furthermore, Quarry complained, no one in Pennsylvania deigned to pay any attention to the decisions and orders of the admiralty court. Finally, though, the Randolph-Quarry campaign of vilification of Pennsylvania took effect. William Penn was ordered by the Board of Trade to return to Pennsylvania to take charge of the colony, enforce the navigation laws, cooperate with the Admiralty Courts, remove Markham from the post of Lieutenant Governor and David Lloyd from the office of Attorney General, and establish a militia in the colony. Penn agreed to return and arrived in December 1699. From the time of his return, Penn tried his best to placate the Tories. Quarry was made Attorney General of Pennsylvania, and the Marshal of the Admiralty Court was appointed Undersheriff of the Colony. But Quarry, Randolph, and their allies on the Board of Trade were implacable and attempted to eliminate all the proprietary and self-governing colonies in America. Penn would finally be forced to return to England in late 1701 to fight this enormous extension of imperial control, and he was the main force behind the bill's defeat. Penn carried to Pennsylvania crown orders to impose on Pennsylvania a tyranny that would be subservient to the crown. Obediently, Penn vetoed the Act for Jury Trial for Navigation Act violations and summarily removed from office Markham, David Lloyd, and other leaders of the popular resistance against the Navigation Acts. Not only was Lloyd ousted as Attorney General and Court Clerk, he was also prevented from assuming his elective seat on the Council. An Act Against Illegal Trade was also passed. Concessions, already mentioned, were made to Quarry and the Admiralty Courts. Penn moved close to the conditions of the other colonies by levying duties on imports. He did not dare attempt to create a militia, but he did maintain a military watch at the mouth of the Delaware Bay. Penn's actions soon engendered strong opposition in the colony. The Quakers resented Penn's treatment of Lloyd and the other popular leaders, and the Assembly only reluctantly granted tax monies for payment of a salary to Penn. The people of Delaware also resented the act to repress the illegal trade. With the former constitution of the colony in abeyance, Penn quickened his reactionary course by deciding to appoint his council rather than have it elected. In protest... Several members of the council refused the appointment, 
and were instead elected in the fall of 1700 to the assembly. Heading this move was Joseph Grodin, who was elected as Speaker of the Assembly. At the summer 1701 meeting of the Assembly, Penn commended the King's request for 350 pounds for military fortifications of New York. But the Assembly resumed its old role as champion of the colony's liberties by rejecting the request. The Delaware counties protested sending any tax money for armed forces in New York. Rather, any such funds should be kept for their own defense. Penn's return also meant a renewed assault upon the liberties of the colonists from yet another quarter, the imposition of feudal quit-rents by the proprietary. Though the Assembly voted Penn a huge grant of 2,000 pounds in 1700 to be collected from property taxes, the colonists were always reluctant to pay quit-rents. Penn appointed his aide, James Logan, as receiver-general and secretary of the colony, and Logan was to enforce payment of the quit-rents. Moreover, the duties on imports levied in 1700 also went to Penn's private purse, as did another tax on the retailing of alcoholic beverages. The last General Assembly to meet under Penn's personal rule convened in the fall of 1701. It was during this assembly that the representatives of the Delaware counties walked out. Delaware secession had long been brewing. The differences between Delaware and Pennsylvania were striking. Pennsylvania was predominantly Quaker, growing rapidly and flourishing economically. Delaware was largely Dutch Calvinist, Swedish Lutheran, and Anglican, and was comparatively stagnant. Delaware, having none of the pacifist ideals of Pennsylvania, desired a militia. As soon as Penn arrived, Newcastle County in Delaware refused to send representatives to the Pennsylvania Assembly. Now, with the Delaware representatives walking out and Penn proposing to defend his proprietary against royal assault, William Penn decided to grant Delaware its secession from Pennsylvania. Delaware took the step in 1704, and from then on, the two colonies were completely separate, except for a common governor appointed by the proprietary. The assembly continued to be the focal point of resistance to Penn and his exactions. It passed a bill to give Freeman the right to bring court action against Penn and other government officials, but Penn's appointed counsel buried the measure. The assembly also favored a bill to repeal the liquor tax, but Penn insisted that the revenue must then be raised by some other form of taxation. Penn still had the task of resolving the constitutional quarrels of the colony. A new constitution, the Charter of Privileges, was finally approved by assembly and council and signed by Penn at the end of October 1701. This charter replaced both the old Charter of 1683 and the Markham Frame and was to govern Pennsylvania for the remainder of the colony's existence. The Assembly kept its cherished power to initiate legislation, but significantly the Council was now to be appointed by the proprietary governor 
and was thus taken permanently out of popular control. The council was now, as in most other royal colonies, a puppet agency of the governor. Instead of a formidable elective body capable of checking the chief executive. Furthermore, the governor retained the power to veto all legislation. The assembly was still elected according to limited suffrage with modest property restrictions. The new charter also included guarantees of liberty of conscience as well as procedural guarantees for property against arbitrary attack by the governor. Pennsylvania now truly resembled its fellows, especially the royal colonies. It now joined them in possessing a proprietary governor outside the colonists' control and a council appointed by the governor and suffered the agonies of a network of taxes, duties, and quitrents. It too faced the threats of royal bureaucracy and enforcement of the crippling navigation laws. Apart from a continued reluctance to arm, a peaceful policy toward the Indians, and the limiting of capital punishment strictly to murderers, there were few traces of the unique holy experiment that had been established in Pennsylvania. Even the rational limitation of capital punishment to proportionate retribution against the crime of murder was destined to disappear in 1718 when Pennsylvania adopted the English Criminal Code, which provided for a much broader application of capital punishment. However, Pennsylvania continued to be unique in its widespread opposition to Negro slavery. As early as 1688, German Quakers, headed by Francis Pastorius, had attacked slavery, and a yearly meeting of Quakers in 1696 at least urged discouragement of further importation of Negro slaves. The Keithians had gone much further, declaring in 1693 that slavery was theft and opposed to the Golden Rule, and warning that it was only moral to buy Negroes for the purpose of freeing them. The enormously greater freedom that had prevailed so much longer in Pennsylvania than in the other colonies had given, however, the colony a tremendous push toward growth and prosperity. Farmers and merchants had prospered. Philadelphia, with a population of 5,000 in 1700, had begun the remarkable rise that was to make it one of America's foremost cities. That city had already become the commercial port for the farmers, not only of Pennsylvania, but of West New Jersey as well. In 1690, Governor Fletcher of New York admitted that the town of Philadelphia in 14 years' time has become nearly equal to the city of New York in trade and riches, an unwitting tribute to the propulsive powers of individual freedom unencumbered by taxes and restrictions as over against the crippling effects of monopoly and high taxation on the older colony. It was not long before the unique Pennsylvania attribute of pacifism was also to wither away. After Penn's return to England, James Logan remained as builder of the proprietary party, which favored taxation and quit rents, and was willing to abandon the Quaker resistance to war and to an armed militia. 
The leader of the popular Libertarian Party, dominant in the Assembly, was the Welsh Quaker David Lloyd. The Assembly consistently resisted proprietary demands for a militia. It did allow a voluntary one, which could not sustain itself. Finally, William Penn brought an end to the opposition by, one, removing from the governor's chair the hated John Evans, who had tried to raise a war panic by false scares of French and Indian invasion and who had illegally imposed a tax by Delaware on Philadelphia shipping, powder money. And, two, threatening the colonists that he would sell his proprietary rights to the crown. Under this blackmail threat, the election of 1710 brought complete victory to the Logan-Penn forces. Under Logan's aegis, Penn quickly voted the crown the large sum of 2,000 pounds, which was expected to be used for military purposes against New France. Volume 1, Chapter 65 The Colonies in the First Decade of the 18th Century We have seen that the colonies in the first decade of the 18th century were again embroiled in projects for invasions of New France. Indeed, England had only four years of respite from war with France after the Treaty of Ryswick in 1697. In 1701, England and the other powers of Europe became involved in the War of the Spanish Succession, largely against the ambitions of Louis the Fourteenth, The war was marked by a series of expensive but futile attempts to invade Canada. Early expeditions failed to conquer Acadia, but a large expedition in 1709, having failed to mount an attack on Quebec, consoled itself by seizing Port Royal and the rest of Acadia. Another huge expedition was mounted against Quebec in 1711, but the invasion was so badly bungled that some ships were wrecked in a storm and the rest hastily returned. Peace between England and France came in 1713 with the Peace of Utrecht. Essentially beaten in the European War, France agreed to turn over Acadia, now Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and Hudson's Bay permanently to the English, and to recognize the Iroquois, among whom French Jesuits had made considerable headway, as being under English jurisdiction. By the first decade of the 18th century, the previously highly disparate colonies had become far more uniform. The political structures of the colonies in particular were now more alike. By 1710, the great liberal revolutions of the 1670s and 80s had made their attempt and failed, but their failure at least succeeded in gaining a few crucial concessions from the ruling power. In each of the colonies by 1710, a royal or proprietary governor ruled the territory. He appointed the council and the lesser administrative and judicial bureaucracies and ruled in alliance with a colonial oligarchy largely created by English rule, as well as with a bureaucracy of royal officialdom. The oligarchy received all manner of subsidies and privileges by virtue of its share in the control of the state apparatus. 
Conspicuous among these privileges were arbitrary large land grants to favored individuals and groups. In each of the colonies, an elected assembly had emerged as the representative of the popular liberal forces in continuing battle against the power of the royal officials and their appointed upper house. Most of the provinces were now royal colonies, and even the proprietors were not the proud independent rulers of yore. Once feisty and independent Massachusetts had now been brought under the royal heel. New York, formerly a proprietary colony lacking any elected assembly, was now a royal colony similar to the others, with an elected assembly possessing the taxing power, partially offsetting the royal appointees. The proprietary New Jerseys were now a single royal colony. New Hampshire, too, was finally established as a royal colony. Of the five proprietary colonies remaining in the first decade of the 18th century, two the Carolinas, were soon to be forcibly transformed into royal provinces. Furthermore, the previously remarkable religious freedom and separation of church and state in the Carolinas was now replaced by an Anglican establishment serving a small minority, particularly in North Carolina. In Maryland, Lord Baltimore had been deprived of his proprietary and though it was soon to be returned to the Baltimore family, it was returned as an Anglican colony. Gone was Maryland as a haven for Catholics from religious persecution. In short, the former uniqueness of the various proprietary and self-governing colonies had now disappeared, and there was little to distinguish the royal from the remaining proprietary colonies. The same was true for originally pacifist and anarchistic Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania and its sister proprietary Delaware had been made royal colonies. William Penn received them back only on the condition that he would mold his colonies into what had become the standard North American pattern. Of the original self-governing colonies of New England, only Connecticut and Rhode Island remained as anomalies, still in the 17th century framework. A proprietary always meant that there would be annoying attempts to collect feudal quit rents from the landowners. The Crown, too, tried to impose quit rents, but they proved, despite continuing efforts by the governors, to be virtually impossible to collect. The dissolution of the quit rent threat meant that true feudal tenure could not take hold in America, since the proprietary could not enforce its claims to feudal tribute. Even less could such plans as Maryland's consciously created feudal hierarchy of land claims persist under American conditions of abundant cheap land and individual independence. Of course, such feudalistic institutions as servitude, and Negro slavery greatly increased the privileged ownership of large tracts of land. Fortunately, although the tobacco country of southern colonies and isolated areas such as Narragansett country and West New Jersey had large plantations, no permanent landlord-tenancy relations prevailed, 
even where arbitrary and privileged land grants had been extensive. For speculative land monopolists, perhaps wanting nothing better than to be feudal lords over a host of servants and sub-tenants, invariably decided to take their wealth quickly and reap speculative gains without suffering the risk of land ownership. The one crucial exception was New York, where receivers of huge land grants, the manors, following after the patroonships of the Dutch, decided to continue as landlords exacting rents from their tenants. Deciding to rent out and not to sell, the New York landlords thereby made the fateful decision to freeze land monopoly in existing huge tracts. Except for the master-slave relation, all major aspects of feudalism in the colonies disappeared rather quickly upon their introduction. New York, of course, accepted. Here, essentially, feudal landholding continued for at least a century. As a result, New York's growth, compared with that of the other colonies, was retarded. Negro slaves were becoming an increasingly large part of the coerced labor force, They were used everywhere in the colonies, but especially and increasingly on the large plantations of the South. The following tabulation is the estimated population of the American colonies in 1710 and 1680, the figures in parentheses being the estimated number of Negroes, overwhelmingly slave. American population, 1710 and 1680, in thousands. Colony, New Hampshire, 1710, 6,000, 0,000 slaves. 1680, 2,000. Massachusetts, including Plymouth and Maine, 1710, 62,000, 1, thousand slaves, sixteen eighty forty six thousand Connecticut seventeen ten thirty nine thousand one thousand slaves sixteen eighty seventeen thousand Rhode Island seventeen ten eight zero sixteen eighty three New York, 1710, 22, 3, 1680, 10. New Jersey, 1710, 20, 1, 1680, 3. Pennsylvania, 1710, 24, 2, 1680, 1. Delaware, seventeen ten four zero point five sixteen eighty one Maryland seventeen ten forty three eight sixteen eighty eighteen Virginia seventeen ten seventy eight thousand 23,000 slaves, 1680-44. North Carolina, 1710, 
fifteen. One, sixteen eighty five. South Carolina, seventeen ten eleven. Four, sixteen eighty one. Total for the colonies in seventeen ten, three hundred and thirty two thousand. Population, slave population, forty four and a half thousand. Sixteen eighty, one hundred and fifty one thousand. The table reveals the comparatively slow growth of New York, the phenomenal growth of Pennsylvania, and the high proportion of Negro slaves in Virginia and South Carolina. The religious structure of the colonies was also becoming uniform. In a sense, by 1710, whereas in the 17th century religious persecution in behalf of the dominant sect had been the norm, except in such maverick colonies as Rhode Island and North Carolina, by the 18th century religious freedom generally prevailed, but only partially, since many colonies had their established church. For example, the Puritan in Massachusetts, the Presbyterian in Connecticut. And the Anglican in the Southern Colonies, the noted historian Carl Becker once raised the question about the extent to which the American Revolution was a battle for home rule of the colonies vis-a-vis -vis England, as opposed to a battle about who should rule at home within the colonies. In short, to what degree was the Revolution internal, and to what degree external? We are now able to frame a judgment about this issue for the earlier revolutions of the late 17th century and for their aftermath. We have seen how revolution in the 1670s and especially after 1688 swept almost every colony in America, from Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia to Leisler's in New York to the continuing state of revolution in the two New Jerseys. All of these revolutions. May be classified as liberal and popular, in short, as essentially mass movements in behalf of libertarian objectives and in opposition to the tyranny, high taxes, monopolies, and restrictions imposed by the various governments, separating the strands of home rule and rule at home is an artificial and misleading way of treating the problem. For the revolutionaries were battling against the oppressions of the state apparatus. This apparatus was certainly dominated by the external element, that is, the colonial governors appointed by the royal or proprietary rulers. But these governors created and then allied themselves with a domestic oligarchy, through subsidies, taxes, privileges, monopolies. Land grants and so forth, the royal or proprietary governor and his council formed an allied oligarchy, against which the people and their representatives in the lower house rebelled. The colonies, especially in New England, had been almost totally independent during most of the 17th century, and deeply resented later English interference. But when these colonies rebelled, they did so not against England per se, but against the oppressions of the state dominated by the English government. 
and the fact that the sudden weakening of English authority during the Glorious Revolution touched off these revolts in no sense negates this conclusion. The liberal revolutions of the 1680s and 90s failed largely because the domestic oligarchs were propped up and reimposed by the English power. The Berkeleys and their successors, the Dudleys, the Androses, and the Hamiltons remained. But the revolutions were not a complete failure by any means. The populace was left with lower houses, assemblies, willing to fight continually against oligarchic oppression, and they had a great tradition of revolution to look back upon and from which to gain inspiration. By the turn of the 18th century, the English state had come to play a much greater and more direct role in the overall sum of governmental burdens on the American colonist. For by 1696, the structure of the Navigation Acts restricting colonial trade was complete, and a royal bureaucracy replete with customs collectors and vice-admiralty courts began to impose itself on the colonies. The increasing weight of English imperial rule began to draw the brunt of popular liberal opposition. Hence, by the turn of the 18th century, the revolutions of the late 17th century behind, the increasingly uniform American colonies had settled down to a period of uneasy balance. It was a balance filled with intertension and conflict, but for most of the coming century, this conflict would no longer erupt into open confrontation or result in radical change. But when the eruption eventually occurred, it was to be an explosion that would change the face of the globe.